This is Jocko Podcast number 340 with Kerry Helton and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Kerry. Good evening. That's when the explosion rocks me. It's so big that at first I thought our vehicle had been hit. My vision goes completely white and there's a ringing in my ears, a gentle whine as my brain reignites and starts working again. Sort of. It is the same feeling I had in the old days when Chuck Liddell used to hit me. Sure, I'm conscious, but I'm not quite right. My brain doesn't feel like it's processing at full speed. My vision slowly returns and white flecks of light frolic through my eyes as my situation comes back to me in a jolt. I realize we're okay, but immediately know we're totally fucked. The vehicle in front of me hit my roof. I don't know if it hit a pressure plate or what, but a two and a half ton armored vehicle just did a backflip 20 meters in the air, is completely shredded and missing everything from the front wheel forward and is now sitting on top of my vehicle. Bullets from machine gun nests high above us start to hit the ground around us. I can hear rounds pinging off our vehicle. The RPG nests come seconds later, but luckily the assholes shooting them at me suck and they fly over our vehicle. I can now see that the firing positions have been built up. These aren't hastily made. These fuckers planned on killing us right here. I need to move. The whole fight is right here in the front. The guys in the back are so far away that all they can do is listen to the gunfire. The pass is so narrow that you can barely fit two vehicles in the gap while they are able to hit us from every conceivable position and angle. There is no way to reinforce us. Wisely, like the grizzled combat veteran he is, the ODA Sergeant Major starts pushing all the units to the high ground to take the fight to them and get the guys out of the line of fire. That is great and all, but it doesn't do jack shit for me. The lead three vehicles, one completely blown up, are stranded with nowhere to go while death rains down around us. I fucking know I'm about to die. I am not going to see my wife again. I am not going to see my kids again. I don't want it to end like this. And that right there is an excerpt from a book called Scars and Stripes, which is written by Green Beret, Special Forces sniper, UFC fighter, and all-around incredible human tim kennedy and it's an honor to have tim with us here again i think about five years after the first time maybe even almost six times six years after the first time we did this the first one was episode 21 and he's here to talk about his book his lessons learned and his experiences tim welcome back man what's up man thanks for coming by yeah my pleasure a lot of stuff going on yeah it was a heavy book to write it was a heavy book to read it was uh is is hard did uh did it help you um there are a lot of surprising things and i think i'm a pretty smart fella i think i have a pretty good memory even though i've been blown up and punched a bunch of times <laughs> going back and cooperating first i testimony you know first i wit- like witness to what happened in some of these situations um it was really hard to cooperate there'd be six shooters three different people died and all six of us were arguing over who shot who 
you know, like one guy's like, I shot that guy. I'm like, no, no, you didn't shoot that. You're right next to me and you're engaging this dude over there, you know, and, and it was so wild, um, you know, going back to even an 18 year old firefighter EMT in San Luis Obispo, California, um, just south of Atascadero, uh, a vehicle rollover. I lived pretty much my whole entire adult life thinking that this little girl that I worked on died. In writing this book, I found out that she actually lived. So there's some really great things like that. But then there were also um, moments where, you know, like when my best friend died when I was 15, I haven't, I haven't intentionally not thought about that for 20 years. And um, having to write it, having to remember what it felt like, you know, that, that was really hard. So I don't know if it helped. Um, mm-hmm. It definitely provided clarity. And I'll always take clarity and truth over anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I always think it's helpful to talk about, write about it, talk about it. Cause like you said, when you write it, when you write something down, like even from a historical perspective of like writing it down and checking with your teammates and being like, Hey, did, how, how do you remember this? So you get the facts a little bit more straightened out. And then just the understanding of what you went through and the understanding of the lessons learned when you write it down, it, it like clarifies it for you. Yeah. You know, so. I in reading the book, man. It's a, first of all, let me say this out of the gate: it's a freaking outstanding book, um, and I'm gonna read some of it today. But if you haven't already gotten this book, then f- order it immediately because uh, it's a it's an awesome read and it's a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> this is like you know, people say, "Oh, you if you if you made this into a movie script or whatever, people wouldn't believe it." it it's kind of like that, you know what I mean? It's 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 that. It's that freaking, your life has been that wild. Man. It has been that wild. You know, but the, even though it's been extraordinary stories and um, the, the the resounding theme I've heard from everyone is how relatable moments of that was. You're like, man, I remember smelling, you know, like the, the, the smell of the valleys in Afghanistan, how you talked about the dirt. Like I grew up on a farm in Fresno and that's exactly what it smelled like, you know? And... Um, you know, guys that fought and people that do jujitsu, you know, like remembering walking into mats in, in like the early 2000s and it smelled like puke. It smelled like piss. You know, the ammonia, like the, as our bodies would be eating themselves because we were training so hard, that weird smell that the off gas of our body, like eating its own muscle, the same smell that you get from like dudes and buds and the same smell that you get from guys in like SF selection, like during kind of peak MMA those gyms smelled like that. Oh yeah. Where you can't eventually you have to throw your clothes away because yeah. they reek and nothing gets rid of nope, the smell. You can't vinegar them. You can't put them in the sun. You can't bleach them. That smell is just like part of it now. And uh, so like it's been wild, but it's, it's cool to, to have people get context into some, some of the reasons why I am the way that I am. And I think more important now in 2022 is, uh, the book is mostly failure. You know, like the book is mostly struggles. The book is mostly, it is not like this crescendo moment of me doing this great thing. It's like, here's what crotch rot feels like, you know, (laughs) Um, here's what trench foot feels like. Um, Here's what it looks like to go into a a fight and lose. Um, It's not, you know, world champion, Tim Kennedy. It's like, not well, you know, like Jacare gets his hand raised, Luke Rockhold gets their ah. hand raised, and I stand there not as world champion. Um, those moments are the, the moments that I really, really focus on because I think those are the moments that shape us, yeah. Yeah, those are, I mean, I don't know you that well, but I've known you for a long time. And I've, you know, obviously, when you were fighting, I was always watching you and stoked that you were doing it. And 
you know those when you'd be fighting for the championship and I'd be watching going come on man come on <laughs> and then you would and but you know what I'd do I'd like turn off the TV and go back to work and you and you'd have to do you know suffer through the loss and all that I mean it like hurt me a little bit <laughs> but like I said I just like grabbed another freaking piece of chicken and carried on with my day you had to like look at all your sacrifice everything that was going on how the how the army was looking at you how the rest of your friends were looking at you Ugh. yeah humiliation is a <laughs> is a powerful tool for good sometimes you know i know we're not we can't fat shame people these days but like i was shamed in moments and th- that shame first time on an oda like the mistakes i made i'm still embarrassed thinking back to the way that i behaved as a new guy on a team dude that shame is so powerful you know it's so important oh that's freaking legit and you know that's i guess that's what that's what makes any any like uh book or yeah i guess any book or writing or talk that you're going to give is how honest you are about who you know where you came from and what happened along the way <laughs> you are very honest man you're so honest sometimes i was like dude maybe you should have put that in there bro uh, <laughs> I, like, in in 2022 right you're on social media the the fake fabrication that is the the current existence that we live in right the news is is eight second headlines that's not truth it's just little tiny mm-hmm. tiny bits um every single social media is curated and editorialized you know it's a filter that makes me yeah. look good um it's my best moment with the best light um you know and even if it's like here's me struggling it's like me walking into an interview and somebody's like hey tell me something that's not great about yourself well well honestly i work too hard yeah like, I'm a pro- you know the thing is i'm a perfectionist you know and it really <laughs> yeah, is hard stop. i care too much <laughs> <laughs> knock it off you know and that's like our world right now yeah. and, and i think people have been starving for truth yeah. and transparency and they wanted vulnerability and um and it, we've I'm starving for it. You know, like when I, one of the main reasons why, like, I love listening to you and I love your books is it's just like, this is real. This is who I am. This is my approach to things. It's not for everybody. You're like, I'm not going to get up at 4.30 a.m., but like, this is you. And I I love that. You know, one of the many reasons that the circle of friends that I have is like, they're just the real humans that they say that they are, where everything else around me is fake. Yeah. You know, even, um, so in the book, Extreme Ownership, the opening chapter is we had a blue on blue. I was in charge. We, on a friendly Iraqi soldier got killed. One of my guys got wounded. A few other Iraqi soldiers got wounded as well. And I, when when I got home from that deployment, I would brief everybody. I mean, I would brief every SEAL platoon, every SEAL team that was going out. I had a full brief about exactly what happened, what went wrong, how you can prevent it from happening, how we prevented it from happening again, and why it was my fault that this happened. And as we were writing Extreme Ownership, that chapter wasn't in there. And we talked about, I talked about a bunch of other little mistakes that I made and Leif talked about some mistakes that he made and, hey, we should have done this better and here's, and finally one day Leif was like, hey, you know the blue on blue? And I'm like, yeah. And he says, you should put that in here. And I said, I thought about it. And of course in my mind, I'm like, damn it. Mm. Now I got to tell everybody yeah. that, oh, this big combat operation, The as far as I'm concerned, the worst thing that can happen in war is friendly fire. Yeah. And I got to, it happens. Yeah. I got to put myself on report for doing that and being in charge of it. And, you know, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I do. And so I, when I got done writing the chapter, I was like, well, here I go, Hey bro, here's the first chapter. Cause if we're going to go hard, let's just let everybody know what's up out of the gate. Yeah. And he was like, absolutely. So, 
I think that's the same reason that that book uh, hits people. This is the same way that your book hits, where you're like, man, some heavy shit you're going yeah. through, dude. <laughs> but you can't do it another way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can. Yeah, you can. But then you're just a real. liar. Yeah, yeah. Then you're just like everybody else out there in this in this current generation, this age. Where, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd rather continue to suffer. I'd still continue to learn from my pain and uh, make mistakes. Hopefully, fewer of them. And uh, <laughs> but we'll we'll see how that shakes out. Right on. All right. Let's let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Where you came from and all this. I'm going to go to the book for a second. Um, because it's a pretty good opener. It gives a good assessment right here. It says, "I'm an atypical dude with an with atypical parents and an atypical childhood." I don't exactly know how I ended up like this, but here's my closest guess as to the recipe that made me. To start, add three cu- cups of I grew up in the 80s. So like many of you Gen X types, every day was an adventure. There were no cell phones, no helicopter parents. We left in the morning and came home when the streetlights came on. Then add two teaspoons of my mom, a highly educated, classically liberal woman who valued books, arts, and dance. She'd probably fit best teaching at an elite East or West Coast college than anywhere else on the planet. Now add three heaping tablespoons of my dad, an elite counter-narcotics officer who literally was going up against Pablo Escobar on the daily at the peak of the war on drugs. He had seen the worst in life and wanted his children to be tough, quick-thinking, and able to survive in any condition. He valued martial arts, gun work, and more risk-taking than most parents would feel comfortable allowing. Finally, add one bucket of my insurmountable drive to prove I can do anything, and you now have an idea of what makes me, me. Yeah. (laughs) You were uh, homeschooled. That's right. Right? Yep. So what's that? You were homeschooled before homeschooling was even a thing. Yep. They, my, it wasn't a thing, man. It's a thing now. I mean, I grew up in the 70s, but it definitely wasn't a thing in the 70s. By the time I had kids, homeschooling was a thing. Yeah. I homeschooled one of my kids. Uh, it wasn't a thing, though, in the 80s. No. Where'd your parents even come up with that? It was like, hell. They're, we, they're we radicals. This. You know, uh, they, were, they were radical centrists in the sense that they believed uh, in the Roosevelt idea of what a citizen is right it is my job to be self-sufficient it is my it's the individual responsibility to be able to provide and protect for my family you know i as a contributing member of society as a good citizen of america like so that kind of old school roosevelt approach to being a good citizen it is our job to educate my children it is not the government's job to do anything like that that is how my parents subscribed you know, like religion ethics morality um the the classical part you know we had we had box seats in uh, at the San Francisco Symphony uh, at Davies Hall. You know, we'd, we'd travel all over the nation to to go to operas and ballets. And you know, like I, I grew up on Tchaikovsky's, you know, watching beautiful little ballerinas move around. And I remember What's Tchaikovsky's uh, Tchaikovsky is a composer that uh, Swan Lake. OK, um, so this is when you made that freaking Swan Lake video yeah. <laughs> all those years ago. There was there was some that was real. There was some, there yeah. was some tie to that. Yeah, I, I like, remember like thinking, OK, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's layers there. Man. Yeah, I get it now. And when I was when I was born, I was born with a with a bad heart murmur, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a runt child compared to the rest of my family. Uh, my dad's a giant Olympian water polo player. You know, my brother's a like giant an actual Olympian water yeah, polo player. Yeah, yeah, he's a freak. Still to this day, when you're standing next to you know this guy that stole 
a plane full of cocaine from Pablo Escobar. And, uh, you know, he's 6'3", 280 pounds. You're, you just kind of like, you're unnerved in, in his space. He's gregarious. He's so sweet. But you're also like, do I make eye contact with him? You know? Uh, but being small and being a runt, uh, I had like a chip on my shoulder. And uh, I walked. So how tall are you? I'm five eleven. So you're five eleven, but you, <laughs> but you had like Napoleon complex. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Two hundred twenty pound Harry, you know, <laughs> and I'm nothing compared to the rest of my family's <laughs> athletic gifts. So like that that teaspoon of crazy part, you know, like that was me just trying to keep up. Mm. That was me just trying to be with my big brother who was faster and stronger, and his friends friends were bigger and meaner. Um, so like that that came to be a pretty big driving force for me. And this was all taking place in up and around San Luis Obispo? Mm-hmm. Yep, in Atascadero, Paso Robles, mm-hmm. Templeton, Cambria. Which is some of the most amazing just just region of the world. It is. Am, am I We've wrong? We've been everywhere. We've been everywhere, yeah. right? And I still go home. I go to my, my parents' property. It's in, in Lockwood, right, right off of Lake Nacimento. We back up to Camp Roberts. Oh, God, and, uh, that's just... Amazing. Truly elk walking through my parents' yard, you know, and uh, I'm looking down the backside of the Hearst Castle property. We, <laughs> we look at the, the mountains, and it is so wild that I'm in California when I'm there because yeah. I'm like, it's so beautiful and it's so serene. And, and then I'm like, oh, I'm in California. <sighs> <laughs> there was like a movement a little while ago to make to separate California into different three regions. Yeah. I was like, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think it just needs to be two regions, re- or I guess, yeah, two regions. One of the regions would be San Francisco and LA, and then California would be the rest of it. Yep, that'd be that'd, pretty cool. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, never gonna happen. Uh, you, you, So you're running around as a, as a kid, you're doing just full on kid stuff. Mm-hmm. You're freaking running around the woods. You got the Creek Gang. Yep. There's yeah. no, there's no one monitoring shit with you. No, I mean, there's no parental. It's guidance so at difficult all. for people now to understand what it was like in yeah. the eighties. You know, no bicycle helmets not going to happen. Oh you no! Know? And when I say <laughs> we leave at sunrise and come back at sunset, it wasn't. The door was locked. Like we could not come home. <laughs> you know, my mom would close the screen door and it had one of those latches, and she'd latch that thing, and we would knock on the door when the sun went down to come in to get dinner. <laughs> Outside of that, you got ten hours to pretty much be a feral, a, a feral ravenous child. And you you spent time in the water too. You're like a waterman too, right? One hundred percent. Yeah. You know, with a dad that was water polo pool in the backyard our house was where everybody would go it was like the center of gravity for our church and our community so every friday the whole entire city was pretty much invited to our house so we would have a few hundred people at our house every friday and it was a melee pit in that pool (laughs) you know only the strong survived i mean it was it, it was bad um, I don't know how kids didn't die. Like to this day, Lord of the Flies type things happen in that pool. And uh, but you know, with the the coast being right there, Morro Bay, you know, like spear fishing, scuba diving. You know, I I got my Patty Junior scuba diving license at thirteen. You know, I was a surfer kid growing up before I was allowed to scuba dive. You know, like we're we're free diving. You know, using Hawaiian slings and spear fishing. Um, we would swim out to rocker to the breakers, and uh, we would take a broom handle with a um, wire clothes hanger and I'd attach a, a fishing lure to the end of it and we'd swim out all the way out to the breakers like, you know, 
a quarter mile off off a beach, and uh, we would be, we call it poke hole fishing. And I'd take this dowel with this long broken wire that I'd bend into like this crescent, and I'd dip it around over the corners of the of these rocks 10, 10 feet down as the waves are just smashing into the breakers. But we'd get the rock cod that weren't so far out that the fishing that the boats would get but not but they're big enough because they weren't by the beach so i would i would get five six rock cods in a couple <laughs> hours but i just had to endure getting my ass beat <laughs> on the rocks it's uh man it's kind of strange you didn't end up in the navy i wanted to yeah yeah when i on 9-11 um the navy office was closed <sighs> so the marine office was open i talked to them first and the army office was open and uh, on nine twelve. Yeah, nothing was really open on nine eleven. It wasn't until the day after that I finally got to talk to a recruiter, and that was uh, the Marines and the Army first. Dang. Yep. Yeah, because that just weren't working. That well, yeah, <laughs> which is no big shocker. The the uh, the because the water's such a huge obstacle in in buds. Yeah, and it's also it's also like part of being in the SEAL teams. Like you're in the water a lot, so if you grow up in the water, it's kind of kind of nice to be able to return to it from time to time um so you're growing up and and let me jump into the book here and again look i'm i'm like reading a small percentage of this book the stories in here are are amazing i'm gonna hit on one of them right now uh here we go jared and jordan cunningham two members of the creek gang and two of my best friends on planet Earth were heading to a party driven by teenagers in two separate cars. When I say heading to a party, I mean that in the lamest, most wholesome possible way. They weren't going to some Hollywood-style teenage kegger. They were going to hang out at someone's house and play games. Maybe if things got wild, they'll, they'd wrestle in the grass. Just good, wholesome fun. It was a, kids, a church kid hangout. But church kids are still kids. And as you've seen from me, and you know from your own childhood, kids do dumb things. The two teenage drivers finding themselves alone on a long country road started racing each other, taking turns passing each other in the oncoming traffic lane. It was Jared's car's turn to speed by, and they slid out from behind Jordan's car and started to pass. The brothers were right next to each other, their respective drivers in mid-acceleration in that horrible moment. I know what the moment was like, as do you. Boys yelling at each other through windows, laughing, swearing, feeling the invincible rush of adrenaline-filled youth. Then the oncoming car came around the corner. They were doing nothing wrong, just minding their own business, doing some last-minute shopping before Christmas. Neither driver saw the other in time to hit the brakes or swerve. Jared died. Age 13. December 20, 1994, five days before Christmas, in front of his 16-year-old brother, Jordan. So, yeah, that sucked. That's going to leave a mark. <clears throat> the, the Cunninghams, they were, Lee Cunningham was the district attorney, prosecutor for San Luis Obispo. Jordan was like the quintessential a hero. Like if uh, Friday Night Lights, the movie was made, like he is that he is the the, the gorgeous, athletic. Um, everybody, you know, he's the smartest. Um, and Jared had all of that going with him. You know, that family was really 
not just the most popular family in the city, but like they are the most generous and kind and sweetest people. So uh, like that law, when Jared died, like you know, your children had to live with the Jared Brady law. That was because of Jared Cunningham. Um, you know, you can't drive under the age of 18 with other kids in your car. That was because of okay. this. Wow. And, um, you know, Jordan being my brother's, one of my brother's best friends and Jared being one of my best friends, the, uh, it is such a crucial moment, you know, in, in that like post pubescent, you know, you're, you're, you're still figuring out who you are. Um, frontal lobe's not working yet. And when tragedy like this happens, it just reshapes and reorganizes everything. And um, the the city just, one, rallied around the Cunninghams, which was really cool to see. But um, that that generation, that little group, you know, there are a whole bunch of my friends from that era are dead now. Uh, they committed suicide or they lived a very reckless life, um, as did I. And uh, so, you know, I had second and third order effects that lasted for decades. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing about the book is <laughs> like, like we've been talking about, it's very humble for you to point this out, but you'll go through these things where there should be some big lesson learned. <laughs> and you'll literally say like, this was a huge lesson that I could have learned <laughs> and I missed it. And, and I mean, this, this kind of like what happens here, this doesn't, this doesn't slow you down at all. I mean, you're still like, just going wild as a kid, doing normal kid shit. Yeah, and it sounds like everyone else was too. Yeah, the, the there was a direct intent from us to not point out any lessons in anything. Um, I wanted people to learn, f not not from an anecdotal. Hey, here here's what you should do. Instead, here's the repercussions of it. Are you smart enough to to? extrapolate out of this mm -hmm. what you need to do to not make the same mistake um, hopefully people are smart enough to to realize the consequence of every single one of these things i don't know yeah so you're running around i mean you're getting in fights you're getting jobs you're getting fired you're attacking people <laughs> it's just freaking classic well the attack uh, <laughs> even though i was being an absolute psychopath um so at in and out Burger where I get fired when they fire their best fry guy. Yeah, Steve. Um, there was a, like, she legitimately got assaulted, you know, and me being a 13, 14 year old boy when my, my 11, 12 year old sister, when she gets like inappropriately touched by a dude, like I throw him through a phone booth. Like, that's what you do. You know, when I was five years old, when I got, well, the reason I got homeschooled is I got kicked out of private school, you know, and my parents were already homeschooling my brother, but so that was going to be an option, but they're going to see if, if, if this little hairy handed idiot was going to be able to handle school, <laughs> see if he can be civilized and socialized. Could Didn't not happen. <laughs> no, they little dude made fun of Laura's hair. She got a little bowl cut and I followed him up on the playscape, punched him in the grill and I shoved him off and he broke his arm. It's not my fault. So by the time I'm 16, you know, and I have a little bit of testosterone finally going on yeah. and somebody touches Brianna, I'm like a dart, a lawn dart across that, that polished stainless steel counter into this dude as I drag him out the front door after beating him. Yeah. So at some point, it sounds like your dad realizes you need some, some kind of harness, some kind of direction, and then comes uh, wrestling. Mm -hmm. other martial arts what's what's that like it's weird because you you wrestled but you weren't allowed to wrestle 
in like the CIF right. California Home, State Problem homeschooled uh, program. I was homeschooled. Mm-hmm. So uh, now there's mechanisms. Yeah, there's mechanisms now. Yeah. But in 1985, <laughs> they thought they were dealing with a freaking cult member. Yeah, they were, <laughs> and they basically they, they were. were. They were. So. You know, I would like club wrestling, uh, yeah. freestyle wrestling. Um, I could do Greco camps. Um, I could go to drop in tournaments. You know, but there was no there was the you know, like the collegiate mm-hmm. approach to to wrestling, not accessible to a homeschooling kid. So, how old were you? When you started wrestling, ten. And then you were doing. Your dad was getting you into other like traditional martial arts mm-hmm. as well. Uh, what do you got? Dokan Jitsu. What was that all about? Yeah, that was a Japanese. Uh, Taikariya Kid Jiu Jitsu, you know, some, if you go back to Haleo Gracie, the origin of it is Japanese Jiu Jitsu. So this was a very, very traditional Japanese Jiu Jitsu school. So you'd still do, you know, stick fighting, you know, screamless sticks and bow, st- bow staffs and um, a little bit of weapon takeaways, wrist locks, mm-hmm. um, striking, but very traditional Japanese striking. And, uh, and I, I loved it. My favorite part was the grappling part of it. Mm-hmm. So at ten, you know, like I, I played around in clubs with the in in wrestling and taekwondo and um, karate. And it wasn't until about fifteen where it was a mandated activity where my dad was like, "You will go and do this." <laughs> um, and that was that was jujitsu and wrestling. It got real at fifteen, sixteen. And then, but you could only compete in just club tournaments. You couldn't compete in the CIF. That's right. How'd you do against kids that were good wrestlers from from that were wrestling in CIF? I got smashed. Yeah, mm-hmm. everywhere. My first, um, my first tournament was a single elimination tournament, and I got pinned in like thirty eight seconds. Mm-hmm. And um, in the gymnasium, big, huge, you know, old school wooden floor gymnasium with like the wooden. Uh, bleachers you could hear every echo and i could i swear i could hear my embarrassment <laughs> like echoing off the walls <laughs> like it just got louder and louder and i couldn't look at my dad who was who was next to me you know i know he was you know he was cheering for me it was a short match and mm-hmm. he was disappointed and of course he's hey like come on bud you're, you're all right let's go <laughs> so but i was so embarrassed yeah, i was so like your dad is such a beast yeah. and he's got this freaking scrawny kid that yeah. just got his ass beat yeah. <laughs> i'm just gonna leave you here son oh. sorry i remember the first tournament first high school tournament that my son wrestled in he was so he had might have just turned 14 and and I mean, he might have even still been 13 anyways he was young but he was he was on the varsity team because he's pretty good and so we take him to the big tournament. There's 64 people in the bracket. He's the 64th seed because he's a little kid. Yeah. And the first, so he's going up against the number one and number two seed in the first, his first match. <laughs> and this dude comes out. He's got, he's freaking got like a full firefighter's mustache. Right. He's like 19, yeah. a full grown ass man, right? Like just a man. He had a big ass tattoo uh, on his arm. And I looked at my son. I said, "Hey, no matter what happens, you just hold your head up high when you walk off this mat." And he got pinned in 38 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's like one of those things. There's something good about that, though, man. It's so important. So it is good. so important. I can't uh, str- as, as even though I think back and I'm 
I'm humiliated. I'm a shameful moment, right? Where like my dad would look at me for a second. And that might even be like projected my own brain. I'm sure he was just sitting there being like, come over here, son. But in my brain, like he looked away in that glance, like just was a knife into my chest. That shame going on and being able to like hang with Rashad Evans and the John Joneses, you know, 15 years later, that would never, ever, ever happen without me standing there as a pathetic loser getting destroyed in seconds in my first match. There's no participation trophy. There's no coach being like, hey, that was a great match. You tried your hardest. You know, he came over. He's like, you suck. (laughs) You know, like, I hope I don't have to see you on Monday. Please don't come back. You know, but I showed up because I was furious. And um, and that, that fire is so important and it's not being harnessed right now because it's, it's absent from this generation. Yeah. And we we have to let people fail again. Yeah, that, even for me, like the first time I ever did jujitsu against this old master chief who was probably like ten years younger than I am right now, but he seemed like the oldest dude in the world. And you know, he just like choked me out, arm locked me, and I was like, "Oh, I, I'm literally thinking, whatever this dude knows, I'm going to do everything in my power to learn everything about it because I don't ever want this to happen again. This is this is what I'm doing." Yeah. And and you gotta get your ass beat. Yes, sometimes, you do. Man. Yes, you <laughs> do. You. It is good for you. When when somebody's lecturing me about some significant thing about you know hard work or you know how how somebody should do something, I, I always look at them like, have you ever been hit in the face? <laughs> you know, have you ever had your ass beat? Have you ever lost so bad you you felt like you couldn't breathe? And they're trying to impart some wisdom like. I can't listen to you. Yeah, and there's, there's nothing else you can say. And, and then there's a dividing line too, because some people, when they feel that, they just want to avoid that thing forever for the rest of their life, and that's a bummer because that's just the wrong path to go down. Some people, when they experience that, like, oh, this other human being can hold me and do whatever he wants to me, and I hate that, yeah. and I'm going to do everything I can to be able to stop that from happening in the future. Well, that's an, I mean, that's evolution. That's adaptation, right? So, like, if I put my hand on something, and I burn my hand. I'm going to learn not to put my hand there. If I go with this really brilliant, crazy hot chick on the like hot crazy scale, <laughs> and she cheats on me with this other better looking dude that has more money, hopefully, I emotionally learn that. I maybe should not find somebody that looks like that and behaves like this. I'm going to pick somebody slightly different. Like those are all painful lessons to learn. And that's how we adapt. And uh, like the, the adaptation process should involve pain. Pain is the, is, is the thing that fuels the change. I'm going to fast forward a little bit in the book. Um, this is good. Yeah, it's tasty. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So here I am at slow kickboxing, walking into the one of the most dilapidated buildings I've ever seen. I'm going to be training with a rising star in the UFC, a guy by the name of Chuck Liddell, alongside his merry band of badasses. First, we have Gan McGee, an almost 300-pound wrestler from Cal Poly who fought for the UFC World Championship against Tim Sylvia. Gan lost, but Tim popped for steroids that, that fight. Next, we have Eric Schwartz, another Cal Poly wrestler who is undefeated in WEC and K1 kickboxing circuit. He's Chuck's main training partner. Never far from him was Scott Lights Out Lighty, a K1 kickboxer and mixed martial artist. Then there's Jason Von Flew, you know, the guy that the famous jujitsu choke is named after, that guy. Cruz Gomez is the only little guy in the mix, meaning he was about my size, 5'11", 170, 
but what he lacked in stature he made up for an abject savagery. Finally, there's Glover Textura, a jiu-jitsu badass who would go on to become the UFC champion with the most subs at light heavyweight in UFC history. It's a rough room. That's a freak. <laughs> that's a that's a freaking. That's the, you got to get some training in that yeah. thing, man. And then there's John Hackleman. Oh yeah, who is just you know he was the he just sat there with like a hot iron poker <sighs> of, of emotional because he knew all of our buttons and he would just like beep. Just walk around instigating. Mm-hmm. So he's a psychopath. I love him so much. And so he's, how did he found the pit? Uh, so Hawaiian Kempo. Yeah. And uh, he got his black belt. He, when he was in the army, he was boxing and he was traveling. He got stationed in Hawaii. And while he was there, he, um, I'm, I'm grossly summarizing, mm-hmm. falls in love with Hawaiian Kempo. Um, you know, ultimately becomes a black belt in Hawaiian Kempo, comes back to Arroy Grande where he opens up the pit mm-hmm. in his backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before they even had a cage built back there. It was like a rope ring inside of a, a barn, an outside barn. And uh, we had his hill, we had a wheelbarrow, and uh, we had sandbags. And that was all the apparatus that we had to train, to, you know, which became a whole bunch of world champions. But uh, that was it. And then he opened up his actual martial arts school, you know, the Inneroy Grande, the the pit. And then San Luis Bispo kickboxing was an offshoot of the pit where we had the ring, the, an actual mat for us to wrestle. Uh, not in the grass or dirt, which was nicer. So you're sparring uh, Chuck Liddell. How, how old are you at this time? I am 18. And, and what's, how was Chuck? He is 26. Ugh, yeah. A 26 year old Chuck Liddell. Bro. And then the rest of the guys in that room being around that age, too, I, I imagine. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And God. it was wild about this room is like Eric Schwartz, nobody knows that name. You know, I think he retired at like 12 and 0. He only retired because Chuck retired. He was really only fighting so he could stay relevant for his, his best friend Chuck. That was, he was the best in the room, right? And then you had Scott Adams, who also retired as a, an undefeated UFC fighter where I think he had the first three leg locks in the UFC were, were from Scott Adams. And, um, man, I think you have a shared opponent with him in, um, Monson. Oh yeah. 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 I think they fought in the UFC really, really oh, early. Okay. Did, did Scott win? I, I hope. Yeah. Leg lock. Yeah. And yeah, there's that video. There's a video of me and Jeff Monson. And unfortunately it's like a three minute video. And the, the, the match was, Triple overtime. So, like... I've seen the full video, though. Yeah. I it's, it's not on YouTube. Oh, okay. But I... I um, man, where did I see that? That's a, that was one of the most competitive... And this was peak Monson when you fought him. Yeah, yeah. This is roided out of his gills, <laughs> Monson. This is yeah. like... You could see all of the D-ball like, just yeah. like pumping out of his neck. And the testosterone was like just dripping out of his eye. Like This was like anabolic steroid Monson yeah. of massive proportions. That was a badass He's match. He's a strong guy. Yeah. yeah. But, but also very technically... Oh, he's good too. He's sure. good. Oh yeah, for sure. No, so, he's better than I was, obviously. Nah, that and, was a uh, great match. I don't know. I, I know, just like anybody else, you know. I look back. That was so long. Ago, I look. God, that's. Oh my God, what am I doing with my hips over there? What, yeah. what was my weight? You know, you look. You just think you're pathetic, but um, good times. You yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But that room, even the no names were, just could have been world champions. Yeah. You know, Gan, that when when he lost to Tim Sylvia, um, lost. You know, mm-hmm. Gant, Tim, yeah. so this is like pre-USADA. Yeah. So if 
now yeah if you're getting popped back then man nobody cares yeah <laughs> so they they made it like they dq'd it but that you don't get a belt from a dq so uh. so gan would be world champion but is now just gets a win over tim sylvia for a championship fight Ugh. but non-champion that sucks yeah that's a bummer the room was vicious and everybody hit hard everybody how many times how often were you training i uh, train 14 times a week mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You end up your first your first fights for money, and this is such a like this book is insane. Uh, your first fights for money are you get it you you do somebody a favor of driving some weapons down to New Orleans for some kind of an event or something yep. like this, and you're uh, you're standing in the bar and you see people getting kind of like taken away. They look guys that look like you, first of all. Uh-huh. Yeah. They, they well, <laughs> explain it. Okay. So my buddy Gary Cobble, um, he owns this weapons manufacturing company and I'm driving the prototype weapons from San Luis Obispo from Paso Robles all the way to New Orleans for Trexpo East, which is like this law enforcement government um, convention. Think SHOT Show or NRA, but specific to law enforcement and military. So instead of doing the rational thing of you know stopping to get sleep i take gatorade bottles i'm pissing in gatorade <laughs> bottles and i drive straight through at like 90 yeah. miles an hour yeah. so i can have extra time in new orleans yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right of course uh, no doubt this is like well, you don't even have to explain this <laughs> no. to so i get there i have a lincoln navigator with you know half a million dollars of experimental weapons in the back and i park it on bourbon street <laughs> And I go into the first bar I can find, and I was like, this is awesome. And I see these dudes with chunked up ears, gigantic shoulders, you know, big, like, ma- massive hands. And uh, they're, like, bumping into little bros that are just hanging out in the bars. And then they walk out, and somebody intervenes before they start fighting in the bar. And they say, come down to my bar, and I'll pay the winner of the two of you. Well, it was just a scam where the professional fighters were going and luring little tra- traveling tourists that were drunk out of New Orleans to go fight in this bar. <laughs> so like, this is brilliant. This is the best thing that could have happened to me. So I wait for the next bump, shoulder bump to happen, and I go over there and I bump into him. And I was like, what's your problem? He's like, what's your, wait a second. What's going on here? I was like, I'm in. Let's go fight. <laughs> so I became the new like asshole that they'd bring in the college kids to. And I would just beat them and I'd get a couple hundred bucks per beating. Um, and it was a great plan until I have to show up to work the next morning with swollen hands and black eyes from bare knuckle fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good uh, initiation, though. I mean, you thought to yourself, hey, I can make money doing this yep. shit. Um, it's hard to. I mean, you remember the early 2000s MMA. MMA is not legal in probably 45 out of the 50 states. In California, I had I would have to go to Indian reservations or I'd have to come down here and, and go to Tijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd fight in literally every single Indian reservation up and down the state. Mm-hmm. I had about 10 of them. And, uh, you know, the, of the few states that would allow it, it was usually on Indian reservations <laughs> in the state that it was kind of pseudo permitted. There was no athletic commission. There was no drug testing. Yeah. And, um, and you're getting paid in cash or a check that would probably bounce. Uh, that like that was that was uh, the MMA I grew up in for sure. Yeah, was, yeah. The the other wild thing is like you don't know you don't have any clue who your opponent nope. is. No YouTube. Yeah, and and you know when I would be working with young fighters, you know get these hyped up young fighters. They've been training for two years. Like I want to fight. I want to do an amateur fight. I'm like okay, but you don't know who your opponent's going to be. And I call out one of our guys that's like a black belt that wrestled in high school. I go, you know that guy upstairs? Yeah. 
You train with him? Yeah. I go, he's got his first amateur fight in two weeks, too. Like, think about that. Yeah. You know, think about, you don't know who you're getting in with. Yeah. But luckily, you were kind of, you were well-rounded for the time, for sure. For the time. The, yeah. the pit was way advanced in the sense that, um, you know, we had brought up Glover Teixeira from Brazil. We had brilliant by John Hackleman to bring up. I would have to drive two hours to find a purple belt to train with in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Two hours. Like it wasn't, there's a black belt on every corner. Yeah. Like it is now. <laughs> like it is now. You know, like in, in Austin, I think we have 160 black belts God. in the city of Austin. And That's insane. Yeah. I mean, I would drive two and a half hours to go to Santa Barbara to train with the closest purple belt. Who was it? I don't remember. Jack. No. Or I, I'd have to drive up to um, San Francisco, Francisco to train with like the, the, um, Half Gracie's crew. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my two options. Three uh-huh. hours north, two and a half so hours south. So you brought Glover in, and now you got on tap. Yep. Badass jiu-jitsu guy. We have all the Cal Poly, and res- Cal- Cal Poly wrestling team. Um, they would come in just to train with us, just to work on our wrestling. Then we had Hawaiian Kempo, John Hackleman teaching all of our striking. You know, We had three K-1 kickboxers that were there. So it was a very rare thing to have that. This The pit was the first super fight club. Mm-hmm. It's like a gladiator school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now we, we you know, we have American Top Team, yeah. Yeah. you know. There's we, a bunch of them. You know, we have AKA, yeah. you know, you have Jackson Winklejohn, you know, the list goes on in all these great schools um and teams, mm-hmm. but back then there weren't any. You know, like the Tito Ortiz would come up from Huntington Beach and then Randy Couture and Matt Lindland would come down from Oregon and Washington. You know, it's just this was the spot mm-hmm. and I was just born there. Yeah, it's Whoa. cool. Yeah. These poor freaking kids on the Indian reservation <laughs> signing up to fight your ass for yeah. damn. Yeah. The funny thing is, though, I'm just thinking about this. You posted a picture a while back of like you when you're just in the army, and you know you look young. You look young, yeah. And so that's also going to throw people for a loop. They're looking at you like, oh, who's this little guy? I'm going to beat his ass. And yeah. he's like, oh no, this guy's been trained to pit. <laughs> you know, you yeah. got another thing coming, boy. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Meanwhile, while all this is going on with this kind of like fight career, which, by the way, is also like a stretch. I mean, I guess you could look at the UFC at the time and be like, oh, yeah, maybe I could do that. But it seems like a stretch, you know. Yeah, you're not going to make money at that time. Um, So you're trying to become a cop, which you're not old enough for. That's right. So therefore, in the meantime, going to become a firefighter. In order to become a firefighter, the 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 first step on this track many times is EMT. Yep, that's right. So you decide you're going to come uh, become an EMT. Yep, at eighteen, I'm going to go to the book. As I step off the truck and my boots hit the ground, I can already taste the dust. Continuing the horror movie motif, the things that immediately catch my eyes are hymnals being gently blown toward me across the ground. I can smell the burning fuel of the vehicle interlaced with the dust. I also smell the burning weeds near the van and the acrid smell of blood, urine, and feces. I now hear the wailing of people in pain seemingly coming from everywhere. I realize quickly several people have been thrown from the vehicle. The wails are not screams. When people are screaming, They have their facilities and are generally aware of the acute pain and injury. Whales are worse. They come from a deeper place inside a person. They happen when one's body is so broken that it cannot muster a scream or even a full breath. 
and those wails and moans flood my senses, freezing me where I stand. Again, I was just 19. I hear Tom finishing up the radio call. Send everyone, he says. The radio operator understands and confirms. Tom places the radio back in its proper place and he hops out of the truck and as he strides past me, he says, pick one. That's something my teenage brain can understand. Well, that's a rough one. There's a basically a church van. Yeah. That crashes and you guys are first on scene. Yep. Driver fell asleep, stumped on stomped on the gas. They think they rolled over at eighty five miles an hour northbound on the one oh one, crossed uh crossed where the center divider doesn't exist, rolled, launching you know, you're in a van, church vans, you're not buckled up. Nobody was buckled up. And all it did was launch bodies across this uh, rural landscape on the side of this hill. And, uh, you know, I, I just turned 19. I'd been uh, with the fire department for five months. I had graduated from EMT school at Cuesta College six months before that. Uh, like, I knew nothing. You know, I knew how to take vitals. I uh, I knew how to like treat bleeding wounds, and I and my only experience in trauma had been you know a couple of people self inflicted you know mental health type things. So this was on a scale of something I'd never seen, and and trauma that I'd never seen before, and uh, it was I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I was a child. Um. 14 people were in the crash and and again you 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 describe everything with some some awesome detail in the book but all but one had critical kind of life-threatening injuries and out of those 14 seven were were actually able to survive uh because the work of you and and the team and you give a lot of credit to the the team um, as you're saying right now, you were young, just kind of following directions, trying to trying to put together what you could. But a guy named Tom Way, Anthony Stornetta, mm-hmm. and Keith Agson, um, yeah. just more experienced guys that could make things happen. And the kind of guys that you looked at and you said to yourself, all right, that's a good role model for me to try and emulate. Yeah, you know, when you've seen this, chaos, screams, fire, blood, pain, there's always somebody that's cool, right? There's somebody that's always just like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And that just, I didn't have that. And I wanted that. And, uh, there's not a, a, there's not a linear path to become that. And, uh, and the frustration of, of standing over a body. And again, in, in this triage sense, the first body I run to, I start working on and Tom way just walks up and he's like, Hey man, go find somebody else. And then I watch Tom not start working on that body. But does this does not compute, right? Then like the neuros in my brain are like, uh, why is he not treating this person that he just told him, oh, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Got it. So I go to the next one. I start working, which is a child. And I start working on the child. And Tom comes over and he's like, hey, go find another one. And like that was just a knife, like this hot searing poker straight through my chest of like, oh my God, this little girl is going to die. And then I see Tom start working on her. I'm like, Okay, she's got a chance, you know. 
but now what do I do? Right? I just picked. I picked O for two. You know, like some, apparently I'm mm-hmm. not picking the right ones. So uh, go off to the next one. Start figuring out. And there's still three of us. There's 15, 14 bodies, and there's three of us on the ground. Um, you know, then then help another tr- another truck rolls up. Then the ambulance rolls up. Now we have what seven people that are there to work. We still have 14 bodies. You're like, we still don't have enough hands. Um, so it's, it is, I mean, it is, I describe it night, nightmarish. Um, and there's no way besides in like a horror film to depict what it feels like to be, to be hearing those sounds, to be smelling all of those smells and to be seeing this just carnage, you know, with the fire truck lights and the dust that's still settling, you know, in the California dry um, environment that we live in. It's, you know, it's wild. Shapes shape somebody though. Yeah, again for me the just you I, even being able to identify. Hey, these guys, Tom Way, the way he was just acting, that's the way I should be acting. That's what I need to figure out. And like you said, it's not going to happen overnight. But at least you have some kind of a goal, and you see a good example. Yeah, there's this dude, Dave Payton. He that another example, big house fire. I'm running off to to go do like fireman things, you know. And Dave like grabs me by the scuff of the neck and's like. That's not going to do anything. Hold on a second. He sets up the truck, gets water pressure, and then he's like, go. You know, they're, they're, they're so cool to have people like that, that that were able to shape young men and be able to, like, you know, save this one, for example. So speaking of firefighting, you end up becoming a firefighter. Yep. Um, and... It's an interesting. <laughs> you can't look at me like you look up a guy. This guy, this guy. I remember guys like this. I yeah. kicked him off team. Oh man, um, you got. Well, what's a bummer for me is like you had a fire chief that wasn't a great guy, and what's a bummer for me is just like any like like what you just said. You get you're a freaking dog, right? You're an attack dog, and with without a good like leader. You're just gonna bite the first <laughs> freaking thing that you see, but when someone's when you've got a, a good guidance and good leadership, you're gonna get pointed in the right direction. You're gonna be awesome, and you know your first fire chief didn't wasn't that kind of guy, and and so you do things that in some respects are awesome and what exactly what you would want for your young firefighters to be like and to think like. They just need a little bit extra guidance. They just need to, oh, yeah, you know what? I got to keep a freaking eye on Kennedy right yeah. now. Let's make sure we got the leash. Hold on, hold on. All right, now go. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what you needed. And, and uh, but you end up getting in trouble for a lot of this shit. Again, some of it's you're doing dumb shit, but you're doing dumb shit because it's not like you were being neglectful. You're actually doing dumb shit that was aggressive and heroic to try and help. Just sometimes you could have needed a little extra guidance. Uh, the guy had a three strike rule. Yeah. <laughs> and you write about the strikes. Push, push, push. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first one, there's like a female cop who's, what, there's like a suicidal guy in an apartment. It's right by your apartment. Yeah. It's a Bordeaux apartment complexes. If you know a Tascadero, sketch. <laughs> sketch. <laughs> and uh, like my, you know, like we have these little pagers and uh, like beep, 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 Tascadero fire. And then you'd get the address and what type of call it was. The address pops on. I was like, Dude, that's like six doors down. I can do this. So I walk out there, and and this young police officer, she's standing out in front of the door. Um, I'm fighting. I'm I've been a professional athlete at this point. You know, I've 
50 something amateur fights. I have a handful of, of pro fights now. And uh, she is dealing with a dude trying to kill himself, and he has like a box cutter, mm-hmm. and he's cutting his wrists. And the the mom had called nine one one, and she's waiting for backup, and she can't go in by herself. And uh, and I look in there, and it is it is just like a child, you know. It's it's a nineteen year old frail, you know, mental health. It, it, it is such a problem right mm-hmm. now. But you very often see not physical specimens right. that are struggling with these problems. So when I peeked my head in there, I was like, all right, this, you know, this is, <laughs> I got this. I got this. <laughs> this is not a problem. Are you going to go in? She's like, yeah, I'm going to go in. I'm like, I'm going to go in with you. And firefighters should not do that. They should wait until it's safe and then they should go in. They're the, they're the second responders, not the first responders. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got in trouble. Mm-hmm. That was strike one. That was strike one. By the way, you went to the fire academy. You're number one graduate of the fire academy. Is yeah. that right? So again, to me, that that reflects someone that when you t- give them the parameters of what they're supposed to do, they're going to knock it out of the park. Yeah, you know, and you just got to make sure those parameters are in place. Test condition standard. Yeah, let's yeah. keep this motherfucker in the Go. box a little bit. Here's our lines. Uh, second one, there's a car crash, and it's in a ravine. And they're waiting to set up the rig to rappel down into the ravine. And you're like, I got this. Creek gang kid. <laughs> you know, it was on the, in between Atascadero and Morro Bay, California. Um, uh, it was at Highway 41. And uh, there's a big, huge drop-off that goes down to the creek. Big, huge. Like, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this is my backyard where mm-hmm. I grew up. So this the a motorcycle... It's such a fun road to ride motorcycles on. I go there all the like. I grew up riding my 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 was a CFR two fifty um, up this road, and so I know exactly what this guy was doing. An oncoming car sees this motorcycle, swerves to avoid it, and goes off into the ravine. Um, they they tumble down the hill. When we get there, they're down at the bottom, and uh, and I the door's kind of like. I can see blood coming out the side of the door and the door's kind of ajar and I see this woman like messing with her leg and the other guys tore up on the other side. So like I go grab a tool and I just walk down the hill, pop the door open and I start treating this girl. It was not, not even an event in my brain. Um, all the while the rest of the team was setting up to do a high angle rescue. <laughs> so I got in trouble for that. Yeah. So you got in trouble cause you didn't follow the protocol or something yeah. like this. Yeah. So this this was strike two. Um, strike three, it sounded like you deserved a little bit. Yeah. Yeah? No? Yeah. 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 I mean, so we're, we're, in a, we're, we're in a studio right now. You know, mm. and fires do weird things. And um, studios make fires do even weirder things. Like, there's nowhere for heat to escape. Mm-hmm. Got a bunch of electrical equipment. Um, and in that fire, there, there was a, a studio in there. And the inversion layer, so like the, the smoke and the heat was so thick that you couldn't see where the fire was. And if you know, you go up inches, you'd start going up hundreds of degrees. You go up feet and you're talking like a thousand degrees in, in difference. And um, and I was trying to find the fire, which is like what a nozzle guy is supposed to do. Uh, I didn't have the experience to understand or realize how dangerous it was. So when like the little particles in the air just started combusting as the temperature of the room started reaching a flashpoint, like an experienced person is gonna be like, Oh, this is about to go down. You know, like instead I'm like, no, no, let's find the fire. Like you're in the fire, bro. Like the fire is above you. You just can't see it. You know, if if you in in the top of your helmet, that popping sound is your helmet melting. You're just too dumb to know it. 
So when the fire, when the room fire finally flashes, like if you've seen the movie Backdraft, mm-hmm. Backdraft, where the room finally just goes, mm-hmm. like that's what happens. I just crank open the nozzle, put it on flood and wide to try to not get us to burn alive in an effort to, um, which was the right thing for us not to die, but also, you know, like a not great thing for a lot of steam. <laughs> Ooh. Steam sucks. Got it. So I burnt me and, and Alan Lanier, the dude behind me on the nozzle, being like, hey, you're being stupid. Yeah. W- were they? Was he trying to pull you back? Yeah, it, it, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think that's what, it's loud, mm-hmm. fire, nozzle, water. Um, and me pulling him forward and, and being that dog, being that bull, you know, mm-hmm. like, no, let's go find the fire, let's find the fire, let's find the fire. I think him being behind me and being that second set of eyes, like that, the, the pulling back was literally him saying, no, 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 like we, we have reached our limited advance, we need to back up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just too dumb and too stubborn. Yeah, it sounded like uh, pretty sketchy. You roll out of there and your helmet's like melted. And your mask is all jacked up. Yeah. So we have these self-contained breathing apparatus and uh, you have a layer of plastic glass, plastic glass. So plastic had melted, glass had shattered, plastic had melted. And I had one layer of glass in front of my face. Um, And the top of my helmet with uh, my firefighter number 42, I still have my firefighter number on my desk, which is like burnt and charred. And I keep it there to remind me (laughs) how dumb I am. That helmet um, had melted. The top of it was like all bubbled and boiled. It's weird. You don't want to see a helmet like that. And that ended up being a strike three. That's right. So you get kicked off the fire department. Yeah. Which, in your mind, um, unstoppable Tim Kennedy's like good because I want to be a cop anyways. Yeah. Right. That was kind of that was kind of what you're doing. Uh, meanwhile, your your fight career is going. Mm-hmm. What year is this now? This is uh, 2000. Um, you lost your first pro fight. Scott Smith. That was mm-hmm. embarrassing. <laughs> and uh, Arrogance. I fought him five weeks before that and like smacked him. Uh-huh. And so I walk into my pro debut. and uh, how, do you, how did you beat him? How did he beat you? Um, he beat me TKO stoppage, mm-hmm. big, huge cut doctors. Like I can see your cheekbone get out. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you beat him? Th- three rounds of domination. Domination. What'd he catch? He just caught you. Yeah. And you just went, you just clear. I uh, mean, he got, he got 15 minutes of, of first person preparation mm-hmm. and I did exactly the same thing that I did in the first round in the first moment of our first fight where I had a big change of level. I was going to push him up against the cage you know, make it dirty for a second. So that change of level, he just blew me open with an uppercut. Jack. Yeah. Like literally the exact same thing that I, I was like, ah, I'm going to do the same thing I did to him last time. And he's like, I'm going to do a different thing. That I did <laughs> last time, And it worked out. How long, how, when did the fight get stopped after the first round or? Oh no, no. Like, like immediately. Yeah. We're two minute, minute and a minute and a half into the first round. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> walking into the pit as a zero one fighter, but walking into Gan and Chuck and Scott and Eric and uh, John Hackleman, and I already felt like I didn't belong. And now I'm walking as an zero and one pro. Loser, loser. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? What did you do? It's like it's so crazy to think you know. Even walking into that place, you're by no means yeah. Like you're just walking in that place and training. You're sparring with Chuck Liddell. Like you're a bad, you're a badass. And yet you get 
<laughs> beat, you feel like a loser. A loser. Uh, you, but you are moving up, like moving up the respect ranks at the pit, and you're you end up going to some of Chuck's one of Chuck's fights, championship fight um, against Bustamante. I was chuckling this whole time, you know, anyone, I don't know what it's like, maybe it's gotten better, but back in the day, if you were like a teammate, <laughs> you were like gonna pay your own way to get up there, yeah. you're gonna st- sleep with six other guys yeah. in some, you know, in the same room, you weren't gonna get fed anything, you're cutting weight with your with your fighter, it just like sucked. Sleeping on the hotel room floor, getting beat up, by the way, you can't win any of your sparring, you're just getting no. beat up, you're just getting punched in the head. You're just a bag of blood yeah. for this dude to punch. <laughs> There's no, there's like no glory in being a second or a third or a fourth, which is basically what it seemed like you were oh, at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. They're like, body, get in here. Yeah. When Eric or Gan or, or, you know, Scott were tired or bored, they're just throwing me. So I don't even, I don't even think I was like fourth string. Like, <laughs> I was not even acknowledged in, at being present. Did you get a ticket to the fight? Because that was another thing. There was no guarantee you were getting to the fight. No, I didn't get a ticket to like the first three fights I was at. When I finally got to, I think Vito Belfort was the first fight that I physically got to be in the arena for. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. Yeah, like, we used to run every kind of scam to get into those fights. We, I, w- I would go, I would get in every single time, a hundred percent of the time. And we were running all kinds of, you know, tactical operations. Yeah. Get, and I'd have the best seats. I got the sickest seats. Dude, I'd seen, so, I've seen so many UFCs from like row three that I had no tickets to. We'd, we, we did all kinds of tactical maneuvers to get into those fights because, because that's the crazy thing, right? Yeah. You'd go up there, you'd be cornering someone. I would literally be cornering someone and not have a ticket to the fight. Yep. But I mean, come on, I'm already back there, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Just let me in. Like, when the security would walk up and there'd be like nine of us in front of four seats. You know, they're like, do you guys have tickets? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, this is our ticket. And they're like, that, well, that was his ticket. And I was like, no, 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 this is my ticket. Yeah. Well, where's his ticket? I'm like, I don't I, know. Right I'm going to get a beer. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, you end up becoming the extreme challenge champion. And in this, are you starting to think maybe this is a thing? Like when you when you go up with Chuck, are you starting to no? Still don't think it's no. a thing. Still don't think it's like an actual. I still like fighting. In, right. In that that tournament, that eight man tournament, that was the who's who of middleweights at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, Jason Mayhem Miller, Dennis King, Ryan Norte, me. Um, like for early two thousands, when you, when you put like these are the eight best dudes yeah, those, on the planet. Those, those that's that's money right there. And uh, that's a tough freaking tournament. Yeah. And I think I, I think I won enough to pay for a computer for my next semester in school. You know, they're like, there's no money. Chuck paid for my pizza kitchen post fight meal. Chuck paid for my YMCA um, to go in to cut weight in the sauna. It was the only sauna we could find in Salt Lake City. Like Chuck out of pocket. Like I, there was no money. Mm-hmm. And I'm like the ECC champion. Yep. So yep. Those are the good old days right yeah. there. No, no one was fighting for the money back no, then. We just fought to fought. All. I just wanted to fight. Uh, you fight and win in the WEC as well. Mm-hmm. Was that any better? Was there any anything at the WEC? I got a hundred bucks to show and a hundred bucks to win. God, to fight a, a, as a heavyweight. Yeah. God, you fought as a heavyweight. I was one hundred ninety-four pounds, and I fought as a heavyweight. <laughs> You kind of get you, you. This is kind of you're getting like a minor level of fame though at this point. Mm-hmm. Would you say? Yeah, like the the MMA weeklies are starting to write. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, up and comer. Mm-hmm. You know, on the top ten top ten rankings, I'm like uh, mentionable. No, mentioned. 
like mm-hmm. notably mentioned type categories. Uh, so who is this guy type questions, but uh-huh. And the, the WEC was nothing to sneeze at back in the day. You know, like I remember it was like kind of on the same level. Like yeah. UFC was obviously the bigger promotion, but, you know, some incredible fighters came out of the oh, WEC. No, sure. I mean, it, just, it was a great, great place to be at that stage. Yeah, WEC was to- totally legit. Yeah. Um, you got you, – you, you, are you getting wrapped into the whole fighter kind yeah. of thing right now? Yeah, I'm, the, I'm starting the, to live the women, life. The yeah. booze, the everything else. Yeah, not, not the booze as much, mm-hmm. but the women, the traveling, the fighting – um, I mean, it is a, it was a, it's a real unhealthy mm-hmm. lifestyle when you're like committed to it. Um, you know, you'd, you'd wake up, you'd fight. Uh, no, you'd wake up, you'd rinse off whatever debauchery is on you. <laughs> and so you don't carry those diseases into the gym <laughs> and then you'd go and train. And then um, you'd try and do some form of recovery and get some type of food and then debauchery training again and then debauchery. Mm-hmm. Like that's about your day. So that's so you, so you were rolling. Rolling, rolling in that. Rolling deep. And that, what a weird, it was a weird time too because it was like the fighters weren't really getting paid much money, but you kind of had recognition. And like people that were kind of fanboys, like club owners would be all hyped to bring everyone in and set up tables and whatever. You'd get like bottle service because you were the fighter and the guys, the the (laughs) bars wanted you in there because it made them seem more famous because they had like the tough guys in their gyms or in their bars Uh, but we still didn't have enough money to even buy the bottles it's like it is this bottle are we gonna have to pay for this like we didn't know how it's always working out um yeah it was a really and like the ring girls they weren't like real ring girls they're just kind of like local girls that were getting paid uh it was a wild wild circus yeah yeah. it was a wild wild interesting times for sure (laughs) i you know Oh. I like it. you just talked about bottle. Like I remember being at, at like things at at like post fight parties and stuff like this. And there's like bottle service and people are ordering bottles and I'm like I have I'm in the navy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm in the navy. I got three two or three kids, bro. I'm not paying for shit. No. Like you can fucking get out of here, bro. I'm not paying for a four hundred dollar bottle of some shit. I don't even know what it is. It's not happening. And I'd just be like, you know, fine, I'll drink some of this, but like I'm, you're getting no money yeah. from me. And of course, like whoever whatever fire I'm with is like I, I'm not paying for anything either. So we don't know who's paying for this stuff, but somebody's getting stuck with this yeah. bill and it ain't gonna be us. Nope. <laughs> Those are some. Those are some wild times. It's hard. For sure. There's no way with people that are looking at you know the, even after Pride, like UFC proper now, where they you know they see guys in suits mm-hmm. and doing proper weigh-ins and athletic commissions and you know US the anti-doping coming in. <sighs> when we're talking back then, I mean the wild west. Oh yeah, of everything like warm-up rooms that were. There's literally like, like I remember being intense. There's t- the ground is just tar. It's yeah. just a it's a parking lot. Yep. It's like oh we're gonna you yeah you guys can warm up right over there. It's tar. It's a fucking parking lot. You're like what? Okay, Race, <laughs> races to the banks afterwards to try to cash your check because only the first five checks were clear. Yay. There was probably I would say a dozen fights that we had to fight our way out of. Like out of the audience, like if if you beat a local, you would have to fight your way out of it and and try to not get stabbed. And if you, heaven forbid, you fought an Indian on an Indian reservation and you beat that Indian, <laughs> like you, dude, it is, it's on. It is. Every dude's eyes are open. You know, Chuck's leading the way. Gans dropping elbows as we're busting through, and we're just trying not to get stuck. Like this is that era oh, of MMA. Uh, meanwhile, um, 
all that's going on, you're trying to become a police officer. Yep. Right. Yep. That's your that's your goal, which is a smart goal because you realize you know there's no money in fighting. Um, you go to the academy. You're the honor graduate of the academy. No, runner up. Oh, you were runner up. Uh huh. Oh, did I read that wrong? Yeah. So I have highest GPA. Mm-hmm. I have highest score, um, like highest physical score. I have like highest everything. I get in a fight with one of the instructors over report writing, and oh, that's right. I. Yeah tell him how he should do report writing and like this is a better way with more with a with a clear narrative and he didn't say wow cadet <laughs> thank you so much for your input that's incredible no, you know he did not say that no and i stuck to my guns i was like no this is yeah, a better of course this is a better bro way. you're right i am right how could he know so he he failed me and you can't be honor graduate with a failure oh, that's right that's so then i retake the test and i do it exactly how he wants and i get my passing grade of 71% or 70%. And uh, even though like my first one was perfect mm-hmm. and it should have been 100%. Mm-hmm. So you cannot graduate if you fail a test. You can't be honor yeah, graduate be honor as graduate. a failure. Yep. So I have my a- asterisk and I'm number two. Mm-hmm. Number one, but number two gets yep. honor graduate. Yep. Um, and you had a good story in there about you know, the combatives course that yeah. they taught you were once again, they're looking at like, oh, who's this little uh, youngster that's in here? Oh, you think you're tough? Oh, watch this. And you're like, no, watch this. Ju- ju- tell me if I'm wrong. Jiu-jitsu is a superpower. A jiu-jitsu is a superpower. It's a superpower. Yep. And uh, when if I'm in a room with a bunch of cadets and I say, you cannot put cuffs on me unless I let you put cuffs on me. And they go like, there's 40 of us. Like, I don't care. That is how powerful jiu-jitsu is when you empower somebody with that type of skill and knowledge if i can take my hands and put my hands on a grown person and they can do anything that i want them to like that's the power of jujitsu uh and they did not have that power but they needed to know it so again here's so stupid tim i'm like okay well i will teach you guys then this this is how better you know so arrogant so pathetic but you guys can't do nothing to me that's what it was Uh, it's true though, man. It's yeah. hard. It's hard when you, when you, when, when someone knows how to fight, it is really hard to get control of them. Yeah. It is really hard to get control of them. And especially if the other people don't really know how to fight, you know, if they learned whatever, uh, four step procedure for getting control, you know, it's like, no, that procedure is not going to work for a millisecond against me. No, go away. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I beg and I plead law enforcement to go and do jujitsu. Yeah. You know, if if there were ten, if there are ten police officers that are police academy trained. They do their cuffing, their defensive tactics, and they say, "Jocko, you're under arrest. I'm going to put cuffs on you." Zero chance. Yeah, it's all not ten grown adults trying to cuff you. Zero chance. Yep. You know, but then you take one that trains. Yep. Totally different. Totally story. different story. Yep. And, and it's gotten really bad now, not to derail this conversation, but I was just talking to a couple of police officers and I won't mention the state where they are. If they put a chokehold on someone, if they put a rear naked choke on someone, it's lethal force. Um, they, they, I'm trying to think of the steps. It's like a full, it's a full on like felony first degree murder. If, if the person dies, yeah. It's but e- but even if the person does it, if you just do it, it's like a it's like a, a assault with a deadly weapon or something like this, and it's so hard to explain to people. I don't know. I don't know what you think, but 
if I had to subdue someone that I cared about, the, the number one thing I would do is put a rear naked choke on. Best choke in the world. It's so the, safe. It's the gentlest, nicest way to get someone under control. Yep. And it's so effective. And there's nothing, you know, like, it, it leaves no marks. Like, no. I, you know, I, you could choke me right now and I'd wake up and be like, oh, dude, you know, you could have cuffs on me. And I'd be like, oh, what, what just happened? Yeah. And I'd be totally fine. Yep. You could uncuff me and I could go and freaking teach a class in whatever and carry on with my day. As opposed to you hitting me in the in the head nineteen times with a baton to get to subdue me, where pepper spray yeah, or tasing you, else. no, all those things are so hard, and we like people just have no understanding of the power of jujitsu and the power of the rear naked choke. It's 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 so sad, and so many more people are going to get hurt because of it. Yeah. And all it takes is if you're in law enforcement or if you're in charge of law enforcement, m- mandate everyone should be trained in jujitsu. Yeah. You should Amen. be training jiu-jitsu all the time. Um, my, I've been saying 20% of what police do, 20% of the time should be training. Yeah. It not only shapes the body, but also shapes the mind. 100%. It does such a beautiful thing to ego. It, it tears things back, and it makes you human. Um, and when you're in a position of power like that, you have to have your ego checked. And the best way to do it is to put you on a mat and have you lose. Mm-hmm. Um, back to those people that have never been hit in the face, the city councils that – enact those type of policies for their cities. Those are the people that have never been in a fight mm-hmm. that have never gone on a ride along that have never been punched in the face, but they're like, do it. This police officer can't do, do a chokehold. You don't know anything about anything. Yep. And, and you're the one that's mandating and your ignorance is causing more damage to your community because you don't understand. Yep. You don't understand violence because you've never been in it. But like as men that are pretty intimately familiar with violence, listen to me, city council people. Go get punched in the face and learn how important it is to know how to effectively do violence. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. Go get go get hit in the face with a baton three times and see how you feel the next day. And then let me put a rear naked choke on you and yeah. see how you feel the next day. And by the way, the, the rear naked choke will make you want to just kind of comply. And if you don't, you're just going to wake up in handcuffs yep. in the back of a car. So easy. Yeah, so so good. And um, yeah, so you, so you end up uh, hooking these people up. During that, and they have to take how many guys did it finally take to get cuffs on you? I didn't know. This no, didn't happen. Never happened. <laughs> I mean, but at the, by the end of it, I mean, we're probably thirty minutes later. From wrist to elbow, there's cuffs hanging off me, and I'm there's like I'm bleeding yeah. from you know because like they're snapping them on. Yeah. I'm bruised at my radius and old and it's like bone bruised, and uh, there's blood like dripping off of my arms, and I look like a like a, an animal, a pit bull that's been tased a bunch of times. It's in the corner, and I was like. Who's coming yeah. at me next? And you know what sucks is uh, a lot of times people would just think, oh, he's just a really good athlete or something like this. And that was one of my problems. Like, I'm the worst person to introduce jujitsu to someone, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they're like, well, of course you freaking beat me. You're freaking 225 pounds. And yeah. It's like the best people to introduce is like Jeff Glover, mm-hmm. who's 150 pounds. He's like n- not intimidating to look at. And he's got a big smile on his face, and he just breaks it off on people. Yeah. That's who should introduce people to jiu-jitsu. I'm no, you're no good either. No. Like you're not a great like introduction <laughs> to jiu-jitsu because people are like, oh, what just happened? But that guy's an asshole. Yeah. You know, that's what they say about me. Like, yo, we get done rolling. You're really strong. Like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. That's that's it. I work on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I left my little liquors. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's not great to have people that are big introduce jujitsu, but also it's strange that even in a situation like that, like if I was the overall trainer, I'd be like, hold, hold on a second, what what just happened? Yeah, 
nine of my cops couldn't get this guy under control, there's something wrong. We need so to figure the, something out. So the defensive tactics instructor for the academy was an, a jujitsu guy. And I think he wanted, I think he let it go. Oh, got it. I think he did. He was let. Looking back, I was like, oh, he knew what was happening. He knew what was going to happen. He wanted them to know. That's awesome. But at my expense, you know, I lost rapport with my classmates. Mm -hmm. I looked like a total asshole. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a feral animal in the corner. Uh, (laughs) Like for like a a while, people wouldn't even look at me. But I think he knew exactly what he was doing. So I'm tipping my hat to that clever little shit. Um, you graduate, which mm-hmm. is cool. Um, at this point, you you had had a girl. You have a girlfriend. Yep. Named Casey. Yeah, she's great. And you find out that she's pregnant mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and at some point, you had had a one night stand with another girl. Yep. And she's pregnant. Yep. And at some point. You had a one night stand with another girl. Yep. And she tracks you down, and she's like a ring girl from the UFC or from one of these WC. fights. One of these yep. fights you've been in. She's a ring girl, and she shows up at the pit where you're training. Not to tell you that she's pregnant, which. I would have taken that. <laughs> uh, yeah, she tells you that she has HIV. Yeah. And then finally, um, you're like trying to blow off some steam, and mm-hmm. you go to play paintball with your with your with some friends with your brother, and and like some people huck rocks at you. Yep. And you, and by the way, you're you're a police. Where are you, a cop, right now at this point? Uh, I'm t- applying to everywhere. Okay. So I was like testing for Santa Barbara, Stockton, Sacramento. So you're about to get hired somewhere. Yep. I'm in background which is kind of like the last step to get hired by these departments. Well, speaking of background, what you decide to do is these guys huck rocks at you and you assault the vehicle. Yeah. (laughs) Which, which I can imagine these guys, that's always, it's always a a funny look on people's face when they realize that they did something that they shouldn't have done. And Tim Kennedy moves 200 yards in (laughs) 3.8 seconds with a fully loaded paintball gun. Sticks it into their car and unloads as many rounds as you can. That's right. Which is kind of funny and we can laugh at it now, but sounds like there was some politics uh, in your town. Yeah. And small town stuff with, you know, a famous police officer father with, uh, you know, a brother that is working for a different apartment or a department who's who's physically at lots of just kind of small town uh, egos fall into here. And uh, I get screwed and and you get the the basically you're not going to be a cop that's right that's not happening um the whole background now you're getting charged with some kind of thing and they're making it look like you're crazy yeah so you're racking them up yeah Um, great decisions just lining them up and knocking them down i'm gonna go to the book here i'm standing naked at the end of at the edge of the ocean halfway through my 23rd year the cold surf washes over my feet and the wind spreads goose fish across my skin goose flesh across my skin the sun will be up soon but for now i remain wrapped in darkness 
It's nice to bask in the stillness of this moment. The only sounds are the waves lapping against the shore. There is something cathartic about being alone on the beach I grew up on and stripping my clothes off and letting them hit the sand. I feel incredibly free for the first time in ages. Normally, I'd worry about my wallet and keys getting stolen, but I do not care at all. What difference does it make? I wade into Morro Bay just north of the rock, ignoring my brain's warnings that it's too cold and too dark. There's a wall of fog closing in that will soon make it hard to see my way through the black water. I don't worry about that either. As I wade deeper, my legs start to burn from the cold water. I pay pay no attention, though. Even as it covers my legs, then waist, then chest, I barely acknowledge the surf's effects. I don't want to acknowledge it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about anything. When the waves start picking me up off the sandy ocean floor, I begin to swim west. I have failed everyone I know, and there's no way to fix it. What the fuck is wrong with me? How the fuck, how did I fuck up everything this quickly? I'm a strong swimmer, and in no time, the shore is a distant memory. It's so peaceful out here. My breath mists a little in the waning moonlight, But other than my own breathing and the sound of my hands and legs cutting through the surf, there is nothing. I didn't plan on going for a long swim to nowhere in the pre-dawn blackness, but I needed to forget all of it. My actions, the hurt that they caused, and the disappointment they manifested in everyone around me. I can't hold on to this pain anymore. I'm just not strong enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I kind of breezed through like, oh, you had this girl pregnant and you had this girl pregnant and then you 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 had this possible HIV, you can't get the job you want to get. Like this is you're 23 years old. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people that are 16 or 17 or 15 years old and they broke up with their girlfriend or they made this mistake and 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 I I always say, "Listen, it seems like your whole world right now, but there's so much more to life, you know, there's so much to carry on. There'll be other girls, there'll be other opportunities, it's okay. But damn. Yeah, that's a lot. Like that's a lot of shit. A lot of shit going on, man. Yeah. And you know, a, a, an order out of there. My grandpa, who was like the patriarch of our family, you know, the greatest generation, World War Two, he's dying dying of emphysema. You know, every breath he takes is is slightly less than the prior breath. You know, just He's just fighting, so he's just becoming a shell of a man. And uh, he he would be the person that I would go to to go go to the beach house in Cambria, you know, like listen to the waves crash and just dump on him. And and you know he had the grandpa wisdom. Mm-hmm. He's dead. He's dying. Um, riding the motorcycle, I already crashed that. You know, like that thing's gone. So my other cathartic release is gone. Um, you know, like I was too embarrassed to be back in walking into the pit. You know, walking and be like, hey, I think I. I can't train right now because I don't know if I have AIDS. Um, so uh, I was just in Morro Bay and I walked to the Coast Guard station and I knocked on the door. And the door flew open and they all knew who I was. Explain that. So I didn't, I'm not going to read that part of the story, but you swim out to sea. And you know, it's weird. It sounds like it sounds like you weren't intent on killing yourself, but doesn't sound like you were all that intent on living either. I don't know. What's what's the 
There's definitely, I think, a wish for like a baptism. And this is a a really unique thing is you and I are dealing with lots of mental health and and suicide within the military and and, and addressing it. And how how do we, there is not like this linear line of where's depression, where's suicide, where's mental health. You know, what you have here is, you know, an early 20 year old boy who has made a bunch of bad decisions and he feels hopeless. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go next. Um, and I'm doing something that is very, very dumb and dangerous and could be the end of my life. Um, but I didn't have an intent like that I'm not trying to kill myself. You know, like there's, there's no cognitive, there's way more efficient ways than mm-hmm. swimming out into the ocean. Um, I definitely kept swimming and that this is, that's a big takeaway that is, you know, not at the end of the book. There's not that adage that's hell. Here's what you should take away from this is I kept swimming. You know, I was fro- my balls were essentially up inside of my body as I was fr- frozen to death. And I, it still doesn't make sense. The Coast Guard said that somebody called. Um, this is pre-dawn. This is pre-cell phone. Um, there's no way that any of the houses along Morrow Bay on the north side of the breakers, on the north side of the rock, could have seen me. And there's nobody in the parking lot when I got in the water. So I'm not saying there's like a divine intervention, but doesn't make any sense how somebody called the coast guard station said they saw a young man take his clothes off and swim into the ocean you know as a I, my, my open water swim time i get 28 30 minute mile so an hour into this from the time the coast guard said they got the call to the time that they found me i've been swimming for just over an hour so i'm two miles out into the fog two miles out past past the rock and um a really cool Thing I discovered when I went to the Coast Guard station and they throw the door door open and like we're listening to Joe Rogan's podcast listening to about this right here <laughs> they have a logbook and one of the most darkest hardest moments in my life I'm a single log tag in a date time group like time date captain boat remarks that's it that's it mm-hmm. what could have been me dying what what became like a moment where I start to make start to make right decisions is a single line written in pencil in a logbook in the Coast Guard shop. Hmm. It's wild. <laughs> um, um, down to that. Mm-hmm. It's cool. And that that could have been it too. Yeah, that last remark line, you know, pulled an idiot out of the water mm-hmm. was pulled a dead body out of the water. Yep. That's it. The only difference. And, you know, uh, look, divine intervention or whatever, you, you ever tried to recover a single swimmer at sea on a foggy night two miles out in the ocean? Crazy. That is not, like, you plan to do that? You got an IR strobe? You have to go white strobe? You have to freaking swing your chem light above your head? Like, it's hard. To, if they had thermal? They didn't. I mean, it was just, if they didn't have thermal, that's a miracle, yeah. honestly, quite honestly. And and if you told me, if, if I got a call that, hey, some idiot, got naked and started swimming out to sea, I'd be looking 300 yards out. Yeah. Maybe maybe 500 yards out, maybe 1,000 at the most. There's no way someone's going to be too much. Like, that's crazy that they yeah. found you. D- dense fog. Dense fog, so dense. On uh, the south side of the rock where the breakers are in the entrance to Morrow Bay, there's a foghorn. I couldn't hear the foghorn. And you can hear that for miles. The, the fog is so dense, and it was, it was padding sound. I couldn't hear the waves. Um, you know, it does really weird things to light. There is barely any light at this point. 
no starlight, no moonlight. I'm just, I've just been swimming for an hour. And when this boat rolls up, I think I'm losing my sanity because I, I hear like, they just have an idol and it's cruising. And the captain has his feet hanging over the front of the boat. And he's just like sitting there with his feet. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm swimming. <laughs> he sounds like the coolest dude ever. So cool. <laughs> he's like making fun of you, right? Yeah. What are you doing? I'm swimming. No shit. <laughs> you know? Like even now, even 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 currently, you're like this. You know, like that was the first indication to him that he was going to take a different approach, I think. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, so what's going on? And I, I give him a summary of what's happening. And he's just like, yeah, I was, I was thinking about pulling you out of the water, but maybe just stay in the drink. He says this to me. And I was like, yeah, man, it's cold. It's cold. He's like, I see that. <laughs> he just makes fun of me. And then he doesn't help me. He throws a cargo net down the side of that ship. And he makes me clamber up the side of that boat with my, I mean, I couldn't use my fingers. I couldn't feel anything. You know, an hour and 50, 52, yeah. 53 degree water. Um, also, like, I had to have kept swimming pretty actively to not be hypothermic. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a minute, you know, of kind of like active use, 10 minutes of use of your fingers, digits, and then an hour is kind of the threshold where you start losing control of your body. And, uh, and I was at that threshold. And he throws a, a cargo net over the side of the boat, climb up. You know, I'm not helping you. You you did this. You get out. Show me. Show me. He didn't say anything besides there's not going to be somebody to do this again. That's all he said. 20-minute boat ride back in. I had to go back all the way around the rock, come back into the bay, and then go to the Coast Guard station, dock. Not a word. Just sat there. And then what'd they do with you? Nothing. He asked if I was good. I had to walk from the Coast Guard station back to my car at the rock. It's about a mile. Did you feel, what you, What were you thinking? Every step, I was trying to. Did he give you clothes? <laughs> I had a blanket. Check. I had a wool. Oh, yeah, that's right. You say one of those old Navy wool blankets. Yeah, it's like green. Yeah. And yeah. it is, I mean, it's sandpaper. Yeah. Is that what, is that what yeah. all they, do like, they not have real blankets no, in the Navy? Like, well, I don't know what they have now, but for 100%, when I went to boot camp, like you're sleeping with one of those things, and then like the standard issue blanket, if you were somewhere, was that stupid green wool itchy blanket. It is terrible. Yeah. And to frozen skin, it feels like hot needles. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. And I, and I walked all that mile back to the coast to get my car. It seems weird that this guy wouldn't have been like, hey, this kid needs some help, like some some mental health assistance here. I um I don't remember what I said, but it was definitely gratitude and it was gratitude that I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And um I if if I was looking for a baptism, however you emerge from the water emotionally and physically post baptism, I think there's this transformation where all right, I definitely did not start doing it right, but I was done doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And um I don't know if it was discernment, maybe it was it was naive on his part. Uh mm-hmm. from that moment, I mean you you would have to have strapped me down like when I went to selection they would have had to have found me in my sleep and executed me in, in my sleep for me to quit. Mm-hmm. Like th- this was the beginning of that mentality where there's nothing that you're going to do to stop me. What was your family's reaction to the two girls? It's like when you write about it in the book, your dad finds out 
he's like, well, I, you know, I heard you got a girl pregnant. He's like, and you say, yeah. And he's like, no, oh, this other girl. <laughs> You're like, I was too much of a coward to tell him. God. So they find out from my pastor because the the other woman calls my church to try and find, because she's trying to get resources. You know, like, how, how am I going to pay for, you know, birthing this man's child? And uh, so she's calling the church being like, can I can I get help? And the pastor's like, wait a second, who are you? That's not the name I know. So when he calls my dad, my dad's like, what what's going on? And I was just too pathetic of a coward to to have the balls just to tell my family, hey, here's here's decisions that I'm struggling through right now. The reason I have to go to San Luis Obispo every single month is to get an HIV test, and the reason that I'm you know I don't have any money for anything is because I'm paying two separate women uh, as we're preparing. It's expensive <laughs> to have a child, you know, definitely prepare for having a child. Don't do it on plan. And the children, the kids end up being born nine days apart. Is that right? Uh, two weeks, two weeks apart. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, uh, definitely blessed to be here. Freaking awesome. Yeah. Man. Uh, you had after you already mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but after September 11th, you had gone down to the recruiting station and like put me in coach you tried you tried the navy so you were you thinking seal team for sure and and it was closed (laughs) no no recruiter uh so the next one was the marine corps how'd you decide between the marine corps and the army uh the 18 x-ray program was the the marines didn't have a direct route to Go. There was no MARSOC at the time, so they didn't have a clear, defined pathway right. to go to recon. Right. You can go in as a rifleman. From rifleman, you can um, go and try out within, you know, your own unit. Yep. And then if you get selected, you so like that was going to be a very undefined process. Mm-hmm. When I went to the Army recruiter, they said, "All right, well, here's this new program to make it to special operations. Um, you go through infantry school, you go to airborne school, you go to this a tritter called SOPC. You get through SOPC, then you can go to selection." And uh, if you get selected, then you go to the Q course. If you finish the Q course, then you get to go to special forces. It's like as clean of a track as you could possibly. Yeah, he laid it out for me. Mm -hmm. But they didn't call you. So you you did that after September 11th, but there was no room. No. Right. And so you're just you're carrying on with your life. All this other shit happens. Yep. And then by the grace of God, like a week after the swimming incident, the naked swimming yeah. incident. My phone rings. Yeah, your phone rings and they say, hey, we got a slot for you. Yep. In in the army. Yep. In 18 I think his name was Vought, recruiter Vought or Vautner or something like that. It's like, we got, we your ASVAP score is good. DLAP score is good. We can send you to MAPS in, in two weeks to in process as a, an 11 Bravo to become an 18 X-ray. So you're, this is like a no brainer at this point. This is like, no, there's no choice. There's not, you're, you've, you signed that line as soon as that yep. paper was in front of you. That's right. Uh, and then how long was it before, how long was it between that call? Was it two weeks before you left? Oh, it's fast. You were out of there? Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. There was, um, from the time, from 9 11 to the call was like 10 months. And then, um, they didn't do a delayed entry. I, I finished my undergrad, was in grad school. So they're, we're trying to finish school, but ultimately once I got my ship date, I just left. Mm-hmm. I thought it was better to just go. Just go. Yeah. <sighs> Boot camp. Fun. 
You had fun at boot camp. I did. Because <laughs> now, how old are you now? 23? Yep. 23 years old? Um, no factor. Spe- then then you, you get this bonus program of the special operations prep course. And part of it is is this this whole idea of this 18 x-ray program means that you can do this really kind of short path to get to special forces, which some people in special forces think that's like not right, not, yeah. not the right way to do it and you don't deserve to be here and you need to pay your dues like I paid. Which, They're not wrong. Well, I, the only thing I'll say about that is in talking to a lot of the SOG guys from Vietnam that, that went and were in SOG where they had more than 100% casualty rate, yeah. A lot of those guys, they took them right off the streets and sent them to special forces. Yep. And and I've had those guys tell me like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and they were bad at they were as badass as any humans that have ever walked the planet. The guys yeah. that were in Sog and Vietnam. That was the last time that they did the eighteen yep. X ray program. That's, why they, that's when they did from it from there. Yep. And that they rinse and repeat. They're like, we need dudes. We needed dudes then. This is what we did then. Let's just give it a try now. Mm-hmm. So. so you're so you go to this special operations press. Prep course, what you call it, SOPC? Yeah. So you're in SOPC, and it's just basically a boot beat down. Yeah, it's just in Tritter. Uh, PT twice a day, land nav twice a week, ruck run, ruck run, ruck run. Um, and it's weird. I don't know if I grasp this. So you're there. Yep. You're living in a barracks. Whatever. There's how many people are there with you? Uh, over the course, so the can- a couple of green Bur- or a couple of kids died in selection the fall the pr- the prior summer. So they cancel selections How'd from they die? Uh, heat exhaustion okay. and exposure. So from May until August, they cancel selections at in North Carolina. So the course that you're all trying to get into is canceled. We have to wait three months for the first one to happen in August. So you're in this special operations prep course. Yep. Which is supposed to be a six-week course. It ends up being a a three-and-a-half-month course. (laughs) And that's what – so I was tracking this. And people just keep showing up. That's right. To get ready to go to the – To to go to selection. course and selection. But they're they're just quitting. It's a revolving door. Of quitters. Of buses arriving every weekend from basic training. So you go to basic training. You go to infantry school. You go to airborne school. And then the guys that make it from there hop on a bus and go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They show up at Sopsy Barracks, and you f- you show up to your morning formation, and then you go off and you get your dick pushed in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. And from May until August, every bus that came in was a new load of people for them to get rid of. Mm-hmm. So I think over the course, you know, we're somewhere between five to six hundred studs show up during those three to four months. And how many of them went to selection? Ninety one. Check. And you were just there the whole time. The whole just time. We got there. Beat. We got there in May. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, the ninety-one dudes that went, eighty-eight of us got selected. Yeah, that's what. That's what you go on to say. Yeah. So typically, you get eight out of a hundred at a selection. So if, if I have four hundred people there, you know we're gonna have what, eight, sixteen, twenty-four, thirty-two guys that get selected. And um, so we got we batted eighty-eight out of ninety-one. There's no way that you could get rid of us. Yeah. Because you've been we're just, done. just getting crushed. Yep. For well, every months. event that happens in selection, they had tested us on every month during the three months. So when my 12 miles, I knew what my, I knew exactly my pace counts, my times, my five mile times, like bring it, bro. There's not nothing. Kill me in my sleep. That's the only way. And how long is selection itself? A month. 
and that's just, 27 days. That's more of it was basically the same as Sox Sop C, but it was counting now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's it. So when we get there, it was selection was easy for us because they 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 had to stick to the the clear. You have to test guys in vacuums to be able to compare, make sure that you're giving the fair test measurement to these guys going through. So um, when we didn't have to go into the gig pit in between events, we got to sleep in between events. This was new to us. <laughs> I was like, what is this? And we had been cheating for the past four months. You know, we, we had figured out, we had reorganized ourselves into alphabetic um, uh barracks Mm -hmm. so and we would line up alphabetically um so we knew kind of the fire order of how people were going to be called we had figured out a rotation of when guys are going to be running to the board so we'd only have two people up instead of you know the prescribed number that they would acquire so when somebody would come in somebody would alert us we'd all wake up we'd be sitting there we're just cheating Mm -hmm. and uh, we cheated our way through everything going forward (laughs) cheated 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 (laughs) Uh, then what what sucks is though you get done with you get done with uh, selection and then you get sent back to Sopsy again for more time in purgatory. Yep. Well, it's a it's a new Sopsy. This one's called Sopsy Two. So the next Detroiter where they lost all of us, and this is what I say us the eighteen X rays. Most special forces guys going through post selection. The the next phase to go to is small unit tactics phase two. And most infantrymen, you got 7-8, you know, you've been spending time in the 82nd or you're coming from Ranger Regiment, you know how to you know how to do army things. We don't know how to do army things. So when we get done with selection, they put us into a pre-small unit tactics training course. Um, it ends up not being a high intruder. We only lose maybe 10% of the guys that are there. And um, they are legitimately teaching us react to contact how to do an ambush, how, like basic 7-8 infantryman mm-hmm. stuff um, for when we get to small unit tactics because small unit tactics isn't a tritter. Mm-hmm. They lose lots of guys there. Um, so you actually got extra preparation yeah. to get ready for, yep. for small unit tactics school. Yeah. So you guys must have done really well in that as well. Yeah, we were we were starving to get into the Q course proper, and phase two is the first post selection. That is the first moment where like you are in the Q course. You are now in the pipeline to become a Green Beret. And then what's next? So what came after that? So then you learn your you get up to this point. You are an eighteen X ray. You have a not defined MOS. So then you get your you get to go to your MOS school. You have a Bravo, Charlie, Delta, or Echo. I got Bravo, which was a weapon sergeant. Check. And then you got the, so I went to my three-month MOS training, which is phase three. And did I read this right? You're, the weapons, the 18 Bravos, the the highest attrition rate of That's all? Right. How come? Um, or dumb. <laughs> First, uh, it, it is, it is, um, we are not just in, it's it's not just weapons like they're called weapon sergeants mm-hmm. but we're tested on base security um, we're we're test we're responsible for um, all of the elements of the ODA's kind of preparedness for running ranges and deployments and um, if we're going to be going traveling overseas the Bravo is the guy that's going to have the force response plan the emergency action plan the evacuation plan 
um, in addition to you know knowing how to run a mortar, how to set up uh, you know close air support. That is all Bravo stuff. Are you guys like you guys do the close air support on the radio too? Mm-hmm. No yep. kidding. On regular ODAs, it's typically the Bravo or the Echo that goes to those courses. Check. Uh, so you go to that school. Mm-hmm. You're the honor graduate of that school. Yep. Yeah, that's fun. What were you? What were you? What did you excel at in the school? I loved guns. Um, I was I as an armor now, and I own a weapons manufacturing company. I've always just loved the like watches and um, firearms. I, I love the, the the mechanics of how things work, and um, I. And one of the funnest things about the 18 Bravo course is you'll get this like bucket of parts and there'll be an Uzi, there'll be, a, you know, parts to a Gustav that you don't get to build because the rest of the Gustav's not there. You know, you're going to have an FNFL, you know, you're going to have an AR and you get and like, go, time starts now, assemble. And you're like, well, uh, I don't have the tube, so I don't need this. And then you just start putting things together. Like, this is the block from the Uzi. Cool. Here's the trigger assembly to the Uzi. All right, here's, here's the trigger, to, you know, and just... Mm-hmm. And it was like, and my brain just loved it. I just loved it. <laughs> uh, all right, on. So that means you're going to be an 18 Bravo. And then what comes next? Is Robin Sage next? Uh, langu- so they did it a little bit different for us. Oh, we did. that's right. You did some compressed language school. Yeah. Yeah. In, in which, a, which is in lame. Espanol? Yep. We normally you have like three months in a language because every Green Beret has to have a minimum of a second language. And uh, they took anyone that had any degree of language and like this is peak war you know this is 2004 2005 Mm -hmm. and uh body bags are coming in every day at the jfk chapel at fort bragg they're having a new ceremony for a dead green beret like this is and our instructors are just livid that they're the ones that are stuck at swick having to train us Mm -hmm. you know they they don't want to be there and i get it Mm -hmm. they want to be back with their teams and we the the young wannabe green berets like we're just chomping at the bit to get out and we're doing everything we're do, we're we're trying to cut every corner we're trying to if you graduate on a friday most people would want like a month to recover not no, at this time no. Can, is there any way is there any spots for me to start on monday and um and when somebody says hey you can sp- skip two months of language school if you do this program i am in. yeah throw me in there and what did you take spanish yep <laughs> Wish I took Russian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so then comes Robin Robin Sage. And this is where like it seems like all your mischievous life gets to be utilized. Yep. <laughs> right? You get to re- you get rewarded for being sneaky. Um one of the ops that you talk about, one of the training ops that you talk about in there, you're supposed to assault some place and you guys go in and and drain like most of the fuel of all the generators yeah. and and you have it all kind of timed so that in the middle of the night all the generators fail that's right which means all the lights go out which means there's confusion by the cadre and then you guys roll in there yeah like you're getting after it man yeah we we one of our friends um that he had like a staff infection he was he was support for the cadre and uh, we were supposed to turn all our cell phones. Um, we had prison pockets, so our cell phones were definitely still on us. <laughs> so we're getting text messages as we're getting like our, where our next ob- objective is going to be. We're getting the updates as to when the cadre are going to roll in and blow us out. We're getting like play by plays of what their plans are. Um, 
And uh, so we get where the objective is going to be, what time the hit time is going to be. Uh, so we get there as they're setting up. We siphon out gas out of the generators. We already know which vehicles are the cadre vehicles. So when they roll up to start setting things up and the lights go out, and we're just like, do, do, do. Like we had axle grease over our faces. We had blacked out our uniforms. And uh, we just cruised up and stole all their stuff. We stole their tobacco. We stole their headlamps. We stole their uniforms. Um, I, I, I stole a kid, one of the cadre's kids' toys out of his car. You know? <laughs> they loved it. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know this is this is again peak war where they're yeah. like, okay, these dudes are hungry. Yeah, this is what we want. Yep, that's awesome. Um, you go to Sear School, you freaking cheat in Sear School. Yeah, in a big way. Yeah, you go <laughs> you go out and you hide MREs and caches throughout the AO so you can eat. Bro. Yeah, <laughs> again. We uh, we get informed as to where our evasion lane's going to be. They he gives me like a, a left azimuth and a right azimuth, and this is my evasion lane. So we go and I take boxes of MREs and I go and I dig them and plant them with ten digit grid coordinates as to where these boxes of MREs are on our evasion lane. So when they get cut loose, when they let us loose and be like, "All right, we're going to chase you guys," you know, you got your couple of hours to go. Um, like we just beeline straight azimuth. To the first box of MREs, <laughs> dig those things up, and you had a, a crew that was in on it. Yep, a bunch of eighteen X rays, mostly, except for one Air Force guy. And um, to his credit, he, uh, you know, he didn't want to break any rules, and he thought that we were cheating. Uh, we were, mm-hmm. and um, so when he said he wasn't going to eat the MREs, cool. We we ate that MRE of his. But we, we helped him and as best we could. Like if he's going to be a man of integrity and ethics, we hunted for him. You know, we forged for him. Um, we tried to get, and he would get all of that food. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm getting deer corn, if I'm if I'm a, if I'm dumpster diving into somebody's backyard and I find you know a leftover sandwich, like he's getting all of it. It's not getting split twelve ways. He gets mm-hmm. all of it. So he was better off than any other dude in any other evasion team, as like there were eleven other people forging for him, and um, until. You finally reach the your motivation to not get caught is the longer that you stay on the lamb, the longer that you stay running, that's less time that you st- spend in the concentration camp getting using advanced ter- interrogation techniques. So you get a, a week in camp slappy. Period. Mm-hmm. You're going to get. You're going to get. Period. Yep. Unless you get caught early. If you get caught early, every day that you get caught early is an extra day at camp slappy. So when we get to the you know the final phase of Seer, the camp's already full. We're the last team to roll in there, and uh, you know like we get betrayed by our contact, our courier that's supposed to take us out of the country, and he turns us over to the invading forces, and uh, we have black bags over our head. They pop them off. They start slapping us, and they're going down the line, and all of us are lined up, and they're doing the interrogation thing pretty rough and it's one of the most dangerous times is when you're initially captured so there's really strict things that you're supposed to do to not encourage them to be more violent because that's when executions happen in real war you like immediately after capture like that's a really dangerous time you want to be really compliant you want to really stick to this this method of um being as complicit as you can perception wise until that dude's bag comes off and he just starts singing like a canary. These guys cheated. They buried food and the whole, it was like you could hear a pin drop. You could, all the cadres stopped talking. All of them descended like sharks onto this one guy. And they said, what do you say? He said, they buried food. This whole team has been eating. They had MREs. They knew exactly where they're going to be going. 
they took all 11 of us and they separated, separated us yeah. immediately. <laughs> so Sear School became real. It went from school to real life immediately. Because if you cheated, if you got caught for cheated, all this idea of being a Green Beret would be thrown out the window. It's gone. You'd yep. be... No recycle. Out of the school. Yeah, th- this is an integrity violation. It's different than failing. Uh-huh. Failing, you sometimes get to re- get rehabilitated and come back. If you cheated, you're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of you separated have to maintain the same story. 11 of us for seven days. Waterboarding, <laughs> ice tanks. Um, pain positions and all their interrogation was based around did you cheat or not that's right yep did you have food where did you get the food who buried the food um, hey Tim told us you know yep. you can stay yep but we're t- kicking Tim out because t- Tim's already gone yep. you know Tim told us and um, and uh, you can stay we just need it be cooperated so um, you know Sean Stain he, could, he he backed him up. Mm-hmm. We just need one more. It's like they, they they're good. Oh like these guys these are professional interrogators. Yep. And and the whole team held. Whole team. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Suck it. <laughs> Not one of us broke. That's insane. And the final day of Sear School, when things just start getting crazier and crazier, like people are flying through the air, you know, and like ah, getting made fun of, getting beaten, getting sprayed down with hoses, and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden. A moment happens where you know it's the end of Sears School, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not going to ruin that moment because it's one of the most significant emotional moments. Mm-hmm. And it's um, and I just look around. I got my eleven brothers, <laughs> all all eleven of us standing right there. Check. The cadre show up to our donning of our green beret. So at the end of the school, they're like, "Hey, we need to talk to you guys," and we're like. <laughs> Zero chance, bro. <laughs> cool. I see you got your art. You pulled your ID card out of your neck and it's hanging from your lanyard here. I don't give a fuck. You know, like I don't, zero chance any of us are saying anything. You can meet us when I put my green beret on. So we get our knife. We sign our, our name in the book of truth. We throw on our green beret. We learn what group we're going to. And they're all standing there at that ceremony being like, we need to talk to you guys. It was it was a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. One, one for the one of the first times they had to legitimately do interrogations on people that legitimately had something to hide, to see, and it proved that the things that they were teaching worked. worked. Yeah, it's awesome. That's that's pretty awesome that everyone stuck it out. Yeah, because when they start saying, "Hey, look, we already kicked him out. He's 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 going to the whatever you call it in the in the army. We call it the fleet, the navy." But they're saying, "Hell yeah, Tim already." Tim, or hey, Tim just ratted you guys out. He's yeah. trying to save himself over there. He we're keeping him because he said you're the one that planned it. They start doing that shit, man. They're breaking people down. Yeah, zero chance. <laughs> but the worst part was they had one guy. You know, they had one guy uh-huh. that had told them every, everything. So they were going off of all of his, his information, which was all true. So it was a really hard thing in my head as they're recounting, well, like we knew exactly, he, he, he very accurately described, which I was really impressed that he could remember, you know, he didn't have the grid coordinates, but he remembered exactly where it was off of the airfield. You know, it's about 200 meters in from this road off of this airfield. It was under this big log. And um, I got to throw out a, a warning to anyone that's going through selection. What Tim Kennedy did is not smart. Don't do this. Don't do that. And the idea of like, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. 
is actually not a good thing to do because you're risking your career and Tim Kennedy and his 11 friends freaking got away with it by a miracle. Uh, Don't do this kind of shit. Learn how to cheat at your ODA. Yeah. When you get there, you and your team, there's there are methods mm-hmm. about how you're going to cheat in country, and it's called resistance. It's called unconventional warfare, and there's doctrine designed about how to do it. Yeah. That doctrine is written by McChrystals and Mattises. Read that doctrine and cheat that way. Don't yeah. don't do it like a 23 year old idiot and his 23 year old <laughs> friends did. There's so many things you, you do not want to put your life. When your life, your life as a special operations guy, at risk for anything, like no. for nothing. So if you're in any going to these one of these selection courses, just take the high ground on everything, really. And if you don't, you get caught. And it's like no one cares. Like I, w- I wouldn't even be talking to you right now. You'd be you'd have been like some random dude yeah. if I would have gotten out of the army. Like I'd that's be a that. psychops. Yeah, uh, I'd be <laughs> civil affairs. Yeah, like it's just don't do it. Um, I wanted to throw that in there because, you know, I, I think it was for me. It was like third phase in buds where the instructors started saying, "If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying." Is bullshit. You're only cheating yourself. That's what they said. Now yeah. I think about it, they said you're only cheating yourself, and man, you don't want to get caught. Bro, there's too, it's too awesome to be a part of the community to to risk it over something that made your life a little bit easier yeah. you know, for those days. Anyways, I had to throw that caveat in there. No, that's big, big exclamation mark. Um, Context of time, though. This is 2004. Like, we wanted war so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, f- for sure. For yeah. sure. And... I mean, I don't know. I don't know if your if your thought process was. I don't know what your thought process. There's was. dudes. This is what it was. There's dudes on horseback fighting with a mujahideen. Uh huh. Like no, but my point is like I I when I was going through buds, I like sat in my room on the weekends and sharpened my knife and polished my boots. Like guys would go out <laughs> drinking. Like dude, I was like, bro, I'm not risking anything. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm just. I just want to make it through this shit. Um. So what was your so? I think we were product of their own creation during those four months in Sopsi, where oh. we had to learn how to cheat in everything. Got we had we had to reorganize our barracks. We had to um, we went and stole washing machines from other barracks at the eighty second and moved them so we could do more <laughs> loads of laundry. I went and stole <laughs> washing machines. We went and you know there weren't enough beds for the number of guys that came in, so we went to the eighty second and stole their beds out of their <laughs> their not occupied barracks. Um, if you watch like the original Green Beret movie with John Wayne, one of the opening scenes, they see you see this Huey come in and they're just stealing stuff from the supply yard, and uh, like that's what we're doing. Yeah, you know. So in by Sear School, we we had really refined. We had been cheating this whole entire time out of an essence of survival, and uh, and that was that carried over negatively. Yeah. Yeah. There was a culture that had yep. kind of been created yep. and that yeah, bled into the next. Field. Yeah. As a leader, be really careful about the culture that you create mm. because the byproduct of the product of that you create in the environment that you build is going to be what you're going to have to deal with. So like, yes, you can make things so hard that sometimes the, the creation from this environment, from this culture is going to be worse. Had you just changed what that culture was, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. You got married? Yeah. What, what, when did you get married? After, Man. once you got your Green Beret? Yeah, I had a Green Beret. 
done a couple of trips, gone to a couple of schools. And I was getting ready to go to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that's, that's when Ginger finally conceded. <laughs> you broke her down, psyops. I know I did. It was, um, it was not, she wouldn't talk to me. Mm-hmm. So I had to, so I, she's I, smart. She's smart. <laughs> so I had to figure out who her pattern of life is, like was. So I figured out who all her friends were. I befriended all of her friends. And then um, I figured out like their center of gravity, like where they went and why they hung out there. And I created, I fabricated environments that were where they would go to create opportunities for me to go and find her and talk to her. And then ultimately I, I created this event that was like all the things that they loved live music good food wine and um and i told them different times so i i told my principal which is my wife to be <laughs> to be there at one time and i told all of her friends different times so then when she showed up 30 minutes late but 30 minutes before the rest of them came which was an hour after i told her um i had already pre-planned a text message to go out to all them be like ah canceled don't worry about coming over and i tell her oh man the uh nobody else is coming let's just go out to dinner uh, and that was it psyops yeah you get married um and you get you get put into the sif that's right which is again now you're an 18 x-ray which means you haven't been in in the regular army at all you've gone straight straight through school and you get put into the sif which is the commander's in extremis force, which is normally some more experienced guys. Yeah, it should be, definitely. But you get thrown in there. Yeah. John McPhee, uh, Sheriff of Baghdad, he was a he was a great CAG operator. Um, he is the team sergeant for this team. He had known me kind of from fighting and um, he knew I was a I don't know what his motivation was like he knew as a fighter he knew as a shooter and they were looking for extra bodies to get ready to go to Iraq and um, so they he went and snagged me it's pretty awesome it's super awesome <laughs> <laughs> but you're so you got a good reputation as a, like a fighter and you were the honor graduate and all this other stuff yep. but you're still a new guy showing up at a surf. Yep. still an FNG uh but a hungry, hungry bulldog. Yeah, you. I imagine they were freaking stoked. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I mean, it's wild that he, you know, that he goes and gets me. I show up at the team room, and I'm standing in front of the team room with my bags, and they're not letting me in. You know, I stand out in front of that team room for a day, just standing there for like ten hours. The door comes open, like we told you to leave. It, no. I was assigned to this team. Like, well, we don't want you, so go away. And I stand there for ten days or for ten hours, waiting to be let in. So, and they finally let you in. Finally, let me in to go move the gym. <laughs> oh yeah, they make you move the gym, and then say, "I don't like that way it looks." Now, move yeah, it back. Put put it back. <clears throat> um, and then you're deployed. You you end up jumping right into a deployment to Iraq right away. Yeah, I get done with Sephardic. Uh, which is a required school to be part of the the SIF. And um, it's a three month long kind of hostage rescue direct action school. And um, as soon as I graduate from that, I get on Advon's already gone. PDS, PDSS is kind of complete. Advon's done. They're already in country. I get on the next plane flying with the team. How freaking amped is Tim Kennedy at this juncture? I'm so amped. <laughs> yeah, I was like freaking thrilled to one be in the unit to have finished Sephardic so early like that's a school that you usually wait five six years to be able to go to I graduate from the Q course 
I go to Sephardic and I report to the SIF. Like this is wild. And then you you know your do you guys know you're slotted to deploy and you know where you're deploying to? I don't. Um, but they do. Mm-hmm. I'm I, I haven't even I haven't even been read in yet. You know, so I have no idea what anything is. I don't know where the deployment is, I don't know where we're going, I don't know what our mission is. Um, so you get done with Sephardic and then you check into your team? Mm-hmm. And how long does it take for you to find out that you're going to Iraq? Uh, three weeks. So this is now, so it's 2006. Yep. So Iraq is going off it at this point. crazy. Yeah. You're, how do you get there? Do you fly? A C-17. C-17, but you, where do you stop? Do you stop anywhere on the way over? You must stop somewhere. Shannon Air Force Base, I think. And then you roll, where do you land? Do you roll into Baghdad? Or no, we go to Al-Assad. Al-Assad? Yeah. Direct into Al-Assad. And your Tim Kennedy has got to be as amped as Tim Kennedy can yeah. get at this point. Yeah, the um, the combat approach of military aircraft into a combat zone, it is not like a Delta Airlines, <laughs> you know, please put up your tray, you know, bring your seats to an upright position and make sure that your seatbelts are attached, that your bags are underneath the seat in front of you. Like, that's not what's happening. It's like <laughs> this crazy corkscrew circle as they drop from 30,000 feet down to land. And the final corkscrew is your final approach. Yeah. Like, that's it. Yeah. So as, you know, we have Humvees and we have our, our trucks and uh, all of our pallets of guns and our Connexes and it's like <laughs> to the ground the gate opens and you get hit with this hundred and something degree temperature in the dark of night and it was freaking amazing <laughs> uh, first time I flew into Baghdad I was with my platoon who were flying in and it's the same thing and uh, I'm always like I'm not going to show anybody any emotions at all or whatever I'm always just like looking around it's all good and the f- f- the plane starts going into that mode, and you're like, we're like getting jerked around a little bit. And this one buddy of mine, who's like a, a a young enlisted guy, but an awesome guy, he's like got big eyes. He looks at me, he goes, "These are evasive." Man- <laughs> I can't even say. It. He's like, "These are evasive maneuvers." And I go, "We'll be good." Something like just totally calm, cool, like, "Oh, we'll be good, no factor," you know, something like this. But I remember thinking, "These are some evasive maneuvers." What's the Yeah, we can shot at right now. Um, Awesome. So you're on the ground. Your your mission and kind of the countries, much of the country, certainly a lot of special operations at the time was focused on getting AMZ. Yep. Um, Zarqawi, he was the number one guy in Iraq for sure. The number two guy underneath Bin Laden. Um, but he was he he was super hostile, super aggressive. Uh, bin Laden, he pissed off Bin Laden. He yeah. was going so far. I mean, you got a good quote in the book, uh, something along the lines of, "Hey, when when Osama Bin Laden is telling you you need to calm down, that's an indicator that you might be a little out of control." And that was Zarqawi for sure, yeah. madman. Yep, um, violent, violent yeah. to a degree. We're pretty comfortable with violence. Even now, looking back, the things, the the type of way that he, the tyranny that he put on both the Iraqs, the Iraqis and Americans. I mean, it, it was an extra special level of evil. Yeah, this is the guy that was decapitating, um, you know, just on camera, just cutting people's heads off. Yep. Nick Berg, uh, this guy's a, a, a hateful. He was the Blackwater contractor capture, right? The Blackwater guys that got burned alive yep. and dragged through the street. That was him. Um, the dudes that were put in the cages and burn like that was him. The you know drilling, screwing dudes' hands to the walls so they could watch their families get tortured and murdered. That was him. Like he's nasty. This guy's an awful, nasty dude. Awful 
excuse for a human being. Uh, and so that's what you guys are focused on. That's what yep. much of special operations and, and like, like this means going after everyone in his network, everyone that he touches, everyone that he, everything that he does, we're watching, we're tracking, we're trying to get a step ahead of him. Uh, your first op, you're going on a capture kill mission, some HVT, some high value target. You helo into the target. You're approaching this enemy building. Um, I'm going to go to the book on this one because it's pretty good. Oh. <laughs> uh, John, and this is John McPhee. Um, you say, John has us all move back about 100 meters, forms us into an L-shaped ambush on the building and begins a call out. It's exactly what it sounds like. We get on a megaphone. We start telling the people to get out of the house. Within five minutes, two guys and five women and their children leave. One of the women tells us her husband is still in there. We ask him to get out for 15 minutes. It starts nice, but at the end, our Terp is essentially screaming, get out of the house, motherfucker, we're coming in to get you. He doesn't budge. We're going in. The four of us walk to the front door as Dave Fredericks, Ben Rios, Mario Montese, say that right? Yep. Montese. Montese and Manny Villalobos move to the back door through the sheep's pen. The rest of the guys are either hitting the other buildings or covering the windows of outs just in case the guy, guy tries to squirt out. We're set. As the number one man, Al pulls the door open, and I, as the number two man, throw in a flashbang. John, as the number three man, covers the doorway with his rifle in case someone tries to take a shot at me or Al as we do our jobs. Bam, the flashbang goes off, and we flow into the room, one behind the other. We see a guy sprint past the door. Our terp yells for the guy to get on the ground over and over again. The guy is not going to the ground. He is defiant. My red dot is on his chest, as are Al's and John's. He takes a breath and makes an athletic movement away from us. I hear Al switch his weapon from safe to semi. It's such a small sound, the tiny click of metal on metal, but all veterans know what that sound means. It's go time. You can always hear it through flashbangs, through grenades, through artillery. That little click engages the mechanism in your brain that tells you this event is now real. My eyes see where this man is going, and my brain slowly passes that message to my body. He grabs an AK-47 and starts to spin towards us. Somewhere between the time he grabs for the gun and the time he turns toward us with it, I move my weapon to semi, as does John. By the time... The man's gun gets two-thirds around the half circle from where he grabbed it to where he's pointed at Al. Al squeeze off one or two rounds. Milliseconds later, I double-tap the guy. John shoots him almost the same time I do, also double-tapping. The guy falls to the ground lifeless. There are five, maybe six holes stacked on top of each other through his heart. To be honest, if you don't look carefully, it looks like one bullet wound. I just killed for the first time although I think Al's round gets the actual credit, but at the moment, I'm actually impressed with how good we are. I thought this would be a bigger moment. I thought it would have gravitas. It doesn't. He was a bad man. He tried to kill us. Now he's dead. It's that simple for me. What isn't simple is hearing his wife screams when the shots ring out. There's no sound like the sound of a woman seeing her husband die. It rattles me and lingers. We collect intel off the entire building. We get blood samples, fingerprints, face pictures, and we take the body with us. 
There's a ton of valuable intelligence here and this huge unexpected win tactically. But his wife keeps screaming at us. She's saying we murdered him. It doesn't matter to her that we gave the guy the opportunity to leave the house. It doesn't matter that he tried to kill us. We killed her husband. I look at the other men glaring at us. I look at the kids crying. Did we just make more terrorists? Will these kids grow up to try and kill more Americans? I probably would if I were them. The wife complains enough that there's an immediate investigation of Al's decision to pull the trigger. This is a huge shock to me. Isn't this war? This fucking guy was going to kill us. Nevertheless, the sergeant major took statements from everyone. They did a forensic analysis of the shoot and concluded that what we did, that what we said happened is exactly what happened. Al is cleared. When we get back to the house, when we get back to the base, the guys at Blue tell us we did a great job. They apparently watched the whole thing via satellite. Now there's a lot more trust. They don't think we're idiots anymore. We're off to the races. Good way to kick it off. Yeah, the um, it's weird though. You know, the um, it's weird in the sense that in a such a, a flashbangs, you know, call outs. When we're doing a call out, we're also flying throwing flashbangs. You know, like get out of the get out of the mm-hmm. get out of the house. Like throw a flashbang in there. You're on a microphone, um, like. This this dude did pre-positioned weapons inside the house, and he didn't know which way we were going to come in. So he was kind of squirting to where his kind of designated fighting positions were, hoping to get us in hallways. Not not bad. I mean, that's that's legit kind of tactics on his part. Clearly thought this through. Yeah, I mean, it's two thousand six. It's these these guys have been working for a while. Yeah, and for him to still be alive, he knows something. Yep, and uh, you know, in that rotation of that half second exposure it's the book and when the gun is seen is or i mean tenths you can't even put attach how fast Mm -hmm. these things happen you know you as he turns from around the corner you don't see anything until you essentially see the barrel and the barrel's already starting to come up so it's just like and that's three people shooting at the same time and um and then it's just it's not movies you know, it's not a dude flies back or there's you just drops, mm-hmm. just drops. And that's the end. And then you continue with your clearance. Yep. Yeah. You step over that body and uh, go to the next room. It's weird. Um, but you had to after this op, you know, like you said, you, you start to build trust with the uh, blue that's there, which is the Navy component. Um, sounds like it was a little bit of a rough start with those guys because they maybe didn't didn't have the same level of trust with you guys before this op or something? Um, this was C-37's first combat tour. Okay. So that, that I think that reservation was well-founded. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they their ROE, their kill chain and their vertical kill chart, they were looking for really specific targets. We just wanted to get in the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, so they didn't want to use air assets at the expense of missing an opportunity for a TST, which I also get, but then we just wanted to get in a fight, you know? So it was kind of priorities. They had already been there. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're working off of, you know, you, you, if you think like in the movies, you got this, this big wall and you have the top Zarqawi and then you have all of the targets and you have clear lines of people that might know him. You're really hoping for one of those to populate as a target. Mm -hmm. And if you, 
Meanwhile, there's 332 other people that also need to die, and you're like, we'll take those two. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but what expense, right? If 160th, yeah, if, if we have two Chinooks and, and four Blackhawks, and we use all of them for this mission, then this dude that's like nine tiers down, yeah. and then somebody that's on tier three pops up, but we miss that mm-hmm. one because uh, you know we're off doing something else just to find work. So it's... Yeah. Um, so you you know kick ass that sounds cool but then what's interesting is uh the next night or the next op yeah they like come up shy a, a helicopter for whatever it was a mechanical reasons the helicopter. it got lit up those those helicopters get shot every night so the next op that you're supposed to go on they're down a helicopter so they can't take everybody but they can kind of rework the force list and get almost everybody yeah. in there so everyone's going on the op except for one dude <sighs> Me, Tim Kennedy, yeah. gets left behind. So angry. Uh, so they go out, and I can't even. This is like torture. This is the second op that they go on, and you don't go, and you you just feel like you're being tortured. Yeah, and you're sitting there getting ready for QRF and all this other stuff. But it's you're just freaking yeah, so pissed. In fact, you're so pissed. <laughs> you're so pissed that when they get back, you pull. Uh, uh, McPhee aside, and you like berate him. Like, hey, that was bad, bad call, bro. You know, you should have taken your best and your brightest, dude. You you have a book. You say, uh, <laughs> could you imagine? You say, I'm the best shot, the most physically fit, and I dominated on that last miss, and I should have been the first to go, not the first to not go. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing. an E5. I can't even an E5. That's crazy. I've been out of the Q course for two months, or I've been. All the unit for two months, yeah. yeah. And uh, an E5 is walking up to the master sergeant. Be like, listen, listen, man. Let me, yeah. t- let me tell you what you should have done. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. All the ways. Bro. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, man, props. You put it in the book, man. Yeah, it's in there. It's, it's, it's a good perspective for those young troopers out there, man. It's good perspective because... Because you're going to feel that way sometimes. You'll be looking at some guy like, I should be going. And the worst, honestly, here's what sucks. The worst way to get to go on the next mission is to go to that person and say, you should have put me on this mission. Sure, That's the worst yeah. way. It's like saying, hey, I, man, I think I deserve my purple belt now. Like, don't do that. No, you're setting yourself Zip your back. mouth. Zip it. Go in there and do work. Yeah. Uh, he goes old school, though, and, and basically says, all right, I'll tell you what, Kennedy, Go grab your boxing gloves. We're going to settle this. Yeah. In which case, you're like, oh, hell yeah, we're going to settle this. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but and this, he's a stud. Yeah. John looks just like you. He's just a brick. <laughs> you know, he's broad shoulders, thick neck, you know, chunked ears. He's a grappler. He's a fighter. And uh, I've seen, I seen uh, pictures of him, and yeah, he looks like a beast of a dude. Yeah. Uh, I don't care. I'm going to scuff that one guy up. And... Unfortunately for you, he's, Wasn't not, one he's guy. not thinking one guy. <laughs> no. He's thinking gang foo. Yeah. <laughs> so I walk into that tent, and the whole team's there. The which, whole. which should have just been such a lesson, you know, such a moment where it's like, dude, my whole my whole team God. is on the other side of the line. I'm on this side of the line, but instead, I was like, dude, I'll show them. <sighs> Let me show them what they're missing. You know, I got I got this part in that book right there: leadership strategy and tactics. It, the, the, the section of the book is called Conform to Influence. And it's, I'm talking about when I was a new guy. Because t- 
Tim Kennedy, you wouldn't have a freaking patent on being a young jackass. <laughs> I was a new guy, and I was like, you know, trying to be hardcore, and like people be, we'd be going for a run. Our team would be going for a run. I'd be like wearing boots, putting on a rucksack, running the O course with a ruck on, and f- like my guy, like my platoon mates, and I'm a new guy. Would be like, dude, hey man, you need to chill out. And I'm just like, maybe you need to be more hardcore. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, obviously, I'm freaking hardcore over here. I got my ruck on. I see you with a pair of running shoes on. What's up? You're telling me what's up? No. And uh, what I finally realized. At a point, you know, like someone said, hey, hey, Rambo, you need to chill out. And I was kind of like, it it took me a minute to realize, oh, if I'm not part of this group, I have no influence over this group whatsoever. And I'll just be ostracized and I won't be a part of this platoon. And when I realized that, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, And this is a classic example where it's like when you're standing and you're looking at everyone on your team on the other side, that's 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 a, a signal to you, young trooper, you're in the wrong. Yeah. And look, you might be you might be air quotes right about this particular item or that particular item, but when there's 12 against 1, you're making a mistake somehow. Yeah. You're doing something wrong. You're not building relationships like you should. Uh and they line up on you and you go 2 minutes, 2 minute rounds with these yep. dudes. Do do I do pretty well for 10. Mm-hmm. Start getting scuffed up the last two. Shane Thompson, good boxer, beats me. <sighs> then John starts laying it on me and I was like, all right, that wasn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Then I go back to number one and I go back through the team again. And then the whole team, they just beat the brakes off me one dude after another. And, uh, tell him sitting there on that, those tents, you have, uh, the whole thing's kind of plastic, you know, but you, you carry dust and Iraq mm-hmm. has, especially at Al-Assad, it's like this moon dust. So there's this thin layer that's sitting on top of this plastic so i was like you know it's like the drool and the blood is dripping out of my face and the sweat's coming off my forehead and it's hitting that moon dust i can see the white under plastic mm-hmm. and uh and it's it's this bright white of my blood and sweat and saliva splashing in front of me as the rest of the team is just walking out and i'm just looking at my own like drool and again, this is one of those moments where in the book, I'm like, oh, cool. He's going to get this lesson learned. And you you freely admit, you're like, there was a lesson to be learned there. I did didn't get learn it. it. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, see, it took those guys two rounds each to get me. Yeah. So dumb. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. Um, but you, you continue doing ops. Uh, and... You guys sounds like you got a pretty good op tempo going. June seventh, two thousand six. You do this bit. There's a like a whole, you know, uh, almost AO wide op- series of operations that's going on as we're as as they're getting closer and closer and closer to actually figuring out where Zarkawi is. Um, CAG's out. Rangers are out. ICTF is out. You guys are hitting targets after target after target. Um, AMZ finally gets tracked to a building and. Air Force bombs it. Yeah, Zarqawi's dead. Uh, and what's interesting is, I, I was, you know, you and I were talking about this before we press record, but I was in Iraq at this time too. And I think you got there in March, and I got there in April. So that was a big deal um, when when Zarqawi finally got killed. Yeah, pretty awesome. And it got wild for a couple of months after that too. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Is I. 
when Zarqawi got killed, I didn't think it would have any impact on the amount of operations. I didn't think it would slow down the insurgents at all. And in fact, the insurgents kind of went ham after this point. They really started going off. Uh, so it it picked up, yeah. quite honestly. Yeah. And it sounds like it picked up for you guys too. Yeah. How 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 often are you guys going out? Every night. You know, when we when we left Al Assad and and we ended up in the green zone, the international mm-hmm. zone in Baghdad proper. Um I mean, whether it was a gaff or a half, whether we were being a ground assault force or a helicopter assault force, I mean, every night we were getting out and getting after it. I mean, you'd hear the ICTF. Half of our troop was um, over with ICTF at a blod, and uh, you'd hear them in gunfights, and then we'd be on the other side of the town hitting another target, and they'd hear us in a gunfight, and then one of us would be calling QRF, and our QRF were a couple of Bradleys and an M1 Abrams, and that thing would down the street, and you hear that thing, most beautiful sound I mean you've ever heard is a Bradley rattling into a building with insurgents hiding inside of it. God bless the yeah. 25 millimeter chain gun. Yeah. Uh, so you're getting some good experience. Um, did you guys take any casualties on that planet? No. I mean, That's not awesome. a lick. The uh, you know, a couple of purple hearts that were kind of, kind of, kind of give me, like some shrapnel from a grenade that went off a ways away and like hit a dude's hand. Uh-huh. Um, but like real no no casualties mm-hmm. we hammers yeah and uh well that's what's awesome you know you've got to have some level of luck but when you're setting up these massively offensive aggressive operations a lot of times you're catching the enemy not ready for it no which is exactly what you that want. speed surprise and violence of action it's so it's so easy to say speed surprise and violence violence of action but when you're on the receiving end of let's say a company you know of, of 60 soft special operations guys where every single breach point of your building explodes at the same time simultaneously every exterior breach point shatters every window has something flying through it and there's a gun getting stuck in every single opening of the entire building and there's bodies coming in through everything one of those exterior doors and the entire complex gets secured in a matter of eight seconds it is there's there's no there's there's nothing that you can do yeah. there's nothing yeah uh it's a good way to win, man. Speed, surprise, and violence of action. So you get done with that deployment. Um, you, fl- you fly back to America. Uh, you and your wife go, you know, you get your wife. You get some good food. You, you're a little, you're still scanning for threats a little bit, you know. How was it dry? How was it driving around? Like I remember when I came back from my first deployment, we were in Humvees all the time. I was like driving around, like remember the bridges? Like everyone's like, oh, if you go under a bridge, that's where they. And so you go like any car that's getting close, you sort of get that little like I'm about to freaking pit this dude off the oh, road for sure. <laughs> you know, um, somebody doesn't use their blinker. I'm like, it's a VBI, you know. And uh, there's like a, a dead dog on the side of the road. It's like oh, there's an ID planted in that dog. There's a that's that's a dead dog bomb. I know that dog. You know, I've seen that one before. And I get a, a smell of trash and I immediately get flashed back, you know, if heaven forbid I, sm- I smell somebody smoking a clove or I drive by an Indian restaurant, and I smell some curry, <laughs> you know, and, and that mixed with the fuel and exhaust of a vehicle. I'm boom. I'm right back into combat. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the brain is cool. Yeah. Um, but then what's what happens? Uh, you get told McPhee tells you you're going to ranger school. Yep. 
And he also says if you're not the honor grad of Ranger School, you're out of SIF. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> How were, were you fired up for Ranger School? I was. It was. I, there were other schools I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Sniper School. You know, I wanted to go to Halo School. Um, I wanted to go to Scuba School. Uh, I wanted to go, like to Combat Dive School. And so there were all these schools I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the former Ranger Regiment Team Sergeant. Again, here's here's another little clue into how how useless and ignorant and selfish and egotistical I was as in this this period. Like those are all my schools. Mm-hmm. I was not even thinking how would it help? How would I become a better asset for my team? How would I become you know as a new guy a better leader? How would I understand the army a little bit better? You know, there were there were so many good schools that should have been on my list, and the very first one as a wise new guy with a Ranger Regiment former Ranger Regiment team sergeant, like the first words out of my mouth should have been, "I want to go to Ranger School, team sergeant." You know, like not, "Hey, I want to go to Halo School." Like, what a what a tool, what a bag of dicks I am. <laughs> you know, in the SEAL teams, often not one hundred percent of the time, oftentimes Ranger School is punishment. It's it's a it, it's punishment. It's also a little bit of purgatory that you can redeem yourself. So if you got a problem, if you've done something, if you've been off track, they will send you to Ranger School. Yeah. It's sort of like halfway punishment and also a road to redemption. Jason Redman, who's been on here, um, you know he 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 was he he was an enlisted guy, became an officer, and was not quite ready for it, and. He, his redemption was all right. You're a little jacked up. We're going to send you to Ranger School. It's a great school. You know, it's a, it, it is a leadership school. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what Ranger School is. Um, you, you think about the Army Rangers, which is a special operations unit that mm-hmm. does really rad special operations things as a direct action force, and then you have Ranger School, which is a really great leadership school. And as an 18 X-ray that has not even spent a day in the regular army. Like the one school I should have been raising my hand of go to is Ranger School. And uh, not as a punishment, as like, I need this. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is who, this not developed soldier, this is what I now need. Uh, but that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so John's giving, John, you know, like and at the time, man, I was so mad at John. And uh, John and I have been talking since this book came out. And, you know, he and I, just, we, he's like, I may not have been the boss that you wanted, but you're, I was the boss that you needed. There you go, And man. it's so true. Yeah. He 100%. was such a great, great human. Um, he's not a great human. He was such a great leader that I needed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Before you go to Ranger School, you go and compete for the second time in the Army Combatives Championship. Yeah. And you win. Wild tournaments. The uh, I keep using the word wild because I don't know that. I mean, well, I think I'm. I've been using that word a lot today too. <laughs> I think I started off the whole podcast talking about this wild story we're about to read. But yeah, wild. The tournament is a is a three day fight fest. You, you have one day of grappling, or you're gonna you're gonna fight somewhere between five to ten times in one day, and the next day is pancreas, and you're gonna fight if if you're in the heaven forget forbid you lose one grappling match and you're in the loser bracket, for you to fight your way back into the winners bracket, you're gonna fight five or six times in in full MMA pancreas fights. So now you're somewhere between I don't know ten to fifteen fights Deep. by day two, and then day three. How long are the fights? They're they're full five minute three round fights. 15 minute fights. Damn. Yeah. These are pancreas. They're going open hand on the ground, uh, open hand strike standing. What's what's their open palm to the face, close fist anywhere else, kicks anywhere. uh, And all submissions are in. (sighs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then day three is MMA for the championship. Just, just MMA. Just MMA. Gloves or no gloves? Gloves. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, peak war, peak like warrior spirit, warrior ethos of the military. Everybody could compete in this. You know, we had SEALs that were in it. We had Marine guys that were in it. In it. We had plenty of Green Berets, Ranger Regiment guys. Like this was the tournament of all tournaments within the military. And this is your second one? When mm-hmm. was the first one? The first one when I was in the Q course. I just rolled out and I'm won so that dumb. bitch. I'm so, so <laughs> dumb. The chance of getting hurt in one of these fights oh, yeah. and getting you know out of the Q course. Uh, but w- one of the 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 swick cadre were like, hey man, if if you win this, I'll give you a, an an army achievement medal or something, and I'll give you a three day weekend. And I was like, I'm in. So like, you know, I go fight this. I, I get a medal first of all. I get a medal. The medals are cool. I don't have any of those. And then I then I get a three day weekend. So I did that. Well worth it. Yeah, for no doubt, no doubt. So this is your second one uh, that you win. You win this again. Mm-hmm. You became the first, I think the first person to first ever person win it twice. twice. Back to back. Uh-huh. Then you go to ranger school. The same day. <laughs> What's the weight classes in the, in the combative? Same as MMA. So I fought a, a, a light heavyweight. So I fought 205 um, light heavyweight. On Sunday was the light heavyweight championship MMA, MMA bout about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And I checked into ranger school at 6 p.m. Credit. <laughs> Dumb. <laughs> That's freaking awesome, man. Uh, you, you you go through Ranger School um, in the book. There's a lot of cool cool details about it in the book. Um, give me some highlights. Rap week. I mean, you must. It's weird that you're just like a combat experience guy, won the combative tournament, special forces, Sephardic, SIF team, and you're rolling into Ranger School. Yeah. Rank doesn't matter in Ranger School. That's pretty awesome. I love it. Yep. You go in stripped, you know, so a staff sergeant, combat patch, special forces, airborne. That, none of that's on there. Right. I got my name tape. That's what I got. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's one of the things that I love about the military is it is exclusively off merit. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I don't care your color. I don't care your religion. I don't care anything about you. I care if you can do it. Here is a very clear task condition and standard. You're either capable of doing it or you're not. You're either going to be a graduate of sniper school because you made this shot or you didn't. That's it, period. And, and ranger school is very defined in that way. The, the grading for your patrols are very clear. The grading for the, the physical portions are very clear. The time requirements for you to make it through. Um, the obstacle course are very clear. Everything is just so clear. Here's your time to disassemble and reassemble the 240. That's it. That's it. Like you can do it or you can't. You've either prepared and trained and you know how it works or you don't. And um, that's and in between every one of these gates is the, their opportunity and the goal is the cadre is to show they use all of these gates as mechanisms to train somebody about how to lead. They use, like, they have to tear down the person to see who that leader potentially could be. Like, anybody can be a good person when you're well fed, when you've had a great night's sleep, you know, like when you've been hanging out with your wife. Sure, I can go in there, you know, in a nice suit and be like, hey, you guys are doing really great, great teamwork, guys. But what does it feel like when you have to volunteer 
to be up on another security shift because the dude just fell asleep and you're either going to be a good teammate or you're not like, do you have that? And by the way, all the people that you're leading are also sleep deprived, exhausted, tired, frustrated, pissed off and all that. Yeah. When I joined the Navy, the Marine Corps at that time, they didn't even have name tapes on their uniforms. It was just like you were a Marine. You were a freaking Lance Corporal or a Corporal or a Sergeant or a Gun. That's what you were. Yeah. It was freaking legit back in the day. I remember thinking, I had so much respect for that. I was like, oh, hell yeah. yeah. The Marine Corps doesn't just, you're just a Marine. You're, you're a Marine. What else? You don't need a name. Hey, Marine, get over here. God, devil dogs. Yeah. Um, I, one thing that you pointed out to the book that never, it never, I never understood it until you explained it in the book. And that is when you're in ranger school, they call you ranger. Yeah. And I was, I always thought that was backwards, you know, like that, hey, you're not a ranger yet, you're in school, so why would they be calling you ranger? And the way you explained it, the fact that you were watching a guy quit, and he's quitting pretty deep into ranger school. He was yeah. maybe like 30, 40 days into it. We're in mountain phase. So, you know, we're yeah. two phases in. Yeah. Halfway through it. And this guy decides to quit, and you because he was cold. <sighs> I mean, you know that. Yeah, cold. Cold gets you. Cold gets you. Cold gets you. <laughs> yeah, he's quit. Um, but you were listening to the instructors kind of take him aside, and they start calling him by his name and by his rank, and they're not calling him Ranger anymore. And I was like, oh damn. Yeah, I never heard it before. Yeah. You know, when when you quit, you just disappear in like rap week. You're just gone. But there, you're on this ambush line, you know, and it's been ranger this, ranger that, sometimes stud, but usually like, hey, ranger, get over here. And um, when they're like, hey, Sergeant Smith, come here. And I was like, Ooh. oh, what the fuck? I would have been like, dude, get me. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going back in that patrol right yeah. now. I don't care. Yeah. <sighs> what makes people quit in ranger school? Uh, self-selection is is the biggest attritter people literally just quitting and um it is the environment's not rough you know at georgia benning it, it, it is it is a great conducive environment for you to learn how to do basic patrolling mountain phase um i, I think it's the accumulation of you, you you start internalizing all of these things that you're going to have to do and it seems this like this this daunting task like i can't i have to get this these these patrols i have to get through these patrols i have to make it through these events i have to do this timed thing i have to do this ruck and you're just like looking at it from start to finish the deeper into it you go the fewer and fewer quitters you get mm-hmm. um and it's not because it's any less hard because it is it, it gets harder as it goes it's because the there's less tasks in front of you. So people are staring at the giant weight of mm-hmm. all these tasks and they can't take it. They get tired, they get cold, and they look at this long list of things that they have to be able to do and they're like, I, I just can't do it. Yeah, that, the, uh, when you were talking about Sopsy, at a certain point, there's just like nothing you can do to make these kids quit. Anymore. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like they get kids done with Hell Week, and you're like, you could tell them to do anything. They don't care anymore about anything. They're yeah. just like, we. You can just injure them with baseball bats or something. But other than that, they're going to keep moving forward yeah, a little I bit. I have a Bengal tiger in a cage over there. <laughs> if you want to graduate, you're going to go fight it. Yep. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. How much weight did you lose? 
So zero in Ranger School. You lost zero weight. I in lost Ranger no school. weight in Ranger the School. The average weight loss is what twenty five pounds. Yeah, I something think it's like that. Ten percent of your body weight is what you typically lose. And you you set up basically a system of kicking ass and taking MREs. <laughs> we should make a shirt of that. So staff sergeant combat SF graduate, if the West Point kid, you know, hey PL, he walks up to me and says, Tim, I need to go on this. Can you do this? Like, yes, I can. I want your main meal. I want your crackers. That's what I want. I'll carry the 240. I'll go ahead and, and I'll be like, you know, you're, you're kind of like ops support sergeant. And I'll, I'll walk the line. I'll, I don't need sleep. I can do extra work. I, I, I can go for forever. But you got you to gotta feed the beast. <laughs> and uh, so, like, if you wanted to go, it, it, would, it, would, it was fair. You know, I, was, I peered number one on everything. Like, and, and peering is another big attritter. Right. So in every single phase, you grade 1 through 12 or 1 through 13. 13 gets cut. And um, so the top 12 guys kind of stay, but that, that baggage carries over with you. So, um, you know, I was peering top of the list because I was doing all the work, but guys knew that there was a price to pay. And that was <laughs> the peanut butter or that main meal. And they must have been really needing your help because they're starving. You, you, you get, get a, one, on, one MRE a day, right? Yeah. You get a no-go on a patrol. You got to get a go. You know, if you get, and then you, the cadre comes up to you, hey, you're going to be the, you know, you're going to be the PL on this next patrol. If you don't get a go on there, you get a second no-go, like you're at a ranger school. No-go ranger. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they, hey man, I just got my patrol. I got a no-go on my last patrol. What do I need to do? Gotcha. Yeah. You know, first. Give me that ham, boy. Yes, <laughs> first, you, 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 you Dude, pay the piper. A, that's incredible. How much, how, do you think you'd get like three main meals a day at least? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, so there are you know, two or three patrols a day, and I was probably stepping up to two or one or two patrols a day. So I'd get an extra one or two every day. Check. Oh, no. Again, I just kind of, I didn't want to put that in the book. Cause yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, you probably helped a lot of people. I mean, yeah. that's hard. And people wouldn't be giving up their food unless they really needed it. Yeah, they got their goes. Yeah, I, I batted a thousand. <laughs> I did. You know, if, if if you give me your main meal, you're getting to go. Yeah. You know? Dude, we'll work for food. Yeah. Come dude, if I walked up, if, if like some dude was, let's say we just had a react contact or we had to go set up an ambush and I went to patrol a line and there was, they were, not that they're scared of me, but if they saw me coming, I mean, they're, they're on their gun <laughs> like because they know it's coming. Like the dude is going to get a go or Tim's going to have his, or Tim's going to take a, a, a pound of flesh. <laughs> Dude, you must be the first uh, first dude to not lose weight in Ranger School. That's yeah. amazing. So when I graduated, I fought a fight for the IFL a couple of days later, and um, and I fought as as a light heavyweight, and I had to cut weight to make light heavyweight. So I know I fought light heavyweight when I went into Ranger School on Sunday, and then I graduated and I fought the following weekend at light heavyweight. So there you go. I did. I did put on the Ranger pounds right after graduation. Where I was just like sucking everything. You and you ended up being the honor grad. Yep. And you, so you go back and you want to throw it in McPhee's face, like you see, yeah. you know, I'm staying at Sif. This guy. Look, I did it, and he's not even there. Not anymore. there. He already moved on, bro. <laughs> so yep. he, he psychological warfareed you. Yes, like, he did. You couldn't just go to Ranger School. You had to graduate honor grad, which was extra all kinds of extra work because the difference between like passing and being number one the, the difference amount of work is huge yeah and i get back to the team and it's like 
at crickets. There's nobody there. <laughs> God. And then four days later, four days after Ranger School, you get in this fight. You get mm-hmm. this fight for for the IFL, the International Fight League. Yeah. Normally, and the, the, <laughs> normally you take months to reco- re- recover from Ranger School. You know, guys aren't walking right. You don't have to take a PT test for sometimes six months to a year, and uh, your body is. Your digestive system's trashed, and um, your energy's... What what was your digestive system like after that many days of just MREs? This is... (laughs) (laughs) um, The day I graduated, um, I wanted to attack my wife. I wanted to kill an elk, and I wanted to to fight a velociraptor. Like, that's the energy I had. When, When I got done, I was like... I want to be back. You know, the, the team sergeant, Ed Weems, was like, you know, take a week off, come back to the team next Monday. And I was like, no. You know, what are, what are we doing this week? He's like, take a week off and come back on Monday. And then my phone rings and they get a fight. I was like, ha, take that, Ed. Yeah. I want to go fight an IFL fight. No. Uh, you win. You win your fight in the IFL. Um, and again, you got cool details. And anybody that's any kind of remote fan of MMA at all, or actually sports in general, the the freaking book has some kick-ass details on what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that's happening besides what you see on the 15 minutes on TV, uh, which is awesome. You end up going to SODIC, the Special Operations Target Interdiction School, the sniper school. Uh, this was wild. You're, you're going through that. You're, you're doing your last pass-fail evolution. It's a field shot that yep. you have to take. Your partner freaking quits. Yeah. Your shooting partner quits. So sniper is a two-man thing. It seems like it's a one-man thing, but it's actually a two-man thing. You need someone to call the wind and call the shot for you. And your partner, the last day of this freaking course, decides yeah. to quit. Um, God bless his soul. He, he, um, he was carrying some baggage. You know, he had a lot of traumatic stress type things he was working through. Um, he ultimately died in oh, a training event. Oh, horrible. And um, he burnt in on a halo Oof. jump. And you know, there's... Check. It's hard. Um, Stands up, just quits. He quits. So so now you're... Now the, the cadre says, all right, you know, Kennedy's partner quit. Um, who, who, wants to, who wants to call for him? And the caveat is that Kennedy's getting one shot. The instructor's going to choose the shot from the field. He's going to pick whatever one. And whether Kennedy passes or fails is on you as, you know, calling for him. So you're sitting there, like, looking up. Everyone else is done. Everyone's done. They're done. They don't have to do any more shit. And you're looking up there. You're, like, seeing who's going who's gonna to hook it up for you. And uh, I got to go to the book on this okay. one because it's pretty funny. You see, I scan the bleachers. I know my chances are not good. Who would want to do that? But I don't wait long. A burly Asian on the far left side stands up immediately. Picture the Batman costume, but Asian, and that's basically Mike Glover. <laughs> this dude isn't worried at all. He walks over like he's about to choose a salad dressing at a salad bar, not making a decision, not making the decision that will affect whether I pass or fail. What if I put your graduation on the line, Glover? The sergeant asks. I'm making the same decision, Sergeant Glover responds. I like this guy. Well, I guess it's lucky we aren't doing that to you, Glover. Uh, the country take one round out and place it in a little ditch, proffering it to us like they're serving the dessert at a fine dining establishment. If you get a first round hit on our target, Kennedy, you graduate. If you don't, you fail sniper school. 
They choose the 788 meter target. It's the furthest one from our position. Mike looks at it very quickly and gives me the adjustment. His confidence and speed scare me a little. I'm not used to it after spending the whole course with my partner. Are you sure? I ask calmly. Mike repeats exact wing call he just said. I make his adjustments and squeeze the trigger. I see the impact and then a second later hear the ping. Dead on balls motherfucking accurate. <laughs> Mike claps me on the back and says good job. That was it. <laughs> fucking Glover, dude. Coming in hot. Um, that's awesome. So, Mike is a, is is a rare soul. Yeah, he's awesome. He is. He's he's a fierce, passionate human. Um, he's also uncompromising. Yeah, he does. I don't think there there there's something with him where he doesn't know how to back down to any fight. You know, whether he's like being censored on social media, he just doubles down. You know, if, if um, you know, in, in some of these schools, there were times where there they would question. You know, he's he's a, he's a, he's another Sif guy coming back from a combat deployment, and you know, maybe they're questioning uh, an approach that he would do, and he's like, "No, no, this is right. You're wrong." He never he would just not back down, and and I understate it there when the when they there there is a moment where they say, "Hey, what if we put your graduation on the line?" He waits. He's like, that won't change my answer, not a minute. He just stands there. And then they're like, okay, we're not going to do that. But Mm -hmm. he stood by those words where a random dude that he's never shot with on a random target with one bullet, a go, no go. And he was like, yeah, I got this. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah. Freaking legit. One of the few dudes on the planet that my phone rings, I'm going to go help him with whatever. 100%, man. Yeah. What a beast. Um. You graduate sniper school, obviously. You got another IFL fight, and you win. You do another all-Army combatives championship, and you win that for a third time. Yeah. Um, you get a sponsorship from Ranger Up. Yeah. With Nick. Yeah. Who wrote this book with you? That's right. <laughs> Nick is a former Army Army infantry officer, a right. West Point guy. Yep. Um. And he had started this company, Ranger Up, and I think you described it as like the first of the military apparel company thing. Yep. Yeah, is from grunt style to nine line. You know, there, 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 well, there are a plethora of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the two at the time, Ranger Up and Seven Six Two, were the like the two. Mm-hmm. Military apparel t-shirt companies that you'd see at the AFES or you'd see soldiers walking around bending or brag, you know, sporting their like tough guy shirts. <laughs> but uh, they were the first. Uh, you lose a decision to Jason Mayhem Miller. Mm, yeah, that sucked. I didn't lose that fight. You lost a decision. I to lost Jason Mayhem Miller. Yeah. How come you lost? Um. Man, I don't the uh if I went back one, one I didn't finish. The uh there are multiple times where I was in good position. There's there's a, a famous photo. I'm, I'm on his back. I have a rear naked choke and uh, and I'm like looking up at the refs and and at the judges being like yeah. show yeah, showboating. 
up against the cage. I have his back. Hooks are in. Rear naked choke is underneath there. And I'm doing like the Nick Diaz moment. Remember when Nick Diaz got that triangle in yep. and he like sits there Double and like birds, yep, yep. flips off everybody. Yeah. Imagine if that guy got out. Yeah. You know, like that was what happened a couple oh, of times. Okay. Not just once, but twice where I had, I'd already fought Jason before. Yeah. I fought him in the and eight tournament and I destroyed him. I mean, I just like massacred him. Threw him every which way. The rules were kind of pride, so I could mm-hmm. soccer kick on the ground. Uh, I could knee on the ground. So in the grapple transition, which is like where I really like to be, I was just inflicting nonstop damage for the whole entire duration of the fight. Similar to the f- time I fought Scott Smith, and then I fought Scott Smith again, um, and I lost to Scott Smith. I fought Jason. I smashed him, and then I fought him again, and I do the same fight. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> he he shows up different. It's like, again, I'm too stupid uh, <laughs> to change, <laughs> to adapt. So you kind of like go on a vengeance fight <laughs> after Jason Miller, uh, right? Yeah. And did, when you describe this in the book, man, you really, it sounded like you're a little bit sketched out about it. Yeah. You, 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 so just to set it up, you have, you have another MMA fight. You're about to deploy again. Mm-hmm. You're about to go to Afghanistan. And you have a bad taste in your mouth from losing to Jason Miller, and so you get another fight, and you like annihilate this guy. Yeah, yeah. There was um, there was no. I didn't. I didn't go in there to win. I went in there to like hurt. And I, I very, you you know this like high level athletes. They're not going in there. John Jones isn't going in there to like murder somebody. He's going in there to be a champion. And um, I was going in there to hurt whoever I was fighting. That was that was um, not typical of any time that I've ever fought. I wanted to be the best fighter that I could be, and I liked fighting. I didn't like fighting because I was going to hurt people. That's like psychopath stuff. Um, Losing that fight, getting ready to go to war into Afghanistan, and this is now 2008 Afghanistan, which is like 2006 Iraq. Like This is peak war, and I'm like in the zone. I wanted wanted violence, um, and I wanted to hurt somebody. So how'd you beat him? Was it like a mount? Oh, so round and pound. Yeah, I I pick him up and I put him on his ear. You know, I take the earth and I hit him in the face with the earth hard. And he's already on he's already on Wackadoodle Street when he hits the mat. And I I go straight into a ta- dominant position and I start dropping hammers. And um, you know, he's he's out in three, and I probably hit him nine times. And um, he, you know, when you're in that dominant position, your fist hits their face. Their brain hits their head. Their head hits the mount mat. The brain then hits the head again. So like your, like his brain is getting it's, concussed yeah. eighteen times. That's eighteen times. Yeah. And I was hitting hard. So. And he didn't get up for a while. He they they he they so he stayed unconscious in the ring. They brought in the stretcher. They moved him onto the stretcher. They carried him out of the ring. He's still unconscious. Like we're probably seven minutes into this. Ooh. He's been unconscious for. You know, six, seven minutes. Check. Yeah. But he's all right eventually. He's fine. Check. It, yeah. Uh, now it's time for you to go on deployment again. Yeah. You deploy as an, as an augment to help other groups as a, a sniper pair. Do I have that right? That's right. Did yep. I read that right? So we volunteered. The, the, you suck. This is pre first special forces command. They had seventh groups going over and they come and they ask for 
they come to the Halo Sniper team, which is the team that is on, and they said, hey, does anybody want to volunteer for this company's deployment? Because we are looking for this specific thing, and that was to be a sniper asset. That's kind of like as part of the Siege of Sodif asset. So if a team is going to go do a specific mission, they'll have this, these guys you know, kind of on the deck. Right. They can just, yeah, we got them. Here you go. That was the plan. Then as soon as you get there, your sniper partner, your shooting partner, his gets like a Dear John type letter yeah, situation. And, and the he, worst kind of Dear John letter. Bank accounts empty, oof. divorce papers served, motorcycles sold. He had friends calling him, be like, hey, bro, I just bought your guns. You know? She went like scorched earth. She salted the fields. Uh, this God. was total nuclear, nuclear on him. So he has to, so he goes home. Yeah. And this means Tim Kennedy's on a solo operation. <laughs> like, it's By myself in Afghanistan. Uh, and this is where the section that I opened the podcast from, um, the chapter's called The Valley of Death. And as I was reading this, I was getting uncomfortable and sketched out just reading it. I'm like, I, I don't like any... I didn't like anything about this, right? So you're, you're you're going on a resupply mission, you know? Resupply mission. Oh, we're going to go do resupply. Okay, let's think about what this means here. you got to go 150 plus miles um, from your location in Kandahar out to Fob Anaconda. The way that you're going to be going out there, and this is what you're writing about, it's a channelized road system. There's like, there's not a good way to go. No. Nope. It's just not conducive to... A, a comfortable passage, safe passage. Okay, so I'm, I'm now I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, well that kind of sucks, you know. But you know, sometimes you got to suck it up. And then I keep reading. You got eighty jingle trucks, eighty freaking supply trucks, but they're not American supply trucks. They're not driven by American army drivers. They're Afghan jingle trucks, which is like these. I don't know. They look like freaking gypsy yep, vehicles gypsy at best. Cats. Uh, bad maintenance on them, no armor, obviously, driven by Afghan drivers who have, you know, questionable loyalty. At best, they have questionable yep. loyalty. And then you've got, I mean, obviously, they got no comms. There's nothing. This is just, this is just, I don't, I don't like any of this. <laughs> and then you got your security force, which is made up of an American SF-18, right? Augmented by one Tim Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you guys got RGs, so you got the mine-resistant RGs. How many RGs did you have? Three. Okay, so three RGs. You got a Czech Special Forces company. They've got slick Humvees. And no, they have uh, Land Cruisers. Oh, okay. Oh, well, are they? They're not armored, though. No. Okay. So no. And that, so it was a resupply and an emplacement of the Czech company. Okay. okay. So it was a required. Um, we had to move these guys into this firebase. And so they had to go, they had to make this drive. They were, this company of Czech guys were going to be at Firebase Anaconda for the next year. And we had to resupply their substance for the next year. In addition to the ODA that was already going to be co-located on the, on Firebase Anaconda with them. Got it. And in addition to all of them, you also have uh, Afghan soldiers with you Mm -hmm. and they've got Humvees. The ANA commandos. Okay. How many of them did you have? We had, Let me uh, just rough numbers. Eight trucks. Okay. So you guys go on this. Uh, clearly, 
you were well not clearly but most likely compromised as soon as you leave because all you got all those afghan drivers and you guys did everything you took their phones and all the stuff that you're supposed to do but fighting starts almost as quickly as almost as quickly as you start Mm -hmm. i mean the fighting starts um and the sabotage that those things were happening as soon as we rolled out of the gate in addition to you know getting in contact within hours of leaving kandahar um each of the vehicles of the 80 vehicles you know we had three drivers in each vehicle so we had 240 afghans that were inside of these <laughs> blah, blah. yeah i love that you're just immediately like this is so terrible i don't like any of this no <laughs> Uh, but this is the this is the soft model. Yeah. Like this is the SF by with and through. You know, we're we're doing the special forces approach is we do everything through our partners. Mm-hmm. You know, the advise assist a company. We're doing a, this is a AAA mission. You know, mm-hmm. we're advising the Czechs, we're advising the Afghans, we're assisting them, and we're accompanying them. Mm-hmm. So this is this is this is a SF mission to the core. Mm-hmm. As dumb as it is. <laughs> <laughs> um. You got a Czech soldier that gets wounded pretty quick out of the gate. He gets medevaced out of there. Uh, eventually, you you hit this pressure plate ID. That's where I open the book, open the podcast up with. There's a the freaking vehicle in front of you lands on your vehicle. Yeah, that's a hell of a, an ID. Uh, you got small arms. You got RPGs coming in on you. And um, I got to read a little chunk from the book here. Get into some details. Dust is still fucking everywhere, but a lane of light clears from us to where the front vehicle had fallen off of our 60 meters away when we were backed up. It is eerie, kind of like when you're sitting on your couch on a lazy day looking out the window and you catch a beam of light and watch the dust particles whirl around inside it. The beams are on either side of us full of dust, but the lane to the vehicle is clear. It is almost as if God cleared a path for us but that path didn't make my life any easier. Those dudes are still alive. They're still fucking alive, Iris shouts out. He's right. I see it too. One guy is moving. I'm going to sprint to them, man, Iris yells to me. That's a bad fucking idea, man. And if you do it, we're all going to die, I tell him. There is no lack of seriousness in my voice. I do not think we have any chance of surviving that run right in the heart of this ambush. Iris looks it right at me and says, I'm going. He takes off in a dead sprint. I hear the guns pick up. They see him. I'm still holding my sniper rifle. For some reason, I don't grab my AR as I take a deep breath and sprint after Irish. I do not want to be doing this. I do not want to expose myself, but I don't want to fail my comrades even more. We get to the vehicle unscathed, and I look inside. Fuck, they are in bad shape. The first guy has lost both of his legs at the quads. They simply aren't there. I pull him out in a sandbag carry, and his bile and blood and guts spill out onto my uniform, rolling down my stomach and soaking my legs. Even with the adrenaline and the fear and the explosions and the bullets, I acknowledge that this is the most disgusting thing that has ever happened to me. Irish grabs the other dude, who is in rough state shape but still breathing. As we start moving the 60 meters back to our vehicle, I see a squad of six to eight young six to eight guys moving out of the woods to finish us. They are the assault element getting ready to fight to the X and kill those of us standing on it. 
I have a choice. I can drop this guy and leave him for dead so I can fight two-handed, or I can fire my cannon of a sniper rifle one-handed Rambo style in their general direction while trying to move my wounded guy to a high carry with one arm on the other side. Whether it is courage or because I knew Irish would have just picked him up and carried two guys, I opt for the one-handed fire. I know I am not hitting anything. I know I'm not even close. They see us. A squad against two guys who are carrying wounded Afghans and have no real ability to return fire. We are dead. Then, thank God, Keller sees them. The sweet melody of the 50 cal fills my ears and they evaporate. When I say that, I need you to understand what I mean. They didn't die. It wasn't like there were corpses sitting there. They fucking evaporated. There is just a pink mist floating in the air where they had been. It is like that Jake Gallenhall scene in Jarhead where he says he wanted the pink mist you see after pulling the trigger on a sniper rifle. I had never wanted it before. But right now, I have never been happier to see anything in my entire life. Keller just saved me for what proved to be the first time of many over the next few days. Yeah. I have recreated that, and I don't understand how Keller was able to shoot them. It doesn't make sense. We're in between him. He's mm-hmm. in an elevated position in on the top of a Humvee shooting down through us and around us and the the Taliban are below us. So he's he's like threading the needle mm-hmm. in between us with a fifty cal. You know, and that's a big bullet. Huh. And it's a big bullet that carries a ton of energy. And he is sixty meters away. So we're talking peak energy perfect trajectory one it doesn't make sense how he did it two um it wasn't pink mist it was just they were there and then they weren't you know there was a line of dudes it's the dumbest thing that we ran down to the x the kill zone of the ambush to grab those bodies because that's the last place that you want to go the first thing you do is get off the x Mm -hmm. (laughs) but irish goes down there and when we're dragging these bodies you know i have an sr-25 sniper (laughs) rifle with a suppressor on the end of it with a loophole magnified optic on top of it. And I have a dude like this trying to shoot. And then I also felt those rounds traveling past past us. And it was, it's like I was getting hit with that round going past our heads as those bodies just disappeared. It's wild. Keller. Uh, um, Keller. Yeah. God bless Keller. Mm-hmm. Freaking Johnny on the spot with the mod deuce. And God bless the mod deuce. When we <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Uh, this, hey, and if, if you're listening to this and you're like, wait a second, who's Keller and, and, and who's Irish? Yeah, you, you got to get the book. You got to get the book and you'll get the, the backstories on these guys. And these are um, current dudes as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just saying from the point of like, if you're, listening to me read this and you're like wait a second who's cal it's you need to read the story and you know you might not find out their you know, real their name and date of birth and their social security number but you'll f- it, the story will make a little bit more they will make total sense because i only read a little chunk of it um but just to give an example of number one what the book's like but also some of the intensity of the combat that you were that you're talking about and that you learned from uh this goes on, man. 
this goes on. What was the total? What was the total time it took you to get to um, Anaconda? From the time that we called a tick? No, from the time that you left. How many days was it? A week. And you guys are fighting kind of the whole time. Yeah, we we go we call a tick out of a tick in a tick out of a tick. We we call Broken Arrow at this ambush. So from the time that Broken Arrow is mm-hmm. is is kind of this. If you don't send us every available asset, we're all going to die. Type emergency call. Um, from that moment, we have three and a half days. Um, I think we had already been in movement for three days, so I guess six days total. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just so everyone understands that the broken arrow is a call that means you're going to get support, namely air support from all over the place Everything. to come and help you out. Yeah. Um, everybody that's available will come and give, give that support. Um, you, you eventually link up with the ODA team that's from Anaconda. They come mm-hmm. out to meet you guys, yeah, they're, right? They're fighting through the village to us and we're fighting through the ravine to them. And that happens about two, two, two and a half, two days into this gunfight. Eventually, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You get to this one of the villages that you were taking fire from. You guys decide you got to go in there. You got to clear this village of enemy fighters. This is now like urban combat. You're going street to street. You're going house to house. Um, at one point, there's a, a PKM, a machine gun, is just unloading rounds at your team as you're trying to push through this compound. Let me go to the book here. I can see the barrel of the PKM sticking out of a small window in the courtyard 25 meters away. The RG, that's your big uh, mine-resistant vehicle, the RG is still smashing into the wooden gate, but the door will not give, and the rounds are pouring out of the PKM into the vehicle. It's only a matter of time before we start getting killed. I need to take out that gun. I reach for one of my frag grenades, pull the pin, and take aim at the tiny window 20 to 25 meters away. If this wasn't combat, my friends would be laughing at me at this moment. You see, I suck at throwing. I mean, I really suck. Yes, I'm a professional athlete. Yes, I can do all measures of physical activity at a level most people can't fathom. But you know what I never did growing up? Ball sports. It was so bad that when I joined the special forces and had to throw something to one of my teammates, I believe it was a roll of 100 mile an hour tape, they were so horrified that they began instituting football throwing practice as part of my training regimen. I might be the only SF guy ever that as a new guy, in addition to the normal tasks of shooting, planning, and physical fitness, had to work on my spiral. But here I am, grenade in hand, with my team counting on me. And I launch it. And it is perfect. It isn't a lob that lazily floats into the window. It doesn't bounce in. It's a fucking Aaron Rodgers laser that flies from my hand and connects directly to that window. It is the best throw I ever made. In a weird, fucked up way, it is one of the happiest moments of my life. A grenade going off in the movies is very different from what happens in real life. It's not a giant fireball. It's not dramatic. It's a hollow thud. It's that late night sound of opening the refrigerator to see what's in there and the watermelon rolls out and hits the ground. 
That's all a grenade is after you throw it, a little hollow pop. And after you hear that pop, you either want to hear nothing or you want to hear men screaming. You do not want to hear women or children scream. You absolutely do not want to hear that. Yet that's what I hear. My soul churns inside. The helplessness tears me apart. I want to take that fucking grenade back so badly I can hear kids screaming. They don't understand why this is happening to them. I can hear mothers screaming. Mothers that are punctured by fragments of a metal and can barely hold their lungs. Their screams are the sounds only a parent can understand of desperately wanting to help your children but not knowing what to do to help them or in some cases knowing it is too late to help them. Every scream tears me apart. After everything I've been through, I thought my soul was dead. I was as hollow as a thud of that grenade. I thought there was nothing left. It all comes flooding back. I am a raw nerve of emotion. And each sound coming from that room burns me worse than anything that has ever happened to me. Shame, horror, and guilt at what I have just done envelops me. I have seen this before in others as an EMT, the drunk driver that has killed someone. They sat there on those street corners crying, trying to sort out in their heads the disparity between who they thought they were, a decent person, and what they had just done. But I cannot stop and cry. I have to move. Keller and I flow into the courtyard with the PKM out of commission. The RG gets more aggressive, and I see the wall start tumbling down. Everything is moving fast, and Keller and I do not want to lose momentum. I flow right, Mike flows left. The mission, This mission never would have happened in Iraq and goes against doctrine in any unit. In Iraq, we had a whole company of SIF working together to clear buildings. A normal infantry would have at least four on a door, followed by another fire team right behind them at a minimum, with another squad or platoon in support. We have a whole compound to clear, and it's just me and Keller. That's it. When I hit the first doorway, I instantly see food everywhere. It's a kitchen. I can smell the tea kettle with the clove tea that everyone here drinks. It has just been made. I can smell right now as I write this. It's amazing how smell stays with you. You can forget details and images, specific words and conversations, but the smell of a moment is forever. Curry, clove. The screams are louder now, and I move toward them. I follow a hallway to a 90-degree turn, and as I hit the edge of that corner, I get the first traces of smoke and dust from the grenade. At this point, I'm in this room somewhere between 30 to 60 seconds from the moment it exploded, and the scene is awful. It is worse than I expected. When you throw a grenade into a building that has walls two feet thick, all that overpressure has nowhere to go. This isn't America where the pressure will break the drywall or blow the door off. Their bodies took the brunt of it. There are two women, six kids, and an old man inside. I am once again that kid standing on the street looking at a crashed church van so desperately wanting to help but not knowing where to start. Except this time, in addition to being the guy who so desperately wants to fix it all, I am also the guy who crashed the van. 
I scream for the ginginator to come and help. Why the fuck isn't he in here? Because there no, there's no reason for him to be here. But I need this fixed. I cannot have this on my ledger. They have to be okay. He screams at me to come back and man the gun because he is running the grenade launcher and cannot abandon his post. I take one last look at the room. It is so dark. The floors are dirt and dust floats in the air. I am standing in a real-life nightmare, a horror film. The smell of death, emptied bowels, and vomit hangs in the air. The hot machine gun is right there. Someone was shooting it, goddamn. Who? The old man? One of the women? Someone else? Everyone that can scream is screaming. Some aren't. They aren't all going to make it. I did this. I am the bad guy. I hate war. The um, a couple of seconds before that, Mike Goble. He uh, as we approached that door that started getting disintegrated from the machine gun fire. I don't again can't make any sense of it as we approached the door i was on the right side he was on the left side i reached for the handle to push this door into the courtyard open and i mean athletically you know green berets are not small people like just bam pops me in the center and i fall away from the door as the door starts shredding fit machine gun fire to start zipping through it i don't know what he heard i don't know what he smelled i don't know what what happened i don't know if it was a sixth sense thing he shoves me a heartbeat before the door just starts disintegrating. That's the door that I throw the grenade through. As he like peels off to try and find Mike comes up and we end up clearing through that building. You know, the, um, when that grenade goes off, you know, it's just, that's it. And, um, it's overpressure that, that shoots tiny little projectiles of shrapnel in every direction, indiscriminately traveling in whatever direction and trajectory that they have. That Iranian that was in that machine gun position had body bunkered himself with women and children. And um, for them, you know, it's a win-win for them. We, we hurt civilians. It's a win for them, you know, or they're protected by these civilians and it's a win for them. They're a different type of evil as a, uh, I've, I've been attacked about this as if there was like any bravado or braggadocio pride in what happened in this. Like there's not, you know, there's, it's absolute uh, pain, but this is war. And as we have people that volunteer to go and do things, travel overseas or, you know, go to Ukraine and, you know, fight, fight for with them. You know, it's like you've seen war, I've seen war. And um, I'm always just like, even in America where people are talking about real revolution and I was like, bro, <laughs> like you don't know, like this is war. You know, this is, um, it's the worst thing that we can do to each other. We do it. 
the uh, a friend of mine um, did this show on the History Channel. Um, it's now they changed the name of it, but it's called the War Fighters, mm-hmm. and. I got interviewed for this show. It's about, is to highlight Mark Lee, who was in my task unit, who was killed in Iraq. But it's, you know, they, they interviewed us. It's a, he did a great job, the, the guy that put it together. Um, and it's awesome. It's an awesome program. But there's this one part that they edited out. It's me talking. And, and they're asking me about, uh, they're asking me about war. I don't even know what they're asking me. But I do know what I said. I, I start talking about, if you're going to go to war, you have to have the will. And there's two wills that you have to have, the will to kill and the will to die. And when I talk about the will to kill, what I, what I said was you have to have the will to kill, not just the enemy. Because when you go to war, civilians are going to die. And if you think you're going to somehow avoid that, that you're so good, or that things are going to go your way and it's not going to happen, you're wrong. So if you're going to go to war, you, yeah, you got to have the will to kill the enemy. That might not be that hard to fathom or to figure out. But you have to realize that civilians are 100% going to die if you go to war. And then, obviously, the other part of the will is the will to die. Because, once again, if you think you're going to go to war and you're not going to lose any of your friends, well, you're wrong. And you think you're not going to lose any brave American souls, you're wrong. So this is an example of that. This is another thing. Um, one, you know, I learned so much from the troops that I work with and and the conventional forces that I work with. The first, the five hundred six, they had a an expression that they said, "Good shot, bad result," which means, hey, this soldier was doing everything that they were supposed to do. They took a shot that was completely authorized, that made sense, that followed the ROEs, and it so happens that there was. Collateral damage. There was a civilian killed. The, it wasn't what it looked like. And it was a good shot. And they they did the right thing. But the result is bad. And that's, you know, when I was reading that, I was like, man, good shot, bad result. Yeah. Like, you're, you have to do, you have to take that risk. Otherwise, everything goes, goes to shit. Um, doesn't make it any easier, though. No. Nah. When you, when, when, when people, when shit like that happens, what, at what point do you think you started processing that at a deeper level, like thinking yourself, trying to understand it? Ah, man. And when we finally made it, you know, when uh, the Gingernator and I switched positions, now I'm pretty much seen red for a week. Mm. You know, I'm just like, in fight mode and uh, I get inside of the the RG and I'm on the grenade and I see squirters coming out of these buildings and I'm just like laying waste to these people uh, when we when we make the firebase anaconda and um, I'm avoiding going to the medic shed I'm by all me I'm not I'm not getting near it I'm not even looking over to that side of the base I'm playing sniper hopping up on top of roofs smacking dudes that are trying to embed IDs around the base um, I'm just like doing every activity that I can do to keep myself occupied from dealing with what is in the med shed with, which is all of these women and children that they're trying to save. When I finally go down there and, um, and I get to hold one of the children that was wounded, you know, that that's when I started finding 
purpose again, you know, that, uh, killing's not going to heal it. It might help a little bit. Sweat is not going to heal it. It's going to help a little bit. Sleep is not going to heal it. It's going to help a little bit, you know, but going and doing good and going and figuring out what is the next thing to do. Like that's really going to heal it. You know, that's going to help. So this ended up being a really significant kind of change in my approach to how do I deal with post-traumatic stress? How do I, you know, mental health? How do I, you know, it's, it's not any of these little things. It's all of them. Exercise, food, fitness, um, relationships, and also facing those demons. You know, like I, lit, I went into that and I picked up this damaged, wounded child that I, I damaged and sat there and face to face held, held this child. And, um, you know, smelled it, felt it. It's a little tiny heartbeat, just, you know, twice that of ours. Um, so I don't know how I faced it. I don't know how, like, I'm sure it's not fully healed. You know, the, uh, you reading it still is just like a gut punch. When I read it on the audiobook, and I had to stop 10, 15 times just to get through it. You know, I'd get up, I'd walk, I'd come back. And uh, that poor audio guy having to deal with, you know, this man child crying in between every sentence. Um, yeah. Do it better. You, you get in, um, pretty much you get to Anaconda, you, you sleep, you shower, you reload. Your sergeant major contacts you and he just wants you to get on a Blackhawk and fly back yep. to Kandahar. And the choice is yours, what you want to do. And <laughs> I mean, by all, by all meaningful consideration, the trip back is going to be the same as the trip out. Um, maybe even harder because now the enemy knows you're going to be coming back. Um, so you have a convenient little out for yourself. Yeah, a convenient little opportunity to uh, to to not have to ride this convoy back, and that's a decision point for you. And I, I gotta go to the book for this part. Um, you say I have to see this mission through. I thought about it all night while holding that little girl. There is a recurring pattern that is forming in my life, and I don't like it. I don't necessarily run from my problems but I'm definitely not addressing them either. I've always found a path around the thing that scares me, hurt me, or upsets me. It is the same unhealthy coping mechanism that I've used ever since Jared died. Fireman problems? Cool. No big deal. I'll become a cop. Screwed up my chances of becoming a cop because I paintballed a kid? Cool. I'll go in the army. And now my boss has teed up a perfect scenario for me to do that again. I can leave right now safely and go on another mission with the Brits or the French or get some cool combat patches from their militaries and pad my resume. No one would judge me. My boss is literally telling me he would like me to head back. I do not want to go back into that valley. I am scared as hell. But I can't shake that night in Iraq when John McPhee made me fight the entire team after I mouthed off. 
I said all the right things back then. I said I understood that the team can accomplish anything but the individual is weak. But I also thought that I'd beaten up eight of them. And even though they all beat me up, no single one of them could have taken me. I let myself cope with the humiliation by protecting my ego. I ignored the reality that no one man, least of all me, is that big of a deal. I'd heard the sayings before and thought I understood them. You don't leave a man behind. You fight for the man next to you. But I didn't understand them until this moment. There's always an easy way out. (laughs) There is. Um, In marriage, you know, um, you're traveling on work and uh, you go down to the lobby. You shouldn't have gone to the lobby, you know? You should have gone to the gym. You know, you walk through the lobby, you go to the bar. You shouldn't have gone to the bar. You should have walked through the lobby, got in your car, and gone to a jujitsu gym. But you didn't. You get there, there's a girl sitting down at the end. She's a flight attendant. You know, you could have not talked to her, but you did. There's always there's always an easy option. And um that hard right is 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 you know, so hard. <laughs> it's called the hard right. And uh, you know that that path, that that the high road is a lonely road that feels so destitute from from anything else that is the only road to be on you know and and this is one of those moments that it was so crystal clear it was so black and white and that doesn't happen very often in war where the where you're you're served on this platter these options of right and wrong and um, i had every excuse you know like i can fake this injury um man i i would have got selected but you know i rolled my ankle no, you didn't. You quit. You know, like, man, I, 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 I had my wife not been mean to me. Had she not talked smack before I went on this trip, you know, I wouldn't have. No, it wouldn't. You know, this is on you, man. So every single time that easy option, you know, you said the convenient choice, it's always right there. And, um, you know, for 20 something years, it was so simple just to make the, the easy wrong. You wrap up this chapter, you say, that mission to Anaconda defined me, and in many ways still does. It was the honor of my life to serve with these men. Every member of the ODA that fought through the valley received at least a bronze star. Every member of the check was awarded, the checks was awarded the silver star with one guy receiving the check medal of honor. An extraordinary number of men were awarded the purple heart. When I landed in Afghanistan, I wanted these things on my uniform. I wanted the bling that told people I was a badass. Now I felt like I didn't even deserve any of it. And I didn't want it if it was offered. I didn't even report my wartime injuries to my actual chain of command. Everything I had done thus far, ranger school, sniper school, deployments, fighting, were no longer accomplishments meant to stand alone. They were tools to make me better. And the only thing I proved on this deployment was that I wasn't good enough. And I never wanted to not be good enough again. I decide as I board the plane to fly back to fly back home to Fayetteville just as the UFC fight for the troops event is starting at Fort Bragg that I am going to spend the rest of my career stacking the deck in my favor so the men around me will never have a liability in their midst. I will never live up to being the man I once thought I was and I will certainly never be perfect but I can be better.
lessons are sinking in at this point. They're getting there. But it is, uh, it's tragic and embarrassing that this is what it takes for me to start learning. You know, um, these are hard lessons. But uh, now, you know, 15 years removed from some of this, those, um, these are lessons that I revisit. You know, I'm going back to that well all the time to drink from it. You know, the, the drink, the, that well of embarrassment, that well of shame, that, that well of pain, that the memory of mistake. And, um, that's fuel, you know, it's fuel that motivates when I'm like, man, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to this dumb resistance course. You want me to take a 40 hour resistance course? Okay. No, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you get back. And you're you're back in the fight game. You got a whole another career going. You know you're yeah. in the army, but you also have this other career going. You get a fight against Nick Thompson in Strike Force, and at this point, you're training at Team Rock in Fayetteville. Yeah. This is like a, a hard but basic gym. Yep. Um, and just like I said, it's like a hard but basic gym. You guys are you guys are going hard. Um, Nick, you you beat on June sixteenth, two thousand nine. You beat Nick Thompson. He taps from strikes. Mm-hmm. You're a positional grappler. You know about the. You, sometimes you just put a dude to a place he can't move. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that's hard. He's stuck there. Yep. And when somebody's able to sit there and rain down punches on you, yeah. and um, you know you can't get your arms free to tap, and you're just you're just looking for a way out. Yeah. Uh, Dominant grappling. The the. At this point, now, this is like the first little friction we start to see with the Army. At least, the, am I right in that? Like, yeah, the Army right. is now saying, because Strike Force is, you know, on TV and stuff like this, and the Army does not want you doing MMA. No. Which is a crazy thing to think about, man. What better representation for the U.S. military than to have a Green Beret out fighting in mixed martial arts on TV and winning and kicking people's asses. How is that not good? <laughs> I mean, I concur. Like, I, I agree with you. God. Yeah, but the chain of command, ultimately, like they didn't. So, you know, the motto of the Green Berets is the quiet professionals. And when you're, when you are a main event on Showtime, you know, like that's not quiet. <laughs> you know, um, you didn't, it, I, I, it wasn't this fight. Or was it this fight where they actually announced you? You know, you said, "Hey, I'm Tim Kennedy. I'm a you know a, a wrestler and a mixed martial artist from Team Rock." And they're like, "Okay, cool." And then they announce you as like Tim Kennedy, Special Forces right. Ranger Sniper. <laughs> you're right. like, "Uh oh." <laughs> like I don't know who told them. Okay, I didn't tell them this. You know, but they they, they had done figured it out. You you were ahead of your time with that though, because now you know, 15 years down the line, the the Army Marine Corps they sponsor you know. Timers on you know on every UFC fight. I mean yeah. every. I mean I'm, I paved the way for. We have professional gamers. We have yeah. professional fishermen. You know we, we have professional athletes. We just didn't know how to do it then. Yeah, and yeah. we're in the middle of war. Right. Yeah. right. So I do get it. You yeah. know, like how how can you go? They didn't know that they're going to have such a recruiting problem problem in two years from mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. Like in two years from that, they're like in a bad position. But at the time. 
teams are full dudes want to go to war they're not burnt out yet you know they're not quitting they're not going to find other jobs outside of sf because they're not ready to go on their ninth deployment Mm -hmm. um this is before all that this is peak war and uh then they have this dude that's moonlighting fighting (laughs) so you know while i say i don't understand uh how short-sighted they were i also understand you know know, if you were the commander and you're sitting there and you have one of your studs that's on the weekends going off to atlantic city and fighting in a mma bout wait is it even legal right now i guess it is in that state Mm -hmm. you know but john mccain is sitting there being like oh it's not legal in arizona Mm -hmm. you know and so it's i do also get it yeah i guess i can kind of get it too uh but it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> Dude, I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. Uh, you, you know, you got great advice. Ben Rios, who's a Green Beret. My brother. Yeah. Dude, he gave you s- such solid advice. And I, I'm going to quote it. He says, if the Army loved you, they'd figure a way to make this work. And he, he goes this this whole comparison between like, hey, if this was a girl and she really loved you, like, you'd figure out a way to work, make this work. He says, so if the Army loved you, they'd figure out a way to make this work. They'd make you sign a longer contract. They'd outline recruiting things you can do or deployments you're going to have to take. What, they, what they're doing isn't love. That's envy. Are you going to let someone else's envy dictate your life? That's a v- incredible advice. And, and what, what makes it incredible advice to me is... Ben Rios is obviously like a confident dude that was confident in his damn manhood to be like, oh, my friend Tim Kennedy's a badass, and I support him being a badass. He's my boss. Freaking awesome. He's, he's my senior eighteen Bravo. You know, and that is uh, so. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong, man. The layers of his wisdom, and he had done a lot of living, uh, good living in uh, being in seventh group for that long pre-war. So he had the war on drugs. You know, Colombia trips all up and down South America and Central America and the Caribbean during like seventh seventh group doing some pretty seventh group things. So there's a lot of experience in there. So when 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 he just truthfully, and he was, he's a very stoic person. Him to kind of just lay things out there, man. It was every single one of those words was just resounding in my brain because he, you know, he meant it. Like, what a great human. The envy part, like, man, it just hurts. Like, it for someone not to see you do being successful and being in part of your community and being like, hell yeah. Instead, being like, what the hell is he doing? That to me, that smells. It smells like envy. It smells like jealousy. That's what it smells like. To Those me. aren't good characteristics. Yeah, um, I was telling somebody the other day I was coming on here, and they started shooting rounds off your bow about you, <laughs> about your career, and about how you, like how you are as a, as a as a real leader. And I'm sitting there just like listening to this person, you know. And I'm like every word that they say, it it is so apparent how pathetic they are. You know, the, how envious they are of your success and how jealous they are. And anytime that a veteran is, is talking negatively, negatively about a veteran, I'm always like, what's going on with you? But then when they start taking shots, shots that are usually unfounded and or fabricated or even worse, com- complete just lies out of positions of envy. This, that's a bad, that's a dangerous position to be coming from. Yeah, it's a, it's a bummer, man. It is, uh, it's sad. You know, one of my buddies, uh, Stoner, he was trying to go to Princeton 
he's a SEAL officer, and there was like this weird program where he could go to Princeton. And he and he's so he wasn't he worked for me. Now he wasn't working for me. And he says, "Hey, you know, I'm, I I want to go to this program to go to Princeton." And he goes, "What do you think of that?" I goes, "It's freaking awesome." Why? He goes, "Like some other people are telling me that like I shouldn't go, and it's it's going to be a bad move for my career." And I was like. Bro, <laughs> who's telling you that? Like, that's the most insane thing I've ever yeah. heard. I was like, you know what that is? That's jealousy. That's someone thinking, oh, now this guy's got combat experience and he's and he's also going to be a freaking Princeton guy. Oh shit, I can't yeah. compete with that. I, no, you shouldn't go. I was like, dude, a hundred percent go. I go, you'll have my punk card when it comes to education. You can be like, oh, I went to an Ivy League school, bitch. He's like, cool, <laughs> I'm going, and he ended up going. But uh, yeah, that's a bummer. It seems like there's. Unfortunately, some of that activity going on here. Um, it's cool to get a litmus test, though. You know, I, I have I have a few friends that every time somebody, I'll like name drop them. And I know these people very, very well, but they don't know how well I know them. Um, but they know like the public persona of this person. And when they start just like racking off about this person, man, I know about you now. Like you done fucked up. Like I know that my, my little person is my litmus test who I know is a great person that I know is a, is a selfless servant that is a good father that is faithful. And you're like, you're listing all these things that I know to be, to be lying. I know for a fact to be lies and you're just regurgitating the same bullshit that everybody else says. It's like, got you, bro. I got your number. Gave away that position. Yep. <laughs> That's a bummer, man. Uh, luckily for you, the Texas National Guard. Nice step up, man. <laughs> the, guard, the Guard has been so good in, in so many ways. You know, they behind the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, carved, like etched in stone. You know, it says, you, they, uh, we don't accept the soldier and lay aside the citizen. That's so beautifully said. And uh, we, we always look to the soldier, to the Marine, and... Uh, and we forget that that's a person, right? That that is a citizen first. And we have these these sometimes unrealized these unrealistic expectations about who this person, who this citizen is, and what they should be doing, and how they're going to behave in war. And we we take this these expectations and we throw it in front of them, and it's it's not real. You know, like that is a person first and foremost, and it's a citizen that you know is married and that has a family that wants to provide for their family, and they they have aspirations and they have goals, and they're also human. You know, they make mistakes and they don't do the right thing. And you know, behind the tomb, the unknown soldier etched like that. And it's one of my favorite things to to look back on every time that I'm looking at it, whether I'm in a position of leadership and I'm, and I'm looking at a soldier about his behavior. I always look at like who that person is first in the context of, of them as a citizen and as an individual and as a human. Then I move on to what is happening as a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, when we got to Ramadi, the groups on the troops on the ground were national guard unit out of Pennsylvania and a bunch of other places. But, oh man, what a bunch of studs. Some and, of them. Yeah. Well, for us, all of them, uh, every one of them, I, you know, like what they did and the lessons they taught us and they were just awesome, awesome human beings. Um, and luckily the national guard is not technically the army. Active and, Army, yeah. So you were able to get in the National Guard, which is So the National awesome. Guard requires you to be a citizen. Mm. So you have to have a full-time job because the National Guard, you, know, like you only work a percentage of the year, you know, about a, uh -huh. about a month out of the year 
two months out of the year, you end up working cumulatively for the National Guard. The rest of the time, you got to put food on the table. And however you ever do that, that is your job. You know, as um, some people are senators, some people are um, plumbers, electricians, police officers, work for the Department of State, you know, lots of different jobs. I was a fighter. (laughs) (laughs) So you're training. So are you still training at team? Where where are you training now? Do you down in Texas now? So I do one fight out of Texas when I fight Jacques Ray for the world title. And, and then, this is for the strike force. Yep, for the strike title. force middleweight title, and you lose. Yep. And how you, you say it so just clear. <laughs> Dude, you know, I barely I, lost that fight. No, I know. You know and what? I think I won that fight. He's like, oh, yeah, you just lost to Jason. No, yeah, I just lost so to Yeah, for me, it's like this. I like, I, I hate that you lose, bro. I don't know if you can hear that. I'm like, and you lose. <laughs> like, I it lose. bothers me so much, yep. man. Uh, I don't know. I yeah. Um, and that was like a close fight, right? Against Jacare. And what, you didn't really like let it go or something in that fight? <laughs> yeah, I, I fought like a super conservative. You know, I'm, I'm beating him on the ground. I'm throwing him around, but I'm, I'm not taking any risks. I'm mm-hmm. not really um, pushing the pocket. Uh, I, was, I, I was apprehensive to go to the ground with him until I finally went to the ground with him. And I p- picked him up and I threw him on the ground, passed his guard. He like, should have done it the whole entire time. My game plan was I thought he was going to try to take me down and I'd be piecing him up on his feet because my wrestling was going to be better. Um, except that he didn't want to go to the ground. He thought my wrestling and my jujitsu was as good as his. So he wanted to stand up and strike. And it was three, four rounds into it when I was like, oh, he's not trying to actually. What's, what's going on here? Maybe I should change my plan. Uh, and that's when you realized you needed uh uh, to go to one of these professional camps. Yep. Um, and, is, and and your your decision was kind of between between uh, AKA, Jackson Winklejohn and AKA. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up going to Jackson Winklejohn. Yeah. Um, and do talk about. So at this point, you got GSP and Rashad Evans. They're both champs. John Jones is on on fire on the way up. Carlos Condit, Cowboy Cerrone, Nate Marquardt. Holly Holm, Alistair Overeem, Keith Jardine. I mean, this is like a freaking killer crew. Dude. Killer crew. Salty. Um, and the variety from the young, hungry John Jones to the prestigious, the prestigious athletic prowess of Rashad to the international experience of Alistair Overeem to Holly Holm, who had, I think at this time, maybe a dozen boxing titles. Um, and then Carlos Condit and Cowboy Cerrone and Damasio Page, who, who had been winning titles in different organizations all over the place. So when you walk in here, you just see like walls of belts, walls of belts of world championships. So it's um, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you talk about rolling with John Jones for the first time or training with John Jones. You said that was kind of next level scenario. Yeah, there was, um, I'm joining Gordon Ryan these days, Mm -hmm. and he's the only person that I can kind of equate it to where, like, we've been grappling for 30 years, and, uh, like, we got tricks up our sleeves, Mm -hmm. and I I won't teach a trick. I will use a trick, and they will not, like, recognize it, absorb it, Mm -hmm. and then apply it in the same, in the same flow of a round. Yeah. I've never ever in my best moments ever learned or been able to adapt that that fast john was so k 
capable physically, but intellectually, and it's weird that you put in like the cognitive elements of fighting, but he, yeah, he's, he's a savant, mm -hmm. you know, he could take something in real time and artistically steal it and then put his own flair to it and then do it back to you in a heartbeat. Yep. And, um, that's who that's, that's, that's the John Jones that I meet when I get to Jackson's, you know, it's the same Gordon Ryan that I, that, that humiliates me every day on the mat right yeah. now. <laughs> The world is going to have to wait for Gordon to decide he doesn't want to win anymore. As far as I can tell right now, <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> He's just a savage. The, um, I can hang, I can go in there with the whole room, all the dudes and I can, you know, like I'm 44, you know, 43. I can do fine. Um, not get embarrassed, you know, lose some positions, you know, maybe occasionally get caught with Gordon. I can't breathe unless he wants me to breathe. Mm -hmm. I can't score a position, a point, a takedown. He will give me an arm bar like this mm -hmm. and dead to rights. I have it all the way in and, uh, and then he just moves and gets out of it. He will never be beaten unless he's bored and uh, he wants to do something else. Dean Lister. I had Dean Lister came in one day and he's like, Hey, hey arm lock me. And I go, okay. So I put an arm lock on him and he gives me his straight arm. Not like clinched up, like he gives me his straight arm. And he's like, okay, I'll say go. He he says go and he gets out. Straight arm lock, bro. I mean, it is extended. I'm gonna all I have to do is move my hips, whatever, three inches, and he gets out. And he does this five times in a row. And then he says, Okay, he goes, so let me show you what I did. And he goes, okay, now you try. And then he submitted me five times in a row. Like, I couldn't get out of this shit at all. Uh, another interesting story. This just happened. We were doing a seminar. or We were we were teaching, like, some basic self-defense. And he's teaching uh, a way to get out of, what position was it? Oh, like, someone's just bear hugging. It's a basic self-defense. It's a bear hug, right? And there's a guy in the crowd, and he says, hey, with, with this hand, do this, and with this other hand, do this, and, you know, go. And then the guy raises his hand, and he's like, yeah, what's your question? And the guy says, hey, I only have one hand. Uh, what should I do? And Dean, without missing a beat, he's like, oh, when you only have one hand, you turn your shoulder a little bit more and come over like this. He had the answer, like, completely on the tip yeah. of his tongue. So cool. For a, for a one-handed <laughs> grappler, bro. I was like, this is crazy. Um so yeah, that's what that's what I see. Like Gordon's just gonna be. There's people out there like that. Uh, I'm cornering for Roy McDonald in a couple of days with John Danaher. Mm -hmm. uh, Roy is fighting for the PFL, uh, the Red King, mm -hmm. like yeah, the yeah. amazing athlete, yeah, yeah, for sure. And Danaher is uh, he's weird. He's brilliant, <laughs> but that room, ju just like. At Jackson's in the peak, just like going into an ODA when they're getting ready to go to war, there's like this this palatable tension of people starving to get better, like people starving for perfection, and it is it is the most contagious place to be. And I I I, I know you've been gravitating in different you know entrepreneurially into different business adventures, um, like you want to be part of this like hunger of this this starve this drive and it's almost it's hard to describe what what it is when you got in, when you walk into a room that's what the Danaher team is like right now yeah you know when you got the Gary Tonins and you got the Savage. the Gordon Ryans you Savage. know and you got the Giancarlo Bedonis yeah. you know and you have 
Uh, just like the list goes on and on. Is Gordon going to fight MMA? I know he's signed to. Oh, really? Yeah. With in one, one, right? Yeah, yeah in one. Yeah. Dude, the dude hits hard. Uh-huh. He physically is a freak. He could make 205 if he wanted. He doesn't need to. Um, his wrestling is amazing. His judo is amazing. Obviously, his jiu-jitsu is um, perhaps the best ever. Mm-hmm. The um, I don't know if he needs to. Mm-hmm. Does he want to? Sometimes. Uh-huh. You know, he, he sees, because I, I still train full MMA. Uh-huh. So I box a couple of days. I wrestle a couple of days. I do jujitsu a couple of days. Then I hit strength and conditioning, you know, five five days a week. So there's my, you know, nine to 11 workout sessions in mm-hmm. a week. And, um, but you know, he's doing 14 mat sessions a week. Like he, he'll have to give up yeah. 10 or 12 of them to focus on MMA. Yeah. I don't know if he could do it. I'm not sure I want him to. Yeah. I kind of want him to, to be honest with you. Cause it, it just, I think it'd be cool to get that, get that, get that kind of skill level in there. Yeah. And, and also you never know. Man, you never know. Like, yeah. he if I was him, I would want to know. Yeah. Like, I would want to put it to the test. Let's go and and see what happens. Yeah. It'd be rad. Gordon, I vote. I'm voting for you to fight, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing checks that I don't have to cash with your ass. So, sorry there, Gordon. Uh, so, you're in there now. You got, you got, um, you start fighting. You beat Melvin Manhoff. You beat Robbie Lawler. Lawler. Which is, I mean, those are two freaking yeah, beasts. Rearranges my nose, though. Oh, uh, yeah. That's Robbie right there. Was that, yeah, Robbie Long? Yeah, it's Robbie Uppercut. Right here. Asshole. He's a beast, though. Yes, I love him so Legend much. Clock. He's a great Legend. human, too. Yeah, Dude, he's just freaking awesome. He was a southpaw blasted with my head on center double leg as he threw a rear hand uppercut and just like put me on Queer Street, man. <laughs> he's like, Yada! Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the UFC buys Strike Force. Oh, and they get me. And with that, they get all the fighters and all the contracts. Yep. And so, boom, you end up in UFC. And you kind of talk some smack about you <laughs> about UFC. Yeah. You kind of talk some shit about UFC because UFC was bigger, but like more corporate. They were had more control. They were, they could get away with more with the fighters. They didn't have to give as much. And you didn't really particularly like that too much. Um, so you talk shit a little bit. What'd talk shit. I, I said that. <laughs> Did you not? I said. Okay. What I said, Jocko, is that a, a garbage man has a better career than a UFC fighter. Okay. Is that shit talking? Gary, you be the judge. Shit, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Am we're, I wrong? We're, no, you're not wrong, okay. but we're shit talking. You know, we're talking yeah. union <laughs> yeah. wages. Yeah, right. We're getting legitimate medical care. Yeah. You're going to only have to work shifts. Um, you know, a manager's not taking 20% of my purse. Right. I think there's no way that a garbage man isn't making more money than 95% of the UFC yeah. roster. There's yeah. no way. And it's, it's all facts. Talking. It's all facts. It's all that's facts. all facts. Yeah. And that's what pissed Dana off yep. is because I wasn't wrong. Yeah. Yep. You know, if you weren't, if you weren't John Jones, if you weren't, you know, Connor hadn't hit the the scene yet. Like you're, if you're not mm-hmm. the Chuck Liddell, yep. you're not making bank. Yep. Yep. Um, 
Dana White not too happy about that. He was mad. Yeah. And 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 look, to Dana's uh side, you know, he's trying to grow this thing. He's investing all of his money to advertising and do it, the expansion and all this stuff and like he gets to the bottom of that list and it's these fighters, you know. Yeah. And they're just wanting to get in there, so there's not much real demand signal for him to pay them all kinds of money and they're still not. Yeah. They're still yeah. getting they're still getting the shaft. Yeah. Uh but so Dana, I mean, I don't know if this is a direct result, but it kind of looks like it. You get your first UFC. Is this your first UFC you fight? First UFC fight. First UFC fight, and you get paired up against Hodger Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> Stylistically, we're talking about the greatest grappler on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. As my first fight. Yeah. And this seems like a good way to get rid of Tim Kennedy mm-hmm. and get him out of this game if you don't want you don't like the money here cool we're not going to pay you because you're going to be gone how about this we'll we'll send you roger gracie roger gracie yeah uh you kind of messed up dana's plan on that one a little bit yeah so before the fight he takes all the fighters he kicks out all the coaches and he just berates us he's like listen if you guys want to make more money you go out there and make it i'm not going to name any names tim kennedy but let me tell you what if you want to go out and make money don't grapple wrestle fuck somebody i want you to go out there and knock them out you know if you want to get the payday go out there and put do the work this is in front of all the fighters in the locker room Damn. calling me out by name i'm just like do 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 you know chris liebens in there connor's in there uh i mean there's like this is awkward <laughs> and uh so he's like so what i do i go out there and wrestle fuck the living daylights out of Hodger Gracie. Bro, that was a that was insane. That was an insane fight. Um, yeah, Hodger Gracie is. I mean, just just going off the stats of his life, he's absolutely one of the greatest grapplers of all time. No gi, no gi across the board. He's just he's just awesome. And actually, he he, he was on your back for what two minutes, three minutes? <sighs> yeah. Um, so I shoot a single. He's six. Eight. Which is bizarre, anyways, that you're shooting a signal, right? That's freak. That you're shooting on him is kind of bizarre. Was was that your game plan? Like, I I can take this guy on the ground. I wanted to put him to. I wanted to push him to the fence, and I was using a leg attack to pressure him to the fence. Okay, and uh, except that he's long enough because he's a, essentially a giraffe. Is, or he, he, is he six eight? I think he's six six or six ten. Okay, he's wildly tall. Okay, and he kicks a foot up and around <sighs> as I'm on his single and gets a hook. Around my back while I'm on a sink. Just get at it. This yeah. is lame. Then takes my back. Mm-hmm. You do not want hot. His best position is back. Mm-hmm. And so I have the best grappler in the world in his best position. And we're 90 seconds into the round. Dude. Lame. It's a lot harder to put a rear naked choke on someone with gloves on. It is. It is a lot harder, right? Yep. And it's a lot harder when somebody can punch you. Yeah. You survived that. And then he's tired. Yep. Um, he, he put it all out there. Yep. It is a weird energy system when you like you do this isometric hold, and every choke has a different squeeze. Mm-hmm. You know, like my guillotine has a different squeeze than my than my rear naked choke. My head and arm choke has a different squeeze than my ledge de padre. You know, and he definitely like get hit the gas yep. and just dumped everything into that rear naked choke. And when when he started getting punched, and I pulled his hands away, and I did that back back, back escape, you could just feel his adrenaline dump. It's just tanked. There's something all the psychological impact of you have a great position. You should finish this fight right now. Oh, you can taste it. I mean, let's face it. You know, he gets your back and he's like, oh, 
This is over. Yep. And then all of a sudden, he's a minute into. He's like, okay, it's not quite as over, but I'm still going to finish it. Oh, it's not over yet. It's th- three minutes here. You know what? I'm going to squeeze as hard as I can and get this thing finished. I can taste it. Yes, no. I didn't have to worry about this. Who this guy? Who's this Tim Kenny? I'm not worried about that anymore because now I get to go and celebrate this big victory. And he just got out. Yep. And I got all these rounds, and I just gave up the best position I have. That hurts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I experienced that myself in, in the Yoel Romero fight yeah, a little while later. Yeah, that's um, you know it's uh it, it's hard when you you have everything and then the mo- momentum just goes. Mm-hmm. You know, it happens in war too. Like it feels everything's going going right. You know, you're just smashing it, and then all of a sudden, <sighs> a RPG yeah. hits, yeah. and all the momentum stops. Yeah, you know, uh, but you end up just just actually dominating him. All respect to Hodger Gracie. But you freaking t- were taking him down. Yeah. And and I take him down more times in that fight than his entire career cumulatively. And I land more punches on him in that one fight than in his entire career cumulatively. Yeah. It was a freaking impressive damn display. And you know what? You know how there are these times where I was like, and then you lose, and I'm all sad? I was freaking like, damn. Finally. That's right. That's Finally he up. pulls one out. That's what's up, man. Yeah. America, baby. Um, so that was awesome. You Then you have fight for the troops in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the 101st Airborne Division is. Mm. You fight against Hafiel Natal. Stud. Love that guy. You get a KO in the first round. The crowd goes freaking insane um, because you're you, and the crowd is the crowd. The crowd is a yeah. bunch of soldiers, man. It's just like fifth group is there, one sixteen there, one hundred first is there. I mean, I deployed with every single one of these guys. Went to Q course with a whole bunch of them. One of the dudes, as I'm walking out to the octagon, he leans forward and he's he's like trying to grab me as I'm walking to the cage. The last time I saw his face when is when I was handing one of my studs to him after getting blown up. The last time I saw that face, face to face, was when I was giving him one of my dudes. Just like, this is wild. That's the emotion walking out to the cage. Every military fighter that had fought that night had lost. And then I'm the final main event. It's all on me. Main event fight. Every military guy has fought and lost. And, um, you know. Hype. Yeah. A lot of of emotion in there. And, and next up is Bisbing. Mm. <laughs> Douchebag. <laughs> uh, you guys had some bad blood. Um, and this goes on for years. Like, yeah. it's years worth of bad blood. Yeah, he fought one of my buddies, um, Jorge Rivera, cheated in the fight, bragged about it. He spit on one of my friends during the fight, like, literally, like, spat on him. And, uh, and then said a whole bunch of hellacious things about Jorge's family and just bad human things and so from that moment i i had a target on him you know i was like i want this guy you know you don't you don't disrespect my friends like that you don't spit on have you ever spit on somebody no have you ever no no right like who does that i'm i'm quickly like reviewing my life (laughs) i just gave you an honest answer there was there was one incident i got spit on and that that didn't turn out well that resulted in a bad night. Yeah. yeah. For for the other person. For the other guy, yeah. yeah. I got was that when you were a bouncer or something? Uh, no, that was uh, back when I was in the Marine Corps. Oh, really? Yeah, that was an issue. Yeah. What yeah. happened? <laughs> so so, so uh, Greenville, North Carolina, 
uh, Party Town ECU. Oh, yeah. Um, and we were, it was after a night out, we were all, you know, hammered uh-huh. uh, in, in my buddy's apartment. Fight breaks out in the hallway. And me and my buddy go out there to see what's happening. And uh, it's a it's a friends of ours. And uh, fight goes down. Long story short, uh, everybody's dispersing. We're breaking it up. And um, I'm trying to help break up this fight. And uh, I'm holding the guy back. And I'm like, look, man, calm down. And he's like, man, like, fuck you. And, like, spits in my face. Mm-hmm. So Double leg ground and pound. <laughs> we're, we're standing in front of a stairwell. And this guy gets Sparta pushed essentially down the stairwell. Oh, damn. Yeah. And it was bad idea. Do not push people when you're around stairs. It's, it's a bad idea. Uh. This guy breaks his arm. Uh. Um, yeah, it turned into a whole thing. It got <laughs> reported, you know, to my command. Oh, it was just yeah. bad business. Don't do that. Or you know? don't spit on somebody. Yeah. And don't spit on people. Or get That's, thrown down the yeah, stairs. Yeah. <sighs> So as I reviewed my life over here on my end, uh, I have to confess, uh, this is going back way back. I'm I'm probably 12 years old. Mm. And there was friends of the family. They're staying at at my house. The kids, the parents went some like vacation somewhere and the kids stayed at our house. And like, these are like our, you know, friends of the family scenario. And the kid, the son is, the daughter's my age. The son is maybe two years younger than me and he like well playing around kind of he spit on me mm. right and i was like oh so i i chased him and eventually i caught him and i i had the for whatever five minutes of chasing him around i was saving spit in my mouth no. and i pinned him down before we knew what the mount was i got the mount on him held his hands down by the wrists and I didn't spit on him. I drooled on him for Ugh. about 30 seconds. <laughs> and as I was doing it, he was shaking his head like, no, no, no. And it was just going all over his face, bro. Sorry about that, Tommy. I did, you know, all, all in good fun. But uh, I think you, you drew first blood, bro. So that's what you get. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bisbing drew first blood, and I drew last blood. That was it. <sighs> What I like, my favorite part about reading about that fight was when you're you have a good first round, you have like an okay second round, and Greg Jackson gets you in the corner and he goes, "Specialist Kennedy, why do you want him back in this yeah. fight?" I was like, "That is so freaking brilliant." Yeah. I took him into deep waters, like the Khabib quote: "Take him to the deepest waters of the ocean, drown him there." First round, take him down there, and then second round, I just started like playing, and um. And Jackson was just like, why do you want Specialist Kennedy? Why do you want him back in this fight? You know, take him back into the deep waters and drown him there. I was like, Roger. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's J- Greg. He, he is brilliant. He oh, really yeah. is a brilliant guy. Yeah. He knows how to get to his fighters. And, man, he got to me. And then that third round came, and it was a different thing for the, for the next few rounds. I was sitting at my office at Trade at one day, and I get a call, and they're like, Hey, Jocko, there's some guy named Greg Jackson from the UFC that's getting a tour today. Do you want to give it to him? And I was like, what's his name? And they go, Greg Jackson. I go, hell, hell yeah. Yes, I do. And that's how I ended up linking up. with. But we, back in the day, we used to wrestle. We used to compete against all those guys. They'd come out here um, and enter all these grappling tournaments. And we'd we'd be competing against them. I remember uh, I, I had a match against Keith Jardine. And 
I lost. Yeah, I lost. But Dean, he had to go against Dean. And I was like, hey, Dean. I go, uh, he's like, hey, so what's the guy like? And I go, I go, he's strong. You know, he's a good grappler. I go, but his wrestling is not very good. And he goes, oh, okay, cool. And Dean goes out and gets taken down by like he joined in the first like ten seconds because he was like so I like relaxed Dean too much on the yeah. takedown and so mean Keith Jardine took Dean down and and then I think Dean got a knee lock on him and Keith's hard to finish dude Keith D- Dean got a knee lock on him and Dean he did not tap and I've been in a thousand of Dean's knee locks and I've tapped to nine hundred and ninety seven <laughs> of them and Keith Jardine was just like whatever and and Dean beat him on points but damn I was like hey dude this dude ain't tapping for no- I, I would see him in the UFC I'd be like this guy's not tapping nope. anything ever in the UFC ever when um I was, I was getting ready big fight um peak fight camp type shape and Keith comes in to be a, a body for me and um He's he's not in fight he's not in fight shape. I think he's even already retired. He's literally just like dropping into the gym to be a good friend, be a good teammate. And um, I do a round with him, and it's competitive. I do the second round with him, and he starts beating me. Th- I do a third round with him, and he mops the floor with me. And um, he just outconditions me, outworks me, hits the takedowns, gets to positions. I'm scrambling to get away. I'm fighting to get back up. I'm just losing everything everywhere. And there's a photo of me on my knees at Jackson's, and I'm just sitting there, and you can see and blurry out of the in the background is Keith heading the bag. He just got done murdering me for 15 minutes. And then he goes over and he's hitting the, and I'm just sitting there like, what just happened? I'm in fight shape. I'm ready to go. I'm two weeks out. You know, I'm starting to peak. And he just comes in. I mean, Keith is, he's a freak. Yeah. And he's a great person. Oh too. yeah. A super nice guy. Um, Remember when he beat Chuck Liddell? How did he beat Chuck Liddell? He outpointed him in strikes. Damn. That's crazy. Peak right? Chuck too. What yeah. a beast, Keith yeah. He was just one of those guys that went. Man, when he showed up, yeah. Hasn't he been in movies now and stuff? Yeah, he, he's he's a great actor. <laughs> he's like the the ever villain. He's so awesome. He's a great yeah, actor, of course, though. dude. A typecast that guy all day yeah. as like the meanest guy in the bar. Good stuntman too. Yeah. When I when I made that movie Range Fifteen, he came out and helped us. Do he and Greg came out. We lost our stunt coordinator, mm-hmm. and Keith and Greg came out and helped me save the day. So, good friend, love you, Keith. <laughs> uh, you were mentioning Yoel Romero, September twenty seventh, two thousand fourteen. This is you want to. <clears throat> this seriously bummed me out, bro. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so bummer night. Good word. So this. So you're so now you're at a point you've been winning you've been winning you beat Bisbing you beat these all these other guys Lawler Manhoff uh, Hodger Gracie Rafael you're on a streak and so now it's starting to look like title shot time yeah Bisbing's and, champion he, uh, he just beat Luke Rockhold oh that's right that's right chopping left hook yep. on a on a two week notice mm-hmm. good for Bisbing good on him yep. um. So now Bisbing's the champion. So now you're like triple hungry. Yeah, you're like that's chopping at the bit. <laughs> and you got Yoel Romero, yep. who is a, a a Cuban dude. He's a silver medalist wrestler. If you don't know who he is, just picture superhero human looking body. I mean, he looks like a freaking yep. mutant. Uh, 
and this is a hell of a fight. And he's on a streak too. He's destroying people yep. on I'm, his side. I'm three. He's two in the world. First round. It's a close round. Um, it's a close round. Yep. Competitive back and forth. Maybe throws, he, takedowns. Maybe if I was a judge, I'm judging. I'm giving him the first round. I don't know. Is that right? Is that accurate? You think? It's it's super close. It's close. Second round. Uh. You catch him, mm-hmm. and you catch him with like the mayhem combos, and you have him rocked beyond rocked, and it's it's about to be over. Like you got this, dude. It's done. Um, then the bell goes. So he's 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 saved by the bell, which unfortunately in MMA that's a thing. And if you if the bell goes, it's over. Yep, that, that round is over. Um, but you got him, man, like dead to rights. This guy's down. Yep. You're definitely going to get him in the next round. He goes to his corner. You go to your corner. The, like the call comes seconds out, which is so in MMA, you're all your corner. You, you know, like I'm a, I've been a corner man. I'm much like you, I'm working on Tim. I'm telling you what's up. And then the, then the, the refs say seconds out. Yep. They do that at like 50. 45, 50 seconds. They're telling you seconds out. That means you, as a corner, need to get out of, get the stool, get the water, get the ice, get all that stuff out of the ring, and you got to get the hell out of the ring. That call comes, his corner doesn't leave. Nope. Now the round starts. Bing. Round starts. And his corner is like, they spilled ice. They're like, t- they're trying to converse with them. They're telling him to get out of the ring. They're saying they don't know what's going on. Another 47 seconds goes by, which, listen, 47 seconds to recover is is an, an absolutely immense amount of time in the sport Ten of seconds MMA. In boxing. 10 seconds in boxing. Uh, it is so much time to recover that it's ridiculous. So he doesn't answer the bell. So, yeah, so if you don't get up, you lose. Athletic you, commission, the rules are super clear. Bell sounds, uh, you have 10, if you are not in the fight in 10 seconds, it's DQ automatically. That's just the way that the rules read. But back to uh, the Hodger Gracie, you know, um, at bing, round fight, the start, the round starts fight doesn't commence and I look at him not getting up and I see John dealing with things. Oh, this is Hoel. This is against, you said Hodger. This is Hoel. This is against this Hoel. Is Hoel. Yep. But back to Hodger Gracie, uh-huh. I start de- departing. Like I start getting the adrenaline up. The fight's over. Oh, I'm, this is with Hodger? No. When, oh, with Hoel. What happened with Hodger Yo-well. when Yo-well. when I got out of his rear naked choke and he had that big adrenaline oh, dump, yeah. I started experiencing the same thing against Yoel, where I'm starting to think about my after party. Yep. I'm, my mouthpiece is out. You know, I'm looking at Dana White being like, you're going to pay me and you're going to give me this title fight. I earned this. I did exactly what you asked. I just beat the brakes off your number two dude. You give me Michael Bisbing and you're going to call me world champion. And then I'm going to say I'm a garbage. I'm going to be a garbage man for the yeah. rest of my life as I leave the belt <laughs> on the ground. I already had this thing. Going yeah. through my head in real time. All in that 47. Those are the best 47 seconds of your life. <laughs> oh, dude, I was dude. celebrating every which way. I'm trying to find my wife. You know, like, you know what's coming, sweetheart. You know, like, you put on them red, red panties, as oh, Connor would say. So you are down the road, victory, you're done. And all of a sudden, John McCarthy's like, hey, get your mouthpiece in. Yep, let's go. <sighs> and the whole time, he's on the stool. 
He's on the stool just looking Dude, at me. Dude, it's freaking Just ridiculous. getting back in the zone. We're going the opposite directions, right? He's fighting his way back into the fight. I'm fighting my way out of the fight. Yeah. You know, uh, fault on me. Mm-hmm. Failure, failure on me. You know, I, sh- I should have just sitting there, just staring at him. You, know, you, you take every second you want. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna take that in years off your life when you finally stand up. Mm-hmm. Not what I was doing. So you get up, and now he catches you, yep. and uh, you you get caught. You you lose. <sighs> I don't yell at the TV very much. <laughs> I was fucking irate, bro. Yeah. Um, I was so, I couldn't, I, yeah. Um, that was ridiculous. That was totally ridiculous. And, and, and really what that means, just so everyone in the big picture, like you get a shot where you're one shot away from the title shot. One time in your career. Yeah, you get that and then you either win and in most cases, that's your shot. You know, that's like uh, Raging Bull, right? Mm. This was my shot. This is your shot. You know, that was your shot. That was my shot. And you bust your ass for all those years to get to that point. You had it, and then it's gone. Yeah. Um, and gone in the worst way. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what hurts. Like, you know, if I got if, <sighs> if I had lost, you know, it's just like, got yeah. it, man. I should have been better. You know, but it was like it felt like it was stolen from me. You know, yeah. it's it just. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know if we were recording when I said this, but like for me, I like swore at the TV and was all mad, and then I like got another piece of chicken and went about my way. And you, like, (laughs) God. Uh, So, did you, did you get to the locker room? What do you think when you get to the locker room? Well, when I'm walking to the back, Yoel comes up and grabs me and he's like, Hey man, I'm so sorry. You know, like, Oh, you, you fucking speak English now. You didn't speak English five minutes ago when you went get off the stool and you're pretending like you don't speak English. You're like, knock it off, man. You know, the rules, you broke the rules. You cheated. You didn't answer the bell. The fight's over. He's like, I know, I know. I'm." So-. And then his corner's trying to pull him away as he's sitting here apologizing for cheating. And I, and I'm just like, you know, I, this is on you. This is on your conscience. This is on John. John messed up. You know, big John McCarthy should have called it. Um, Did you protest? Did you put? Nah, I've never protested a fight ever. I don't know, bro. I respect that, but I think I would have been like, if there's one the time to cash in those chips on, on not. <sighs> so like, I'm going to, what, I'm going to get a title fight off a contested fight. Right. I don't know. Everyone watched it. Everyone saw this dude sitting on the stool, not answering the bell. It's literally called know. Stoolgate, but it's still, I don't want a title fight that <laughs> way. Yeah. Could they didn't ask for a rematch? I don't know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Holmes. Um, I don't know. All right. But you did the honorable thing. Hey, Roger that I lost. Are you thinking about retirement? Is that, is, yeah, this is this? the beginning of um, like. moving on. Mm-hmm. The uh, this is, you know, they 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 give me a Rashad Evans at uh, Madison Square, and um, that that fight, you know, being a former teammate, had a lot of, you know, I, I'm really confident in this fight, and it is also he's a fo- former title contender. It's a co-main event with Connor. Um, this this I mean this is a fight that puts you back into title contention. And um, so with that, I'm okay. Maybe not very often. Do you get a a second chance? Mm -hmm. Do you get a second shot? And uh, I fly into New York um, the weekend for the Madison Square Gardens fight. My plane lands and I get a text saying, Rashad can't pass his medical. The fight's off. 
you know, that was kind of like, that was a second strike into the, what am I going to do in the fighting world? Um, when that Rashad fight fell through, I had to cut weight real bad to, they wouldn't pay me my fight purse unless I made weight. God, those savages. So I had to cut hard to make that weight. And then they made me fight five weeks later against Kelvin Gesslum. Uh, so then I had to cut weight again five weeks later and I was trashed. And that was the third and final nail in the coffin of being like, I'm done fighting. <sighs> Meanwhile, you got a, a, a chapter in here that's called TV in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like uh, getting after it in like 47 different directions. You end up doing The Deadliest Warrior, which was flooding you. T- you, give, you give such little details in here about your, you, in that show, you're going against uh, what Koreans was it? Yeah, Korean special operations guys, and um, <laughs> and the, and the show people say, "Hey, can you put some holes in their target that are closer to the bullseye so this looks like a little bit tougher than like challenge for you?" Yeah, and you're like, "I guess so, not a problem." <laughs> it was so it was so it's supposed to be television. It's supposed to be close and competitive and exciting, um, you know. And they couldn't. They couldn't hit anything. Right. So I would go every shot that you saw the Koreans take, the Korean special forces guys take on their targets, I shot for them. <laughs> every single one of them. There was not a single shot that I didn't shoot. So I ended up doing all of the shooting for the whole entire show. <laughs> okay. So you do that. You do something called Ultimate Soldier Challenge, which is you and uh, another Green Beret, and you're going against a uh, pair of contractors, you're going against a pair of Norwegian. Uh, and you guys kick ass again. And once again, you have to like reshoot stuff so that yeah. it doesn't look like you're crushing everyone. So yeah, it's just bad TV. This bad TV. And you know, it's, um, but they're, they're taking war fighters that are like doing real war and they're like throwing them into these competition shows and like shooting competitions. <laughs> and they, like, all we've done for the past 15 years is, uh, shoot things. So it was not good television. Uh, this is my personal favorite celebrity boot camp season seven boot camp two. <laughs> I'm figuring it out, man. I mean, those are the worst people on the planet. Actually, no, the second worst. Now that I'm working in the nonprofit kind of NGO space, mm-hmm. especially in humanitarian aid and evacuation and like really, really important work, the people that that are evil in that world, they're the most evil. Mm-hmm. Like I, I hope that I can someday call them by name and be like, you pretended that you're doing humanitarian aid, but you're paying yourself 10,000 a day to go Oof. not really do anything at all. But then you went in front of cameras and said that you rescued all these Afghanis. I know the truth. You weren't there. You're a liar. Someday I'll get to you. But besides them, these people, these like Hollywood second <laughs> string people are so pathetic. Ouch. <laughs> they're so pathetic. Uh, Cokeheads, liars, manipulators. Uh, is it like, is it is it like a whole season you do this for, or is it just one show? I do just like I do. It's a whole like season a for appearance. them. Yeah, but uh, the the way that I think it was like a VH1 show. Um, they had like a dedicated drill sergeant that would take these people through a season, and then they would bring in people every episode that would do different challenges and different types of fitness things. So they were. They would take these really fat, soft-bodied, gelatinous <laughs> people and try to get them hard in a season. It's a perilous endeavor. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
you can't make a sh- marshmallow get in shape. Like that's just <laughs> it's a marshmallow. <laughs> Set it on fire. Uh, hunting Hitler. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty rad. Um, you you you're out searching for Nazis is what you're doing. Yep, and you find like Nazi stuff, man, everywhere, and Nazis. Yeah. Nazi stuff. You find Nazis. You what do you on. do though? You like so you're get, getting off active duty, and somebody from New York with a Jewish accent calls you and is like, "Hey, Jocko, <laughs> you can fly a drone. You can do ground penetrating radar. Would you, what would you think about me paying you to travel the world to hunt Nazis? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, As you know, yeah. Like, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This yeah. is amazing. Yeah, best yeah. thing ever. <laughs> I was in. Uh, and that ends up running for three seasons. Mm-hmm. And we got a fourth le- season that was going to be completely bonkers. And what happened? History Channel lost lost their balls. What was what were you guys going to do in that third one? We we're going to talk about one? Operation Paperclip. Uh, so we traded Nazi scientists. Uh, we gave them kind of leniency. We gave them free passes for their crimes as Nazis mm-hmm. to come work on the space program as we we're fighting now the Russians in the in the space race. So that was one part of it. Um, another part was a bunch of the Nazis. One of the rat lines that we didn't cover, we covered people going through Norway and going through the church and people going um, into South America. One that we didn't cover was going into North Africa and into the Middle East. A whole bunch of Nazis went to North Africa and the Middle East. And um, the founders of the Mujahideen, you know, as we pulled all these photographs and we started figuring out who all these people were, facial recognition, you would see founders of the Mujahideen. You'd see all these like little brown dudes. And then you'd see this tall six foot three blonde haired blue eye guy you're like huh this is 1946 and uh who is this guy okay facial record oh that is skorzenski what is skorzenski doing in saudi arabia with the founders of the mujahideen as we know al-qaeda isis the taliban the plo and um like what do they have in common with the oh they want to kill jews cool as israel is trying to become a state and they're fighting for partition, right? Golda Meir is like trying to, how are we going to become a country? And they're buying PT-109s from German surplus. They're preparing to like the, the invasion of every single country around them. Those, all of those countries were being advised by former Nazis. So history channel was like, uh, we're not touching this man. <laughs> so the corporations that were funding it from VW to Mercedes to, you know, like, oh, this is real. Yeah, like, they said no. They said, no, no way can we talk about any of this stuff. It's relevant currently because some of these organizations still exist today. Some of them are political organizations that are now lobbying for um, relevancy. And um, so, yep, nope, can't talk about any of this. So that was that. That was that. Luckily, you had a movie to make. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a naked Tim Kennedy fighting Randy Couture. Uh. Are you laughing at our zombie Randy Couture or naked Tim Kennedy? Both okay, in the so same it's sentence. It's ridiculous to say <laughs> it's out loud. hilarious, yeah. I, uh, when that movie came out, one of my friends is a writer and director and stuff up in Hollywood, and he is friends with Rocco. And he called me and said, hey, this Rocco's in this movie. You want to come up? And I was like, the premiere. And I was like, oh, yeah, the, the Article 15. I was like, hell, yeah, I'll come and see that. So I go and watch the premiere up there in Hollywood, and um, actually, were you there? No. Okay. No. Nope. I'm trying to think of who. I ran into people. Anyways. Matt Best, Evan, uh, Nick, Jared, 
and Rocco are at the Hollywood one. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure I ran into those guys. I don't think I knew any of them yet. But um, <laughs> so I like watched this movie and I'm expecting it to be, you know, bad. A little over the top or no, I didn't expect it to be bad, like bad, uh, like a bad movie. But I thought, you know, it'll be kind of crazy. I watched that movie and I was like, God, damn. There is, there is no, that's a no holds barred movie, man. That no. is a no holds barred movie, 100%. No, when there's like a, a, a zombie midget tearing a dude's dick off, you know, and they're trying to put a tourniquet on this guy's pelvis, and you have two Medal of Honor recipients, you know, Leroy Petrie, like, who is already missing a hand from throwing a grenade as another Medal of Honor recipient is trying to throw a tourniquet on his other hand after he just got his other hand blown off. It is so dark and so terrible. It is. It is insane. It's insane. Uh, It's a shocking movie. How good did that movie do? So it was the number one independent film ever up to that point. God. So (laughs) number one privately sourced and it'd be number one on Amazon, number two on Apple and the number one movie to date. Up to that point, uh-huh. um, I, a couple of movies have passed us now yeah. as an independently sourced and, and financed film. Dude, it, it's freaking crazy. And I, I remember watching it going, well, I guess we're going to find out what the limits are. <laughs> those, <laughs> there ain't no limits in that no. movie at all. No, it's nuts. God, it was so fun, though. Yeah, but it was, it, was, it was the veteran community came together to do it. You know, there, there were all of... Wounded veterans coming without limbs to be our zombies, yeah. like volunteered to do it. Yeah. They're out in the sun, you know, is is in L.A. at in the middle of the summer, and the whole entire fight world, you know, we had really like top twenty dudes on the planet showed up to be like the super zombies <laughs> to include Randy Couture, yeah. and Phil Davis, and Keith Jardine, Julie Kenzie. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, epic. Um, so if you haven't watched that yet, check that out. Uh, then you do this show called Hard to Kill, mm-hmm. which is bizarre because a dude freaking locked, <laughs> a dude freaking locked you into a damn fiery fake uh, cockpit of an airplane. Yeah, it was an experimental aircraft, and uh, they drenched it with aviation fuel, and they took a screw and they drilled it into the back of the cockpit. So the canopy wouldn't open, and then they set it on fire. Yeah. So let me just give a little more info from the book. You think to yourself, okay, here's a, here's here's what we're going to do. They say, we want you to escape from this burning cockpit. You go, okay, cool. If I'm going to get into a place that's on fire, I'm going to make sure I can get out. So you drill this. You rehearse it. You go through the motions, undo your seatbelt, whatever. Here's how you open this thing. You go through it over and over again like any normal soldier would rehearse a potentially life-threatening evolution. So you get it done. You're yeah. like, okay, now I'm ready. Now you can put gasoline on this thing and I'll sit in it and you can light it on fire and I'll get out. I'll go through the procedures that I've just rehearsed a hundred times to make sure that I don't die in here. Well, some freaking jackass wanted it to be better, t- wanted it to be better TV. Yeah. So puts one single screw in the back of the cockpit where you are actually now walked in this bitch. Yep. Yeah, the uh, I mean, he wasn't wrong. It ended up being really great television. Sure it was great TV. <laughs> you know? So the cockpit ultimately didn't open. Uh, I, I teared, I, I tore the entire canopy out of the aircraft. 
Like that's how it got out. I tore through all the fiberglass and the plastic that the, around the fuselage of the canopy of this aircraft to finally get out, burnt my back, melted my t-shirt, melted the seatbelt for me to get out of this. And this was their second plan. Their first plan was to set this thing on fire and push it out the back of an aircraft. So then I would fight it my way out of it. Then I would go into free fall as if I injected like a halo, and then I would parachute down into the ground. That was their first plan. When the insurance company said no, this was the second plan. So they ended up taking my visor and and frosting it over and covering it and then throwing me out of the back of, a, of an aircraft in a blindfolded free fall. That happened in the same in the same episode that they screwed me inside of an experimental aircraft, drought, doused it in aviation fuel, and then set it on fire. Yeah, <laughs> my te- my television time has come to an end. <laughs> what, the, what the hell is up with that? And the start of the show was really altruistic. You know, we wanted I wanted to highlight. Not you know, like dirty jobs is going in and showing like all the the cool things that you know blue collar workers do, and I think there were a lot of people that do really incredible jobs that don't get any credit, mm-hmm. and that was the goal was to go and highlight some of these people that every single day go out and do really really rad things, um, you know not just first responders even though they do it every single day you know but the guy that climbs up to the top of the cell tower to like make sure that the the flashing bulb works. That's sketchy. Like that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, like electricity, static electricity, like just the wind, the the you know, as it takes you two hours to get to the top of that, the temperature could change. Um you know, guys that go deep sea welding, you know, on mixed gas as they're trying to fill it, fix pipes that that's super sketch. You know, you, you make a cut the wrong way, you're you know, using a torch or a welder and that bead drops through in that pipe that's overpressured, ah, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it went from a really cool show talking about this group, great group of Americans doing very American things to like, let's see if we can kill Tim. No, I don't want. I don't want to do it anymore. So, would you do one season of that? Yeah. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got this section in here about um, human trafficking. And and you get connected with a group called Deliver Fund, mm-hmm. and what they do is they do their best to get in there and get people out of these situations and help set up law enforcement to arrest human traffickers. Is that an accurate description That's of, right. of yep. Deliver Fund? And they're slightly different now, but at the time that was their that, that was their, that was what they were doing. Yeah. Um, you end up working on a team that's doing this. You end up doing surveillance. And again, hey, I'm skipping for, through a bunch of stuff right now. Get the book for all these details. But you end up doing surveillance. You're putting together target packages for the police. Um, and, and I thought this was, uh, man, enlightening and scary and disturbing and horrible and informative thing to to learn about. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the book here on what you, what you saw. Uh, the situation almost always looks the same. Trafficking operations run out of hotels or motels. On the ground floor, there is a madam or, quote, bottom bitch. Gotta hear her. The bottom bitch is pure evil. Worst. She's usually 25 to 30 years old, and she is fucking the pimp. She used to be one of the girls, but for whatever reason, she showed loyalty or skill and she elevated herself out of that part of the business. The bottom bitch typically runs four to six girls. She recruits them when they aren't just stolen, 
gets them hooked on meth or heroin, keeps them high, and gets them to rest when they're off duty, interacts with Johns when they arrive, and basically runs the day-to-day operation. The reason I say she is pure evil is because she worked the job. She knows how terrible it is. She knows what it did to her, and she is still willing to do the same thing to other girls. Girls. Little girls. The girls are usually 14 to 21, and the bottom bitch keeps them in a room together and releases them one at a time to rooms they have upstairs when the Johns arrive. You usually don't see them older than that because the Johns that prefer non-consensual sex prefer younger girls. Once they don't look young anymore, they are either sold into slavery elsewhere, killed, or thrown out onto the streets, now with a heroin habit and no way to get a fix. Or, if they're smart enough and evil enough, they become the new bottom bitch. Back to the pimp. The pimp always locates himself close enough to get involved if a John gets violent, but always far enough away that if the police come, he isn't really involved in what's going on. The pimp may only have one bottom bitch, or he may have up to five. The structure of the relationship of the pimp and the, to the bottom bitch and the bottom bitch to the girls, though, is always the same. Above the pimps are the higher-end traffickers. What we do is try to get is try to hem up the pimps so their asses are on the line and get them to turn on the traffickers. So that's a nasty world to see. Yeah. Being um, overseas so many times in, in North Africa and in Eastern Europe and South America and like my peripheral, I would see this type of nefarious activity, but that's not what that, I was there to do. You know, whether I was there for a fid, J set, you know, whatever my mission was, uh, but I would always see it, and, and it always like ate at me. You know, is this gnaw of man? You can't do anything. I wanted to, but there's that's not what I was there for. And uh, you know, even in combat zones, you know, would see it. We you know would see the the poor little boy with the makeup on. Like we know we know what's happening to him. You know, would see that young girl that doesn't have her parents anymore, and she is just at use of the Taliban. And um, so, I, I really wanted to make a difference in this world, and uh, so I started working for multiple different and not nonprofits and NGOs. And, and this this is the story that I, I really used to to demonstrate. This wasn't just a weekend. This was a weekend of many weekends that happens all over the United States and all over the world every weekend. And uh, how how difficult it is to to make a difference, and how hard it is to to affect change in there. And um, you know, if, if you've been to Las Vegas and you get off the strip and you go a couple three or four blocks into the poor areas, and you see that thirty year old girl that is just tore up with scars up and down, you know, and she's homeless now. Like this is where she started. Like this is where she was fifteen years ago, if she's alive, which she's very very one out of a hundred live that long. Like the life expectancy of a human trafficked girl is is somewhere between eight to ten months. Months. Um, are these girls American? Where are these girls from? Um, here they were. Um, you d- it depends on like the size of the network. You know, when you're th- this was happening in Texas, so you saw a lot of girls from Louisiana, you saw girls from Florida, you saw girls from California, you saw girls from New York and New Jersey. Um, so there, there were some great 
RICO type charges as these girls were being trafficked across state lines that never came to fruition. But most of them were American girls. And that line between like a consensual prostitute and a trafficked person is, is a very blurry one. When, when you have addiction and pimps and, and bottom madams involved, like where, where is the line of me wanting to be here? It's not clearly defined. It's really clear when a girl's under 18, like she doesn't have a right to consent. But then when you look into that, that girl, even under 18, that, that girl, she has no home life. You know, she was probably coming from a, a, a very low socioeconomic minority uh, you know, on a border town. She has no place to go. Her, her mom was probably an addict. Her dad was gone. Has never, she's never known him. So she does have, she doesn't have any other options. And it is, uh, it's really, it's heart, it's heartbreaking to be in that world and try to figure out how can I help, you know? And, and like the alpha in me is like, cool, let me find a target. Let me create a target package and we'll prosecute these guys. Like that is the, the simple answer that isn't really the real answer. You know, we're talking halfway houses and rehabilitation and, um, you know, emotional and physical counseling and support for these girls. Like I was thinking about any of that stuff. I was thinking about being a hammer to these dudes Mm -hmm. and which is a small part of the problem. Yeah. And on this particular one, Epstein's um, not dead. He's dead, but he didn't kill himself. That's a great example of you. That is the bottom bitch. You know, you saw that girl. She was not just, you know, keeping these girls. She was training them how to perform these acts for these people as these young girls. It is just, it is a horrible world. Horrible. Yeah. And, and, in this particular case that you're talking about, you and your team, you guys are all busting your ass to try and put together these freaking target packages and you're going to like bust a bunch of these people and you get shut down. Yeah. For political reasons, uh, donation money, whatever the motivations were, ultimately, we put, to, we put together, I mean, black and white, closed case, here you go, this guy, here's video of him buying this girl in exchange for services. You know, he took money paid this person and in exchange he got this thing here's the video of it here's the pictures of it here's his phone number here's the text communications here's everything and uh nada god the evil is well connected yes they are yeah you know if if you're able to trade in one human pain one human suffering of drugs You'll do it with people. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do it with drugs and people, you're going to do it with guns. If you're going to do it with du- guns, drugs, and people, you're going to do it with young people. You know, your your line just becomes product. Yeah, yeah. You kind of talked about in here, like if you're willing to be a drug dealer, then every, it's just like, what else? Yeah. You're just going to do it all. Um, that whole thing doesn't seem to. I mean, it it affects you, it impacts you, but like you seem to get more determined. And is is it safe to say that sheepdog response is like a response to that? And I mean, obviously there's other things, but it seemed like from the book, people learning how to take care of themselves is incredibly important, especially when you know you can't take care of everyone. I mean, I had this conversation with my, especially with my daughters, like, when they were young, hey, I'm not going to be with you. Yeah, I am not going to be with you. And if you don't know how to handle yourself, bad things are going to happen to you. Uh, you created this awesome program, Sheepdog Response. Talk, talk to us about that. The, um, 
I'm starting to get my traction now. Like things are starting to make sense as to how how can I impact change? How can I really start make a different making a difference? And um, you know, like I, while I can't be in every hotel motel, why I can't be at every Super Bowl, why I can't be at every movie theater. Back to the soft model of you know we are force multipliers. You you could take twelve special forces guys, you drop them into a country, and they're going to train a company a piece. You know, so like you're you're going to have twelve hundred people in six months from now that are all fighting alongside these green berets. That's twelve hundred and twelve because you're going to also have to deal with the twelve ODA guys that now each have a hundred dudes working for them. That's the soft model. So I come back and I'm just like, okay, I know what to do. Military's already showed me how to do it. I'm just going to buy with and through, start training people, Americans, about what it means to be individually responsible. What does it mean to have to provide for your own security? Like, if you really believe that no help is coming, and I know that firsthand that no help is going to come, like, you have to be able to do it yourself. Um, if I can make a community stronger, if I can have somebody sitting in a movie theater, so at, you know, in Aurora for the next dude that's at the debut of the next Batman movie that comes in to hurt somebody. And then there's just this one dude that's like, not today. Yeah. You kidding me? Just puts that dude in the dirt, caves his skull, story's over. You know, like no, no headline news, no anything. So, you know, we're running a couple hundred courses a year now, uh, sold out like in response to not just this, but also seeing the active shooters, the bombings in Boston. Um, we, we have to get our teeth back. You know, you don't, you don't look... You don't look at a flock that's being attacked and be like, do you want, we should take all the teeth out of the sheep. That's a good plan. Like that doesn't do anything, right? You know, I'm a dude walking around, there's rapes happening all the, all, all over. Do you know I should do? I should cut my dick off. You're like that's not going to change anything. The only way that we're going to really start impacting change is to have when these wolves are walking around and they look, oh, is that another Jocko Willink? You know, nope, that's just another American that got on the Jocko program. That's what it is. That's another dude that started training jujitsu. That's another woman that learned how to shoot. That's that's another former traffic victim. That's like, nope, I fought my way free. I'm healthy now. And I have a whole bunch of them. Every single one of our courses, we have dedicated spots to Gold Star members and anybody that has ever been uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And um, we sponsor people all the time. And these women are fierce. They are passionate. And uh, I would never want to be on the receiving end of trying to hurt one of these women again, because they will find a space and put a knife in between your ribs. Like they're awesome. So that's what sheepdog response is trying to the onus of protecting and providing for your family is on you. Nobody else is going to do it. It's on you. So I am poaching, you know, like Matt Smith, our director of training, uh, Army Green Beret Special Forces guy coming from Special Missions Unit, uh, Carl Kringer, Carl Kringle, Kringle, our COO. He's a Navy Navy Special Warfare guy. Um, you start going down the list in the hallways, and you're like, "Cool, a Marsoc dude, another Green Beret, another Navy dude." You know, like it's just every single one of these absolute hammers that are servants to just Americans that want to learn how to be better prepared for whatever's next. The uh, the statement that no one else is coming is uh, it, 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 it might sound, if you're just listening to this, if you don't know anything or whatever, it might sound really negative, like no one cares about you or whatever. The fact of the matter is, it is just impossible to police up the world. And even in the best case scenario, if you have the time to dial 911 or make a call for help, it, the best response times in the world 
is too late. Yeah. It's too late. And here's the other thing. You know, we talked earlier about jujitsu being a superpower, which it most certainly is. There's aspects of being aware and aspects of knowing how to respond immediately to something that are also, and, and aspects of firearms that are also a superpower. And by that I mean someone that has trained, look, you, you should train all the time. In, if you're, if you, if you're going to carry, which you should, you should train all the time to know. But even after a basic course, where you get a little bit of stress test, you understand your weapon system, you understand how to utilize it, that's a freaking superpower. Yeah. And you can, you can protect yourself, you can protect your family, and you should have that capability as a human being. So this is like, to me, what you're doing with this is just like a, it's just the beginning of people becoming aware, and like you said, this force multiplier where, when something happens out in the world, in I think in three years, five years, it's just like, you know, how good is a hijacker going to do on an airplane right now, trying to take hold of an airplane? Like zero it ain't happening. Never zero again. chance. And that's where that's where we can get to in America, where it's like, oh, this stuff, we're not. No, it's not happening. No, it's not happening. You're not doing that. Not yeah. today. Not in this movie theater not in this school not in this grocery store it's not happening and do i wish that the world was just filled with benevolent people and we didn't have to think like this sure, sure of course sure. of course yes i it's think not. that way but it's not it's not it's not and it never will be it never has been like th- this isn't a new problem you know this this goes back to the beginning of recorded history where evil people exist and evil people are going to do terrible things. And when you are calling for help and help is minutes away, you're the end of your life is seconds away. Mm -hmm. You just don't have enough time. It is on you to do this. And, um, and I don't, and I I say this because you don't know what this is. Like it might be medical, you know, it might be a response to a, a disease that we've never seen before. That's killing lots of people like, Oh cool. You're, you're, you're out of shape. You're super fat. You haven't been exercising. You are very susceptible to this. Well, do you want the better? I was never worried about it because I'm, nor was I worried about my family because we're all young, healthy in shape and, uh, and insert whatever this is. Mm. And we don't know what the next, this is going to be, but you better be prepared for it. And the only way you prepare for something is to start training. One of the soft truths is that you can never prepare for a bad event after the bad event happens. You have to prepare for it ahead of time. So start preparing. Yeah. And I've talked about this before with uh, like, you know, with jujitsu or with shooting. Like, hey, what if you what if you spend a bu- invest a bunch of time in jujitsu and you invest a bunch of time in shooting and you never get in a fight and you never have to use your weapon? Okay, well, first of all, that's great that you never had to get in a fight and it's great that you never had to use your weapon. But also, you're going to be just be a better person yeah. because... When you're when you're doing jujitsu, you're getting good good shape. You're having camaraderie. You're uh, getting a cardio workout. You're working on your flexibility. This is a million other benefits with shooting. Oh, you work on your hand eye coordination. You get the get to learn how to focus on things. You get to learn how to ignore distractions. Like there's a bunch of really cool things that happen regardless. 
Yeah. So these are just good and things to do. I would even argue that not, a bad thing didn't happen because you were training that these other things. Yep. And, and that, that's a real difficult thing to quantify. But when you look, the bad things that happen around people that are trained are less frequent than people that are around, around untrained. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, why does this happen? Yeah. Well, because we don't put ourselves in those positions. Because we condition our mind and our body to be in great posi- in good, great places, to not go into the dark parking lot. Yeah. You know, um, We start watching videos to be better. And as I'm watching this video, I was like, ooh. I don't want to be walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night by myself. I will avoid that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good thing I learned this. Yeah. Um, kids. Mm, I love them. And, and uh, you know, when you, when you start talking about jujitsu, and I just got asked this question the other day by a kid. It's like, oh, well, do I have to do jujitsu if I don't like to fight? And I was like, you know what? If you don't like to fight, that's even more of a reason to do jujitsu. Because if you know jujitsu, you probably won't have to fight. Yeah. Because your whole attitude's different. Um, and now you got this thing called the Apogee. Is that right? Apogee? Mm-hmm. Apogee. The Apogee Cedar Park School for Kids. Warrior Kids, if I can say that. Yeah, you yeah. can. Yeah. yeah. You got your uh, book on the shelves. So you really awesome. do. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Um, that's how many. So, so you start this September, right? You're kicking that off. We start it. We we are one year in. Year oh, two okay. starts in September. Oh, I just on, must have on heard. this podcast. You and me. Yeah, we talked. We, we talked, talked about, about it. it, and I was like, I'm done. I'm gonna. I'm starting my own school. Like that realization happened while you and just like this, we're face to face. Four years later, we la- I launched the school. We launched two branches of it. One is Apogee Strong. That is an online mentorship for young men. That is uh, that is how to be a provider, a protector. Um, you know, you are the lone security member of your family. Thirteen years to thirty years. We have we have thirty year old men that are in this men, young men mentorship program. My I'm tipping my hat to them because it's a cool thing mm-hmm. to be a pseudo grown man, but then realize I don't know how to change my oil. You know, I don't know how to. You know, I've never read Jocko's book. Your book is on our reading list, um, and uh, so that is one is the young men mentorship program. And then the other one is our physical school in Austin, Texas. That's uh, Apogee Cedar Park. Mm-hmm. You know, a hundred, a hundred hero school, bunch of just rad Socratic learners, and um, we are year year one in this in the books. In uh, what day is it today? The twenty eighth. Yeah, with two days is the end of the school session, and uh-huh. uh, year one is in the books. Getting ready for year two. Uh, Michelle Myers is our new director of program she's amazing i'm just so proud it's amazing like you in every corner you just see magic happening you see um so our our students our our heroes the learners in the school they're in charge of everything so they figure out their day their schedule we have these launches where everybody gets together and if we're focusing on math maybe we're talking about how to measure to put um extra sod out in our playscape how do we figure out area you know and they're and then and then they're off they gotta they're they're doing their research their guide is in there saying hey maybe try this formula have you thought about researching this way and uh, but every day these these kids are making all of their own decisions unlike in school where they're lemmings just going Mm -hmm. to where they're told where somebody's lecturing them instead they're they're doing everything they're sitting there like, this is what time I'm going to get here. This is what time I'm going to do my uh, my homework. This is the program that I'm going to use. Uh, I have a question. How do I do this? And the guy's like, cool. I'm actually not going to tell you. I'm going to ask you a different question for you to figure out yourself. So our guides provide no answers. We just get asked more questions. Yeah. Totally Socratic. 
a lot of times people ask me, how do you get people to take ownership? I'm, I'm, I always say you have to give them ownership. Yes, you do. You have to give them ownership. It's so hard, though. Yeah, yeah. It's easier than just just give them ownership to take the reins and and just a release somebody. Yeah. You have to have faith that the the process because they're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Is a parent okay with their child failing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm it's not going. I'm not going to give you a grade this year. And the parents like, well, I want to. I want a sticker that shows that Tommy is a straight A student. If you don't get that. You know, like they're, they're going to be learning on the, at their own pace. Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, and when, and when you give when you give the kids the ownership, though, like they're so much more engaged. Yeah. you know, when instead of just hey, here's the task you got to do today, Timmy. Like you do this, this, and this. You're like, oh, whatever. But when I say, hey, Tim, how do you want to do this? What do you think you need to get out of this? And all of a sudden, you have ownership, and now you're engaged, which yeah. is freaking as it should be. Um, so there you are. You're, you got the school going, you got the sheepdog response, everything's rocking and rolling. And all of a sudden, uh, Afghanistan falls apart. Man. Um, you're talking to Nick on the phone. I'm going to go to the book for this. Uh, what a fucking shit show, man, he says, referring to our government's performance so far while shaking his head in disgust Nick's an idealist he still gets genuinely surprised when people fail as badly as we are failing on this mission right now how do we pull out all of our forces and then try and evacuate he isn't really talking to me he's just venting he and I have had this conversation about a thousand times in the past 48 hours we sip our coffee in silence for a little while him wrestling with being let down by America, me wrestling with a conversation I had earlier today with Chad Robichaud. Chad was a rangered up, sponsored MMA fighter who fought in Strike Force at the same time I did. A lifetime ago, he was a Force Recon Marine who was then assigned to JSOC and deployed multiple times to Afghanistan. Now he runs a successful nonprofit called the Mighty Oaks Foundation, which helps veterans find resilience in all aspects of their lives. I personally attended one of their resiliency programs and it was life-changing. Chad is a good friend and he has a problem. His interpreter, Aziz, is trapped and is actively being hunted. Because of who Aziz is and who he helped, if he is caught, they will rape and murder his wife and children while he watches, then they will kill him. Chad isn't looking to send messages to Kabul like everyone else. He's been working with his old JSOC buddy, Santa Six, who now does contracting work in that region, putting a plan in motion to get Aziz out. Unfortunately, their timeline just got blown because no one expected the entire country to fall to the Taliban in a week. Chad wants to know if I will go with him to Afghanistan via the United Arab Emirates. Apparently, Santa Six rides motorcycles with another former Force Recon Marine that has some kind of connection to the UAE, and they might let us use a plane to get it into Afghanistan. This already feels like six degrees of seven of Kevin Bankin, and I'm nervous at the friend of a friend structure we discussed. Is there a plan? I asked him when we were on the phone earlier. If we're going to go do some crazy shit, I need to know that we're doing this to make a difference and not just go. As I'm thinking about this, Nick gets lost in his phone for a minute 
and I see that I have another text message from Chad. He's heading to UAE in 48 hours. The only thing he's waiting for is his COVID test to come back so he can travel. He wants me to go. I'm with Nick right now working on the book, I text him. Awesome. Bring him to We Could Use Him, he answers. So it's on. It's on. Um, At that moment, it's... um, People falling from landing landing gear, Afghanistan. That's uh, that's what's happening right here at this moment. And uh, you know, my phone was just our entire world are men that aren't used to being helpless. There's something that we can always do, and uh, we felt as a collective helpless, like we didn't know what to do. And that was not something i mean that's the reason i start, started shoot that response and obviously that's the reason that we started to save our allies you know, like this is this answer to helplessness i'm just not going to ever accept that i don't have an answer i that i am helpless and uh i mean in, in just accepting that is is a form of quitting and i'm i'm not now i'm not down with that so it was uh we didn't know what to do yet mm-hmm. but we had to do something <sighs> So, you, Nick, Chad, um, a woman named Sarah Verardo. Am I saying yeah, that right? That's right. Uh, she seems like just an incredibly awesome human. She's the CEO of something called the Independence Fund, mm-hmm. and her husband was wounded bad. And this Independence Fund, it it helps vets with all kinds of stuff. Wounded vets with mobility, with caregivers, with advocacy, with casework, with resiliency, family programs, like just uh, doing a lot of great stuff, yeah. the the independence fund. And she also has like good connections because she's been very effective. Uh, so she's involved as well because she's got some good political connections of people that can help out. You guys end up planes, trains, and automobiles to, <laughs> to get to UAE. Yeah. You get... And again, the detail, the, I'll get the book so you can read this this story. Um, you end up getting to UAE. It's like even getting into UAE, you got to get, like, you got to call people in Congress. You got to get, you know, phone calls are made. Yeah. Things are happening. You end up with a C-17 that's going to help you get people out of Afghanistan. Um, that had to be an interesting flight. You're in an empty C-17. No, I'm in an empty 737. Oh, okay. So we also chartered slash bought an an Afghan airline. (laughs) And um, so the C-17 had just landed and is unloading. So we're taking a 737 from UAE into Afghanistan while they're prepping. The UAE said, okay, if you can... Take the, a C-17, fill it up with perfect, a perfect roster of people. You have a manifest of uh, if we made one mistake, they're going to cut us off. Mm-hmm. Like if we put one bad dude on a plane, we're out. Mm-hmm. So we were being the the, the degrees of, of verifying who is on our list was very arduous. Um, so after we filled that first plane up, they're like, okay, well, you can do more. Let's empty this one. And like, well, can we also just use this airstrip if we have other planes? And they said, yeah. So then we started this revolving door of aircraft of using the UAE C-17s and 
a fleet of 737s. God. All, all plugs. Uh, we're pulling every. We're we're throwing frags in every single window at this point. <laughs> we we are full on. We gave zero shits. We're going to make this happen, and we're going to make it work. Because, you know, this is this is August eighteen. Mm-hmm. We know two weeks. We got two weeks. Mm-hmm. Whoever we get out in two weeks is going to get out. Whoever doesn't is going to die. Period. Mm-hmm. So there's we'll we'll deal with consequences of you know breaking international laws or however the FAA is going to be coming at us. We'll we'll deal with that later. But right now we're going to save life. Um. Eventually, you get on the ground. Mm-hmm. You get on the ground in Afghanistan. You got like a. What is it? It's Sean G, mm-hmm. some dude named Sea Spray, mm-hmm. and you. You guys are the guys. There's four that, of us. And a, who's and, the other one? And uh, Dave. Okay, so it's you four that are gonna basically go outside the wire, and link up with the the people that you're looking for, which you have a legit manifest mm-hmm. of people that you got to gather up. Uh, Nick is Nick is. On base, helping out, coordinating, deconflicting, all that other shit. A bunch of other guys. What's the total number of guys on the team? A dozen guys or something like that? Yeah, 12 guys. So in D.C., Sarah Verardo sets up like this talk. And every name, I know everybody remembers Signal and WhatsApp and emails. Hey, I got this guy. Here's my terp. Here's his paperwork. He's currently an SIV applicant. Here's his um, Here's letters from the commander that he was working with. Like, mm-hmm hundreds and thousands of them, right? Like the phones were just melting down. Sarah would burn through her phone like nine times in a day. And uh, so she is co-located. Um, I'm not going to say who in the government she's with, but our manifest is going through Department of State and DOD at the same time. Every single name that comes in, we take that name, we create a packet around that name. Here's all of their digital documents. And uh, like, here's here's their PID and here's that they're they're good to go. Once they're good to go, that gets forward to UAE. In UAE, we had eight people that were working in our forward operating base. And then there was the four of us on the ground in Afghanistan. Dave was staying on the base, and then the three of us, Sean G, Seaspray, and myself, were going out into Kabul to grab these people to conduct leakups to bring them back onto HKIA. When did this become Save Our Allies? This is Save Our, our Allies, right? That's right. When did it become Save Our Allies? At some point, you had to put a name on it we, we i mean we had to put a name on it uh the only reason i say that right now uh is just if people want to help out because yeah. i know you're still doing work is it what save our allies.com dot uh, org dot org yeah. so save our allies.org well, and we still have safe houses all around the middle east that we have you know we've lily padded people out of afghanistan and we're still paying for these people until we work through the department of state immigration system to get them to go to wherever ultimately they're going to go albania brazil colombia the united states sometimes but very rarely right now um so save our allies it was the founding members were chad me nick and sarah so from that initial phone call of, hey, we got to go get Aziz, and then it was, well, there's also these a couple hundred Christian children, orphans, they're going to die if somebody doesn't go get them too. Well, hey, we also just got a call from a senator, and he has some constituents. He has like six people that were on a missions trip in Afghanistan. The six of them are stuck here. Can you guys go get these Americans? So this list went from like, I mean, it just started exploding of, hey, can you? And... uh we could, mm-hmm. you know, for evil to conquer, it's good men to do nothing, and we could do something. So, what are we going to do? 
So you're on the ground, and talk us through without giving away details that might compromise like your procedures. But you get information that there is a, a person that needs to get extracted. Yep. What do you do? So that person has submitted to us, usually by a, a sponsor. So somebody texted you, Jocko. Hey, man, we were together here. I'm stuck. I've made it to Kabul. I'm trying to get my way out. So you reach out to me and say, hey, can you get this guy? And I say, this is what I need from you for him to be on our manifest. I need his current DOS application process. Here's all the documents that are going to be required for PID. Once that's done, all that goes through Sarah in D.C. Once that person's approved, that person comes back to me with a contact. Mm -hmm. I directly go point to point with them, and I start coordinating link up. I essentially have a digital packet with them. And that packet has all of their digital documents. And I, I kind of aggregate I, I col collective groups throughout the city. So sometimes I'm meeting six people over here. I'm meeting a dozen people over here. Or I, I take a truck and I push it in a cobble and they all go to that truck. And they all have to be at the right place at the right time with the right information. And that truck driver is going to check everything. And then that guy is going to drive them to meet me. So then I have a far recognition signal that they all have to know. Then they come up and they give me my near recognition signal. Then they have to PID their documents. So the stuff that they physically have is in alignment with the digital documents that were sent. And if that stuff checks out, I mean, now we're like a cipher level confirming that we have all the right people. Then I have to smuggle them past the Taliban and then get them onto HKIA, uh, sometimes with permission of the military, sometimes without. Mm -hmm. I have to get them onto base without the military. What was the Taliban? Um, so are you are you just plain clothes going out into town? Yeah. What's the Taliban looking at you? Are they looking at you like a suspect? Is there enough Westerners that it's you're like it's a mix? So we're in Kabul, right? Mm -hmm. So Kabul's it's like semi permissive environment. Yeah. It's capital city, but the exterior perimeter of the airport is controlled by the Taliban, and you know whoever oh, ex controls the exterior perimeter controls the ground on the inside. So the Taliban set up a perimeter around the airport. Every single main entrance into the into the airport is checkpointed by the Taliban. So if you are trying to get on base and you have your blue passport and you go to the Taliban the Taliban checkpoint and they're like, "Huh, this is nice. Thank you for this. Get back out." So they're now limiting who's coming in and out and they're not letting engineers, plumbers, you know, if you work on the sewage system, if you're a garbage man, they don't want you to leave because Kabul is going to fall and Afghanistan is going to fall if without the infrastructure of the people that run it. So they're the ones that are making all the decisions about who's coming on and who's coming off. Um, we were just trying to blend into the noise. You know, we were trying to be um, there were lots of organizations in Kabul that were working all the way up to the fall. And now they're trapped, too. So we were just kind of looking like other trapped people. Got it. You know, I wasn't walking around with body armor and mm -hmm. being a gangster. You know, um, there were times that that happened, but there are also times where I was just like, you know, a little snake in the grass. Mm -hmm. And it, what m amazes me as you as you talk about the effort that you went through to vet everyone and was setting it up. And just that one, you know, when you said, well, Jocko, if you text me, you need this guy. And here's what you got to do. Boom, 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 boom. It's obviously a very complex, hard thing to do. And then you got to link up with these people in a truck or at this building or whatever. And you guys did this over and over and over and over and over and over again to the tune of 
12,000 12, people, just you and your team got out of there. Yeah, tw- in 10 days. Um, we're on the ground for 10 days. And, uh, and I, let's, we're, I think we're at 17,000 people now that we've moved. We've moved an additional five since the fall of Afghanistan. Um, Serapitious kind of expeditionary type efforts. Um, the, the the government, DOD, on HKIA, they gave us a ramp. When they saw that we were being as successful as we were, when you know Colonel so-and-so or General so-and-so or Senator so-and-so is like, hey, I need to get this guy, they're calling us because nobody else could do it. Nobody could actually go into the city. There were tons of organizations that, re- that raised millions of dollars. They still came to us to go get those people. You know, some of them threw us some, some money. A lot of them didn't. A lot of them promised to throw us some money and then didn't. You know, but like we were paying for the fuel. We were paying for the aircraft. We were we were the physical dudes on the ground linking up with them in Kabul to bring them on to and, um And it is like, this is, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, this is, uh, this is in those power vacuums. If you remember like peak ISIS, like this is what this moment is. This is a complete power vacuum where American security and stability evaporated and what was there no longer exists. And the only thing that flows into that space, into that Delta is evil. It is just unadulterated, pure evil of what the Taliban does and did in that moment. And we are trying to go into that and find these people. And uh, so we did get some degrees of approval. I don't, I, I use pr- approval cautiously. Loosely. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the government knew who we were. They, like, if you walked in onto the base and you looked up on that, there's our ramp with our name on it and what we are doing. Like we had, like we had tag numbers for our uh, tail numbers for our aircraft, and they were tracking. And you know, we we moved almost eleven percent of everybody that left that base. We moved on air, our aircraft. That's like a, a just a phenomenal, just phenomenal work, man. Phenomenal. Um. 26th of August. I'm going to go to the book. The earth shakes and the explosion echoes through the airport. That was a bomb. Sean G. Seaspray and I look at each other. We're simultaneously hoping no one got hurt and that our trip isn't coming to a premature end. The internet moves at the speed of light at the same time that some of our partners from DOD and DOS are letting us know there are casualties at Abbey Gate, a gate we have frequented many times over the past week. Nick and Santa Six are hitting up Sean G and me asking if we're okay. A suicide bomber got inside the wire and detonated, killing 13 U.S. service members, all 25 years old or younger. One of them, I would find out later, is Sergeant Nicole G, a young leader who grew up a few hours from where I did in Sacramento. She helped us earlier that day when we had to search the women we rescued before bringing them on base. She was really sweet and high energy. She wasn't going through the motions. She greeted every Afghan with a smile. She loved her job and her service. 
This is absolutely the worst possible situation. I joined the military in my early 20s. I felt old then. I felt knowledgeable. I felt like I had experienced life. I had no idea. These brave troops, 11 Marines, one corpsman, and one soldier gave their lives to help those in need. There is nothing more honorable. She didn't have to come. She was, uh, you know, they were working, I think, 12-hour shifts. And that morning, we're at Black Gate. And uh, we had pre-positioned. We knew time was short. And we had pre-positioned buses throughout Kabul. And we were telling people the grid coordinates and, and intersections to go to to find these buses and if you go they had a secret word they had a, a, a far recognition signal that the bus driver would see he'd wave them in and then once they came up they had to have a secret word to get onto the bus and we filled these buses up and we drove these buses in and it ended up being a real bad situation with the base commander who who didn't want to let them on he didn't always that all aside once we got some of these buses on we can't touch um is women yep. in, in, in Islam. So we asked the Marines, can, can we have a couple of bodies to help search these women? And she, somebody hops in a car, zips down to the barracks and says, hey, we need some women. Can you guys wake up? Like she just finished a 12-hour shift was going to start in six hours from now. And she just pops up and is like, yeah. Like this is how freaking badass these people are. Like these soldiers and these Marines that were there, um, Yes, they're in the military and yes, they were told to go there. But what happens on the ground, nobody asked her to volunteer. You know, she's still the one that's like, yeah, and every one of these, she's just got shafted X number of hours of sleep. She probably has gone cumulatively four hours a night for the whole entire time that she's been there. And um, her hand goes up, she comes in and she greets every one of these women and children that's coming on this base with sincerity. Like she's just a good human, you know, and then 10 hours later, she dies at Abbey Gate. Um, a gate that I had smuggled, I had crawled through sewage with children and, and women on my back through human shit to get through this gate. And this is the gate that ISIS goes, ISIS-K, i.e. the Taliban, to blow up. Yeah, it's, that's who these 13 are here. And after that, I mean... um things going to lockdown yeah um that's it for you um you you got a couple more interesting stories in there um about some other things that did take place but eventually you end up you got you guys got to get out of there you're you have an exfil bird um that's coming to get you and it ends up making an emergency landing in Pakistan and it can't quite make it to pick you up, no. which I find very, very suspect. But, um, yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, you eventually you have to hitch a ride out of there and yep. you got to hitch a ride out of there with the military. Uh, I got to read this section. Uh, as you're looking for someone to give you a ride, here we go. Every lead we run down comes up short. The military birds are full as are the statement state department birds. I begin to wonder if we're going to have to walk out of this place. If we have to, at least I know this is the team to do it with. Still, I'd rather not. Finally, I find an airman that recognizes me. Oh, shit. 
Are you Tim Kennedy, he asks. <laughs> he is ten- Tim Kennedy, C-Spray, answers with a smirk. Awesome, man. I'm a huge fan, my new airman friend says. Me too, C-Spray chimes. Ignoring him, <laughs> I ask, is there any chance you could have some room for us? Our ride crashed in Pakistan. No shit. How many of you are there? Four, he asks. Yeah, just four of us, I answer. Hey, did you know he's Tim Kennedy? C-Spray <laughs> chimes in again. He is, in fact, Tim Kennedy. Sean G says, joining in the game. Dave at least just smiles. I can put you on the ramp, man. No problem, my airman buddy tells us. You're the shit. I really appreciate it, I said. Then adds, so where are we going? Qatar, he tells us. Looks like we're going to Qatar. I jump on the signal app and type, found a ride to Qatar. We'll touch base when we land. Communication's now complete. I shut my phone off to save battery and walk to the edge of the ramp. I turn to look one last time at the vastness of the Afghan landscape. I have left so much of my life in this place. A lot of Americans died here. Hell, I almost died here. Was it worth it? It's dark now, but I can still see the edges of the mountains against the night sky. A feeling of sadness and failure encompasses me. I might never be here again. I walk up the ramp. So, that's how you wrap up 10 days, constant operations. Like we said, you and your team secured, vetted, and evacuated 12,000 people, American citizens, permanent residents, Afghan allies, Afghan refugees. Uh, This is like 10, over 10% of the total people evacuated in this. Just like work man incredible work yeah those um dave and sean g sean g's the ground force commander and and uh sea spray i mean i don't know again divine intervention you know like mike pushing me that time or cumulatively that group their individual experiences combined that the, the, the aggregate of the four of us who who we were the three of them they could have ruled that country. Like th- that is the, the amount of brilliance that was C Spray and Shanji and Dave. The tr- truly three of the most in- intelligent humans I've ever met, and selfless operators that you know like the the expeditionary mind of being able to look at a problem in this asymmetrical way and problem solve is is a really unique thing in in an environment like the fall of Afghanistan. You know, they're, they're in the center of gravity and they are pulling strings. They're calling generals. They're buying, like, let's buy a bus. Yep. Let's buy, <clears throat> let's buy seven buses and put them out here. Let's buy an airline who sits there and is like, let's buy an airline. That's cool. Um, we'll tell the pilots that they'll get their families out if they fly for us. It's a different kind of brain. And that's who, that's who these three, these, these three men are. Yeah. They're the most amazing men to ever walk the face of this planet. It's awesome too, um, and you talk about this in the book. Basically, that you and, and it's it applies to all of them, but all of you were like, none of us like, hey, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, we should do it my way. No, should do it my. You guys are all just humble. Like, what's the best solution? How can we move forward? And that plays such a key role. Like, you can't you can't like argue about dumb shit, ego no. shit when you're trying to actually make things happen. It doesn't work. No. Um, there's not time for it. 
and there's a consequence for it when when it does happen and uh you know those men are still doing work like right now as you and i are talking um you know we're 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 operating other theaters and if you can smuggle people out you have the same thing in that expeditionary mind to smuggle things in mm-hmm. you know and we're we're doing everything that we can like the the mission statement of, of save our allies it's it's war torn countries that need help that's mm-hmm. you know whether it's humanitarian aid or evacuation it's rescuing of americans you know saving our our, our allies it's not a misnomer it's exactly what we're doing and uh you know, and it, it is like sheepdog response, you know, like the purpose of global. Yep. Global sheepdog yeah. response. We are a global organization. <laughs> Save our allies.org. That's it. If you want to support a uh, sheepdog response worldwide, global, yeah. that's what's happening there. I want to read one last section um, here from the book just to close out this part of the book or just to close out from the book. This is as you're flying home. You're, you're, you're on this aircraft and you start reflecting on things from a broad perspective and uh, you say this I think about my own trials and the scars that came with them my thoughts finally land on the moment all those years ago standing on that beach I had failures stacked against me two two women pregnant possible HIV kicked off the police force and a host of other problems it seemed like the end of the world those challenges seemed impossible to overcome now that night in the ocean is a blip on the radar it doesn't matter except as the impetus to finally get off my ass and attack life those two pregnant women gave me Sabrina and Julia my first two reasons to be a better man those girls have given me nothing but joy and pride being kicked off the force created a situation where I had to come to terms with my shortcomings. I didn't fail because life was unfair. I failed because I was a cocky asshole who made poor decisions. Without that failure, I would never be a Green Beret. I never would have found my calling. I never would have reached my potential. Thank God for those failures and that night. The guy standing on that beach looked at life as a scorecard that you win or lose he thought failure was the end he was an idiot the guy in Iraq who got beaten up for not being a team player couldn't have succeeded in the rescue effort I just undertook with this amazing team he would have wanted to lead it to show everyone how good he was instead of contributing to the group effort he was an idiot but it's okay that he was an idiot in the army When you graduate from being a soldier to a non-commissioned officer, you earn the the title of sergeant. In that moment, you earn your stripes, the upward-facing rockers that you affix to your, your uniform. Those stripes are the symbol that shows you are a leader, that you assume responsibility for yourself and those around you. It took me a lot to get there. It's been a hard road. And every step of the way, every additional rank, every additional accomplishment, every great success has required more of me. I've had to sacrifice more, suffer more, and yes, fail more. Failure isn't final, it's necessary. It's the fuel that allows you to advance, to succeed. To earn those stripes, you need to earn those scars first. I take a deep breath. 
in through the nose and out through the mouth, pulling my stomach to the back of my spine. My mind is calm now. My eyes feel heavy, and I lean back into my seat. When I wake up in Atlanta, it will be my birthday, and I will be 42 years old. I'm excited. This is the beginning of a whole new amazing year of failure and suffering. I can't wait to get started. So there you go, man. There it is. Um, life is filled with failures and suffering uh, for everybody. You know, uh, one of the things that I, that I didn't read from the book, you've got some kind of rules. And your number one rule, page two of the book, number one rule, take accountability, it's your fault. And uh, yeah, I, I like that a lot. Believe it. Or not. Do you like that? I like that a lot. I don't know where I got yeah. it. It took a long time. Why didn't you read this? Write that book in like '97. Uh, it would have been really useful. Because I was the jackass that was uh, running around blaming other people for doing dumb shit or dumb uh-huh. shit happening to me. That's why. Um, yeah, man, taking ownership, taking accountability. When when you recognize and listen, you can't control everything, but man, you can control a lot more than you think you can. Uh, and what matters the most when you come up against these challenges is is how you respond to it, what you learn from it. Um, how can these sufferings and failures actually make me better? And that's what it's about. And that's what the book's about. And that's what Tim Kennedy's about. That's <laughs> what I'm learning to be about. Yeah, there, there's a fine balance from wallowing in your failure and being defined by your failure and then embracing it, recognizing it, learning from it and moving on. And, um, I have, I have wallowed in it clearly as I went for a drink, swim through the cold, icy waters of Morro Bay. And I've, you know, and I've also not learned from it. And somewhere in between there on that spectrum is where learning happens. And, uh, and I definitely like a bumper bowling ball going down the bumpers have been figuring it out. So uh, I think I got more failure and more suffering ahead of me. Yeah, uh, that's how you get better, man. Here we go. That's how you get better. Uh, well, I've had you in here for way too long. I apologize, <laughs> Carrie. You got so, any final questions there? Uh, no, no final questions. We yeah. we pretty well covered it here. I mean, we we got we went kind of hard, kind of hard in the paint on this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim. Before we go to closing thoughts, so we got saveourallies dot dot org. That's the main place to support that. That's right. That thing. You're uh, you're all over the place at Tim Kennedy MMA. Yeah, on all the on all the socials. But I don't care about that stuff. Uh-huh. You know, like if you're gonna if you're gonna support us, you can follow me to if you if you want to know about shenanigans. But you know, between sheepdog sheepdog response, Apogee, and Save Our Allies. So sheepdogresponse.com. dot com dot com dot org. There you go. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Any closing thoughts, brother? I appreciate you. I appreciate your voice. I appreciate what you do. Uh, I, not often enough do I, I think are people recognized for really the impact that they're having. We we have been bordering on a very dangerous um, direction. I think our country and and you and if in a handful of very few other men and women have been voices of of rational logic of like no. Man, it's up. It's up to you. You got to get back to work. So, thank you first and foremost. Thanks, thanks for being a voice of, of truth 
and uh, being a voice to inspire people like me to to include me to go out and do good things. Thanks. Well, uh, I certainly don't think Tim Kennedy needs much inspiration from anybody, man. Uh, awesome to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for your service in the Army. Thanks for your continued service with everything that you're doing. I mean, it's just it's just outstanding to see everything that you do to try and help um, your community, your our country, uh, and people of the world. Uh, like I said, globally, you're making an impact, and it's just it's just outstanding to see you out there making it happen, man. Respect. Me and a bunch of people way smarter than me. You know, <laughs> I'm holding on to their their coattails as they're dragging me along. Well, we both have that benefit of being uh, being around a bunch of people that are a lot smarter than the two knuckle draggers sitting yep. here. Awesome, man! Thanks for coming back. Thank you. And with that, Tim Kennedy has left the building. Uh, and I believe at this point in time, we are at the world record Jocko podcast we, length. <laughs> <laughs> we are at the record. Well. I don't know, man, but that went by in a split second in my mind. Uh, I don't know. I could just talk and listen to Tim and talk with Tim and converse with Tim for a really long time. So I guess pushing six hours at this point mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. What a what a dude, man. What a great dude. Uh, and I guess we should try and keep this a little bit short. <laughs> Who's left out there? <laughs> Especially now that Tim's gone. I was like, all right, bro, you already pushed the limit. You already pushed the limit, boys. Uh, You know, wrap it up quick. Uh, One thing I will say about Tim is he has this kind of like disregard for, you know, I don't know if it's like convention or not necessarily rules either, but if Tim wants to go do something, (laughs) like Tim's going to go do it, man. And it was just awesome. Everything from – you know, him him doing the MMA career while he was still in the service and then just, you know, everything that he's had a conviction to go do. He's going to do it. freaking guy's answering the call, man. He's just yeah. he's getting after it. Yeah. He's such an awesome, awesome guy. And and you know, like I like I read that last little rule of his, take accountability for it. It's your fault. And, you know, we kinda joked about it. That's the that's the concept of extreme ownership that's helped so many uh so many people out there. You know, so many people. I mean th- so many people, I don't want to put a number on it, but it is a lot of people that have contacted me and contacted Leif and said, hey, that's what got me straightened out is when I realized I needed to take extreme ownership. I needed to take accountability for everything. It's all my fault. That's such a great starting point for life. And for someone like Tim, it obviously has had a huge impact when he started to take accountability for his life and, and move it in the right direction. And um, then he just turns into, you know, a, a damn, what do you say, a, a missile of some kind? <laughs> Fire and forget missile? What do you say? A, f- like- <laughs> a flesh missile? You've got all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, but what a great guy. Um, <clears throat> so you're in charge of your own life. You're in charge of your own security, by the way. So, so check out that sheepdog response. Uh, also, get yourself in good physical condition. You know, when you start talking about physical, when you start talking about this, remember when he was talking about you got to be ready for this. Mm-hmm. What what is this? Mm-hmm. This could be so such a wide variety. It could even be, oh, my kid fell down. We're in the woods, and you know, he or she child banged their head and need to get to a doctor and we're two miles you know 
from the road and I got to go uphill mm-hmm. and I got to carry them. Yep. Do are you in the physical condition to do that? Because mm-hmm. if you're not, that could be tragic. I remember my wife got stung by the damn uh, stingray, mm-hmm. and and we were at a beach around San Diego that has a bunch of stairs to get up to to get to the parking lot. And my wife got stung, and I just straight just buddy carried. Let's roll, <laughs> get her to the get her to the aid station. Yep. I was like, boom, you know, yep. just buddy carried her up those stairs. But hey. That was just a stingray. What if something? What if she had a femoral bleed and I had mm-hmm. to get whatever? Something crazy happened. Yep. We don't know. So, what are you going to do to be prepared for this when you don't even know what this is? Well, let me tell you one thing: be physically prepared. Hundred percent. This, in my mind, represents stress. Mm-hmm. Some sort of stress is going to be put on you, mm-hmm. and you got to be ready for that stress. Yep. Physical stress, mental stress, whatever it is, that's what this is going to be. Yeah. It's going to be a stress on your system. Yep. How is your system prepared to take care of that stress? You know, that means you're working out. That means you're doing jujitsu. That means you're on Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel.com. Get yourself some milk, man. I, I you can't understate the the, the 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 beauty of milk. The fact that you could have dessert, you can have a dessert, a legit dessert that you think, my God, this is good. That's what I think when I drink milk. So, I think, you know, this is a. You could you could put it up next to a a damn Hagen Dazs, mm-hmm. Baskin Robbins. What 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 do you you want to go toe to toe? And this one is good for me. Do you track protein? Do you track any like no? You don't do any tracking or anything like no. that. I, I was curious. You know, this started a month or two ago. I was talking to JP mm-hmm. Donnell about it too because yep. he he gets he gets the protein. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I was I was just curious. I was like, I know what I should be getting in terms of like grams of protein right. a day, and I I just didn't know where I was falling. Mm-hmm. So I tracked it, and I was coming up short. Coming up short. I was coming up short, man. And I I you know got on that mulch shake mulch of the life. But why why not have two mulch shakes a day? For sure. It makes sense. It's it's a you know, a hundred calories a scoop or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're getting twenty two grams of protein yeah. a hit. Like you know what's nice too? It's a little pre game. You know, like you're, oh, you're going to go out to, you know, to a dinner or whatever, dinner something with my wife. We're going to some restaurant with some friends. It's Italian food. You know, it's just they're going to be throwing pasta at you oh, and whatnot. It's coming. So it's like, you know, do a little pregame. Mm-hmm. Get that mulk hitter because mm-hmm. then instead of eating nine slices of freaking garlic bread <laughs> in the openers, right? You're good. Yeah, you don't yeah. need it because you're not hungry. Right. So you just get the chicken parm, mm-hmm. eat a couple of noodles just because of what's up, you know. But Try that pregame. It doesn't necessarily have to be a post-game evolution. That's little strategy yeah, right there. I'm, I'm like strategizing that. over right here on. a little bit. Uh, JockoFuel.com, Mulk, uh, Joint Warfare, Super Krill, all that stuff, immunity. Don't Go. forget about the, the ghosts. Ghosts. New yeah. flavor formulations yeah, coming out. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of ownership, as we know, my fault, the original te- flavors weren't quite for the normal human. <laughs> they were for me. Uh, but we, we fixed them. All the flavors are insanely delicious. Insanely delicious. I know who's going to give everyone a run for their money with the new flavors. Dak Savage. Ooh. Dakota Meyer. The new Dak Savage is one of the best beverages I've ever tasted in my right. life. So the Jocko Fuel guys rolled into the last muster. Uh-huh. Uh, Main Thai, Justin over there, Jocko Fuel. They rolled in new flavor formulations. Yeah. Some of the some of the muster attendees got a little, you know, sneak peek at yeah. what's coming. 
I didn't try the Dak Savage, and now I'm kicking myself because oh, I want to see what that's. They're all they're all unbelievably good. The Dak Savage. Maybe I was just surprised that it was so good, mm-hmm. and that the flavor, the way they nailed it, uh, it's going to be so. It's so good, and they're out. So, yep. anyways, if you need some of that clean energy. Clean energy, clean good it, for you. You don't need to do crystal methamphetamine to get energy. You don't need to do 378 milligrams of caffeine. You don't need a bunch of 32 grams of sugar. You don't, you don't even need chemicals at all. You can just get on that on that discipline. Go train. Not only is good not bad for you, it is good, <laughs> good for, for you. you. It is good for you. Uh, JockoFuel.com, OriginUSA.com. If you need some American-made clothing, if you need some hunt gear, it's coming. You saw you saw that first little I saw that little visual. <laughs> Is that what's coming out first? That's will be the first item. Yeah, I that'll don't. be the yeah because those are getting ready. That was like the test line. That was the first one coming off the test line. Oh boy. How sick was that? It was so sick. Yeah, and that that tiger stripe camo is just mm-hmm. it. Ode to Sog. Ode to Sog, but also, like, obviously it's functional, right? And, and there's, 100%. like, there's science and Pete and all those brains back there, like, figuring out the, uh, the function application, but it is also just <laughs> slick looking, you know? Like, you see that pattern out and yeah. it, you recognize it immediately. Yeah, you know That's what's up. Uh, so Hunt's coming, Jiu Jitsu gear, geese, rash guards, you know, whatever you need, whatever you need. Boots, you need boots, we got you. You need jeans, we got you. Jeans are always getting a little incrementally better, too. The jeans, we are learning. Mm-hmm. And so the jeans are just at a, just getting better and better all the time. So originusa.com, jockostore.com. I see you got a shirt on over there. It says just again. Again. This is my, fa- <laughs> it's one of my favorites because that, that's the mentality over here. Yep. You know, just, just again, again, more. Yep. Harder. Yep. Like, let's get it. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Uh, so, uh, jockostore.com, if you want to get rash guards, you want to get some stuff that says stuff that we said on this podcast? I guess that's the most basic way to break it down. JockoStore.com. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget about Jocko Unraveling. Man, Daryl Cooper and I got, uh, we're supposed to get another one of those in. Check those out. JockoUnderground.com. We got $8.18 a month. That's what allows us to do this and not live in fear of the man. We're not living in fear. Because if they throw us off, it's all right. We got our own, we got our own system. We got our own platform. Thanks to you subscribing to JockoUnderground.com. We're also doing little, little alternative podcasts there. We're answering a bunch of questions. So if you're if you're a subscriber to JockoUnderground.com, you get an email to send questions to. I'm answering those questions all the time. So check that out. Check out our YouTube. You want to check out the the what Tim Kennedy looks like? Check out the YouTube channel. Jocko Podcast, check out Origin USA for their for their YouTube channel as well. Books, Stars and Stripes by Tim Kennedy. If you haven't gotten it yet, obviously get it. Only Cry for the Living, Holly McKay, check that one out. All the books I've written, if you uh, like some of the stuff I talk about here, you can check out those books. Echelonfront.com. If you have leadership problems inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. And we will help your organization align its leadership and get moving in the right direction. We have a, a big event called the Muster. Next one is in Atlanta, October 12th and 14th. We have sold out all events that we've ever done. <laughs> this one's going to sell out too. So if you want to come to that, 
go to echelonfront.com, get registered. We also have an online training platform for life. For life. For life. Figure out how to take ownership of your life. Figure out how to lead yourself through life. And also, that will help you figure out how to lead others. So this is what we talk about. We talk about all these different facets of leadership through yourself, through the way you're living your life. We got pre, pre-recorded courses on there with tests. We've got live sessions that we do. What else? What role, am I missing? Role plays. Role plays on there. What else? Application exercises. It, it is a way for, listen, leadership is a skill. Leadership is a skill. Just like shooting is a skill, just like fighting and jujitsu is a skill. It's like you can't expect to get good at jujitsu without doing it. You can't expect to get good at fighting without doing it. You can't expect to be a good shot without learning how to shoot. It's a skill set. So is leadership. So since it is a skill set that you need to learn, where are you going to learn it from? Well, I will tell you where you learn it from. ExtremeOwnership.com. Go and check that out. I'll see you on there. And... If you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mama Lee. That's Mark Lee's mom. She's got an awesome charity organization where she helps veterans, families, Gold Star families. It's America's Mighty Warriors.org. We've also got Heroes and Horses.org. Micah Fink. Just taking guys out into the wilderness on horses to sit in cold water and eat trail food. That's what he's doing for 41 days. It really helps guys out, helps them get through the trauma that they've been through. Clearly, Tim Kennedy, saveourallies.org. Just an outstanding organization. You heard about some of the stuff. What's up with evacuating 12,000 people with 12 guys? In 10 days. In 10 days. That you want to see results from a charity? Go ahead and check that one out. Saveourallies.org. And you know what? They're engaged globally and stuff that I'm not going to talk about, but globally helping people throughout the world. That's what that's what Tim and his team are doing. So if you want to help the world, you want to help people that are that need saving, save our Also check out Sheepdog Response. Go go into some of those courses. Learn about how to defend yourself. Learn learn about how to protect your family. Uh, you can tell the names he's rattling off of the guys that are teaching that. Uh, Tim included. I mean, they're just they're just outstanding humans, and there's no one better to learn from. So check that out as well. Uh, once again, Tim Kennedy, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. He's at Tim Kennedy MMA. Uh, Twitter, Gram, Facebook. I'm at Jocko Willink. Where are you at, K Dog? Carrie underscore Helton. Is that the best you could do? You had to throw an underscore in there? Yeah. What happened? Uh, yeah, we, we covered There was already a K-Dog out yeah, there? Yeah, there, there's a Carrie Helton out there, and uh, I, I tried to message him, and no response. Just, Nothing. Just leaving me out to dry, Ouch. man. So I guess no. we're going underscore. Going underscore. Carrie underscore Helton. Uh, hey, when you're getting on there, you want to check us out? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. Dude, I'm going I'm to tell you right now. The algorithm's got it's – got, it's an offensive, effect, effective – tool that they are using to get in your head and steal your time from me from you i i feel like if i'm on there i feel like someone's stealing my time from me mm. i feel like oh they're, they're getting me right now so look come on check in that's cool throw a comment whatever 
do not get caught in the algorithm. Um, so that's that. Once again, thanks to Tim Kennedy for everything that he has done. He is doing just an awesome human. And, you know, is he a perfect human? He's not a perfect human. None of us are. But but talk about squared away trajectory is just inspiring to be around him. So thanks, Tim, once again, for everything you're doing and everything you've done. And thanks to all the folks that are in uniform right now out there in the world standing the watch, protecting freedom, protecting our way of life. Thank you to all of you in uniform. And the same goes to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and all the first responders out there. Thank you all for standing watch here at home. And we got to hear some stories of what it's like for an EMT, what it's like for a firefighter, what it's like for police, what they see every day. Thanks to you all and to everybody else out there just remember where Tim was at. Remember what Tim went through. He was in a rough place, man. He'd been a firefighter, fired. He had his hopes of dreams of becoming a police officer, had those dreams squashed. He had a bunch of problems going on. And he was, he was in a rough spot. He's ready to call it quits. But he didn't. He took accountability for his actions. He learned. He grew. He worked hard. He turned his life around. And now he's out there helping others do the same. So no matter what happens, don't ever give up. Don't stop moving forward. And instead, embrace those scars and learn from them and go conquer. And until next time, this is Carrie and Jocko, out.